This is audible. Rivers of London, written by Ben Aronovich, read by Cobner Holbrook Smith. Yet ah, why should they know their fate, since sorrow never comes too late, and happiness too swiftly flies? Thought would destroy their paradise. No more, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eton College by Thomas Gray. Chapter One, Material Witness. It started 1:30 on a cold Tuesday morning in January when Martin Turner, street performer and, in his own words, apprentice gigolo, tripped over a body in front of the West Portico of St Paul's at Covent Garden. Martin, who was none too sober himself, at first thought the body was that of one of the many celebrants who had chosen the piazza as a convenient outdoor toilet and dormitory. Being a seasoned Londoner, Martin gave the body the London once over. A quick glance to determine whether this was a drunk, a crazy, or a human being in distress. The fact that it was entirely possible for someone to be all three simultaneously is why Good Samaritanism in London is considered an extreme sport, like base jumping or crocodile wrestling. Martin, noting the good quality coat and shoes, had just pegged the body as a drunk when he noticed that it was in fact missing its head. As Martin noted to the detectives conducting his interview, it was a good thing he'd been inebriated because otherwise he would have wasted time screaming and running about, especially once he realised he was standing in a pool of blood. Instead, with the slow, methodical patience of the drunk and terrified, Martin Turner dialed 999 and asked for the police. The police emergency centre alerted the nearest incident response vehicle, and the first officers arrived on the scene six minutes later. One officer stayed with the suddenly sober Martin while his partner confirmed that there was a body and that, everything else being equal, it probably wasn't a case of accidental death. They found his head six metres away, where it had rolled behind one of the neoclassical columns that fronted the church's portico. The responding officers reported back to control, who alerted the area murder investigation team, whose duty officer, the most junior detective constable on the team, arrived half an hour later. He took one look at Mr. Headless and woke his governor. With that, the whole pomp and majesty that is a metropolitan police murder investigation descended on the 25 meters of open cobbles between the church portico and the market building. The pathologist arrived to certify death, make a preliminary assessment of the cause, and cart the body away for its post-mortem. There was a short delay while they found a big enough evidence bag for the head. The forensic teams turned up mop-handed and, to prove that they were the important ones, demanded that the secure perimeter be extended to include the whole west end of the piazza. To do this, they needed more uniforms at the scene. So the DCI, who was senior investigating officer, called up Charing Cross Nick and asked if they had any to spare. The shift commander, upon hearing the magic word overtime, marched into the section house and volunteered every one out of their nice warm beds. Thus, the secure perimeter was expanded. Searches were made, junior detectives sent off on mysterious errands, and finally, at just after five o'clock, it all ground to a halt. The body was gone. The detectives had left, and the forensic people unanimously agreed that there was nothing more that could be done until dawn, which was three hours away. Until then, 
they needed a couple of mugs to guard the crime scene until shift change. Which is how I came to be standing around Covent Garden in a freezing wind at six o'clock in the morning, and why it was me that met the ghost. Sometimes I wonder whether, if I'd been the one that went for the coffee and not Leslie May, my life would have been much less interesting, and certainly much less dangerous. Could it have been anyone, or was it destiny? When I'm considering this, I find it helpful to quote the wisdom of my father, who once told me, "Who knows why the fuck anything happens?" Covent Garden is a large piazza in the centre of London, with the Royal Opera House at the east end, a covered market in the centre, and St Paul's Church at the west end. It was once London's principal fruit and veg market, but that got shifted south of the river ten years before I was born. It had a long and varied history, mostly involving crime, prostitution, and the theatre. But now it's a tourist market. St Paul's Church is known as the Actors' Church to differentiate it from the cathedral. And was first built by Inigo Jones in 1638. I know all this because there's nothing like standing around in a freezing wind to make you look for distractions. And there was a large and remarkably detailed information plaque attached to the side of the church. Did you know, for instance, that the first recorded victim of the 1665 plague outbreak, the one that ends in London burning down, is buried in its graveyard? I did. After ten minutes spent sheltering from the wind, the murder investigation team had closed off the west of the piazza by stringing tape across the entrances to King Street and Henrietta Street, and along the frontage of the covered market. I was guarding the church end where I could shelter in the portico, and WPC Leslie May, my fellow probationer, guarded the piazza side where she could shelter in the market. Leslie was short. Blonde and impossibly perky, even when wearing a stab vest. We'd gone through basic training at Hendon together before being transferred to Westminster for our probation. We maintained a strictly professional relationship, despite my deep-seated yearning to climb into her uniform trousers. Because we were both probationary constables, an experienced PC had been left to supervise us—a responsibility he diligently pursued from an all-night cafe on St Martin's Court. My phone rang. It took me a while to dig it out from among the stab vest, utility belt, baton, handcuffs, digital police radio, and cumbersome but mercifully waterproof reflective jacket. When I finally managed to answer, it was Leslie. I'm going for a coffee, she said. Want one? I looked over at the covered market and saw her wave. Oh, you're a lifesaver, I said, and watched as she darted off towards James Street. She hadn't been gone more than a minute when I saw a figure in the portico, a short man in a suit, tucked into the shadows behind the nearest column. I gave the prescribed Metropolitan Police first greeting. "Oi," I said. "What do you think you're doing?" The figure turned, and I saw a flash of a pale, startled-looking face. The man was wearing a shabby, old-fashioned suit, complete with waistcoat, fob watch, and battered top hat. I thought he might be one of the street performers licensed to perform in the piazza, but it seemed a tad early in the morning for that. Over here, he said, and beckoned. I made sure I knew where my extendable baton was and headed over. Policemen are supposed to loom over members of the public, even helpful ones. That's why we wear big boots and pointy helmets. But when I got closer, I found the man was tiny, 
five foot nothing in his shoes. I fought an urge to squat down to get our faces level. Oh, I saw the whole thing, squire, said the man. Terrible thing it was. They drum it into you at Hendon. Before you do anything else, get a name and an address. I produced my notebook and pen. Can I ask your name, sir? Course you can, squire. My name's Nicholas Wallpenny, but don't ask me how to spell it because I never really got my letters. Are you a street performer? I asked. You might say that, said Nicholas. Certainly my performances have hitherto been confined to the streets, but on a cold night like this I wouldn't be averse to bringing some interiority to my proceedings. If you catch my meaning, squire. There was a badge pinned to his lapel. A pewter skeleton caught mid-caper. It seemed a bit goth for a short cockney geezer, but then London is the pick-and-mix cultural capital of the world. I wrote down street performer. Now, sir, I said, if you could just tell me what it was you saw. Oh, I saw plenty, squire. But you were here earlier this morning. My instructions were also clear about not queuing your witnesses. Information is only supposed to flow in one direction. I'm here morning, noon and night, said Nicholas, who obviously hadn't gone to the same lectures I had. If you've witnessed something, I said, perhaps you'd better come give a statement. Oh, that would be a bit of a problem, said Nicholas, seeing as I'm dead. I thought I hadn't heard him correctly. If you're worried about your safety, I worried about anything anymore, squire, said Nicholas, on account of having been dead these last hundred and twenty years. If you're dead, I said, before I could stop myself, how come we're talking? You must never touch the site, said Nicholas. Somebody old Paladino. He looked at me closely. Touching that from your father, maybe. Dockman was he, sailor, some such thing. He gave you that good curly hair and them lips. Can you prove you're dead, I said. Whatever you say, squire, said Nicholas, and stepped forward into the light. He was transparent. The way holograms in films are transparent. Three-dimensional, definitely really there, and fucking transparent. I could see right through him to the white tent the forensic team had set up to protect the area around the body. Right, I thought, just because you've gone mad doesn't mean you should stop acting like a policeman. Can you tell me what you saw? I asked. I saw the first gent, him that was murdered, walking down from James Street. Fine eye-stepping man with a military bearing, very gaily dressed in the modern fashion. What I would have considered a prime plant in my corporeal days. Nicholas paused to spit. Nothing reached the ground. Then the second gent, in what did the murder, and he comes strolling the other way up Henrietta Street, not so nicely turned out, wearing them blue workman's trousers and an oilskin like a fisherman. They passed each other just there. Nicholas pointed to a spot ten metres short of the church portico. I reckon they know each other, because they both nod, but they don't stop for a chat or nothing, which is understandable, it not being a night for loitering. So they passed each other, I asked, as much for the chance to catch up with my note-taking as to clarify the point. And you thought they knew each other? As acquaintances, said Nicholas, I wouldn't say they were bosom friends, especially with what transpired next. I asked him what transpired next. 
Well, second, murdering Jen, he puts on a cap and a red jacket and he brings out his stick. And as quietly and as swiftly as a snoozer in a lodging house, he comes up behind the first Jen and knocks his head clean off. <laughs> you're, you're having me on, I said. No, I'm never, said Nicholas, and crossed himself. I swear on me own death. And that's as solemn a swear as a poor shake can give. It was a terrible sight. Off came his head and up went the blood. What did the killer do? Well, having done his business, he was off. Went down New Row like a lurcher on the commons, said Nicholas. I was thinking that New Row took you down to Charing Cross, an ideal place to catch a taxi or a minicab or even a night bus if the timing was right. The killer could have cleared central London in less than 15 minutes. That wasn't the worst of it, said Nicholas, obviously unwilling to let his audience get distracted. There was something uncanny about the killing, gent. Uncanny? I asked. You're a ghost. Spirit, I may be, said Nicholas. But that just means I know uncanny when I see it. And what did you see? The killing gentleman didn't just change his hat and coat. He changed his face, said Nicholas. Now tell me that ain't uncanny. Someone called my name. Leslie was back with the coffees. Nicholas vanished while I wasn't looking. I stood staring like an idiot for a moment until Leslie called again. Do you want this cup of coffee or not? I crossed the cobbles to where the angel, Leslie, was waiting with a polystyrene cup. Anything happened while I was away? She asked. I sipped my coffee. The words, I just talked to a ghost who saw the whole thing, utterly failed to leave my lips. Next day I woke up at eleven, much earlier than I wanted to. Leslie and I had been relieved at eight, and we trudged back to the section house and gone straight to bed. Separate beds, unfortunately. The principal advantages of living in your station section house is that it is cheap, close to work, and it's not your parents' flat. The disadvantages are that you are sharing accommodation with people too weakly socialized to live with normal human beings and who habitually wear heavy boots. The weak socialization makes opening the fridge an exciting adventure in microbiology, and the boots mean that every shift change sounds like an avalanche. I lay in my narrow little institutional bed, staring at the poster of Estelle that I'd affixed to the wall opposite. I don't care what they say, you're never too old to wake up to the sight of a beautiful woman. I stayed in bed for ten minutes, hoping that my memory of talking to a ghost might fade like a dream, but it didn't, so I got up and had a shower. It was an important day that day, and I had to be sharp. The Metropolitan Police Service is still, despite what people think, a working-class organisation, and as such, rejects totally the notion of an officer class. That is why every newly minted constable, regardless of their educational background, has to spend a two-year probationary period as an ordinary plod, on the streets. This is because nothing builds character like being abused, spat at, and vomited on by members of the public. Towards the end of your probation, you start applying for positions in the various branches, directorates, and operational command units that make up the force. 
Most probationers will continue on as full uniform constables in one of the borough commands, and the Met hierarchy likes to stress that deciding to remain a uniformed constable, doing vital works on the streets of London, is a positive choice in and of itself. Somebody has to be abused and spat at and vomited on, and I, for one, applaud the brave men and women who are willing to step up and serve in that role. This had been the noble calling of my shift commander, Inspector Francis Neblet. He had joined the Met back in the time of the dinosaurs, had risen rapidly to the rank of inspector, and then spent the next thirty years quite happily in the same position. He was a solid man with lank brown hair and a face that looked as if it had been struck with the flat end of a shovel. Neblet was old-fashioned enough to wear a uniform tunic over his regulation white shirt, even when out patrolling with his lads. I was scheduled to have an interview with him today, at which we would discuss my future career prospects. Theoretically, this was part of an integrated career development process that would lead to positive outcomes with regards to both the police service and me. After this discussion, a final decision as to my future disposition would be made. I strongly suspected that what I wanted to do wouldn't enter into it. Leslie, looking unreasonably fresh, met me in the squalid kitchenette shared by all the residents on my floor. There was paracetamol in one of the cupboards. One thing you can always be certain of in a police section house is that there will always be paracetamol. I took a couple and gulped water from the tap. Mr. Headless has a name, she said, while I made coffee. William Skirmish, media type, lives up in Highgate. Are they saying anything else? Just the usual, said Leslie. Senseless killing, blah blah. Inner city violence. What is London coming to? Blah, blah. I said. What are you doing up before noon? She asked. Got my career progression meeting with Nebla at twelve. Good luck with that, she said. I knew it was all going pear-shaped when Nebla called me by my first name. Tell me, Peter, he said. Where do you see your career going? I shifted in my chair. Well, sir, I said, I was thinking of CID. <laughs> you want to be a detective? Neblet was, of course, a career uniform, and thus regarded plainclothes police officers in much the same way as civilians regard tax inspectors. You might, if pressed, concede that they were a necessary evil, but you wouldn't actually let your daughter marry one. Yes, sir. Why limit yourself to CID? He asked. Why not one of the specialist units? Because you don't. Not when you're still on probation, say that you want to be in the Sweeney or a murder investigation team and swan around in a big motor while wearing handmade shoes. I thought I'd start at the beginning and work my way up, sir. That's a very sensible attitude," said Neblet. I suddenly had a horrible thought. What if they were thinking of sending me to Trident? That was the operational command unit charged with tackling gun crime within the black community. Trident was always on the lookout for black officers to do hideously dangerous undercover work, and being mixed race meant that I qualified. It's not that I don't think they do a worthwhile job; it's just that I didn't think I'd be very good at it. It's important for a man to know his limitations. And my limitations started at moving to Peckham and hanging around with yardies, postcode wannabes, and those weird skinny white kids who don't get the irony of M&M. 
uh, I don't like rap music, sir, <laughs> I said. Neblet nodded slowly. That's uh, useful to know, he said, and I resolved to keep a tighter grip on my mouth. Peter, he said, over the last two years I've formed a very positive opinion of your intelligence and your capacity for hard work. Thank you, sir. And then there is your science background. I have three C-grade A-levels in maths, physics, and chemistry. This is only considered a science background outside of the science community. It certainly wasn't enough to get me the university place I wanted. You're very useful at getting your thoughts down on paper, said Neblet. I felt a cold lump of disappointment in my stomach. I knew exactly what horrifying assignment the Metropolitan Police had planned for me. We want you to consider the case progression unit, said Neblet. The theory behind case progression is very sound. Police officers, so the established wisdom has it, are drowning in paperwork. Suspects have to be logged in, the chain of evidence must never be broken, and the politicians and PACE, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, must be followed to the letter. The role of the case progression unit is to do the paperwork for the hard-pressed constable so he or she can get back out on the street to be abused, spat out and vomited on. Thus will there be a bobby on the beat, and thus shall crime be defeated, and the good Daily Mail reading citizens of our fair nation shall live in peace. The truth is that the paperwork is not that onerous. Any half-competent temp would dispose of it in less than an hour and still have time to do his nails. The problem is that police work is all about face and presence and remembering what a suspect said one day so you can catch them in a lie the next. It's about going towards the scream, staying calm and being the one that opens the suspect package. It's not that you can't do both. It's just that it's not exactly common. What Neblet was saying to me was that I wasn't a real copper, not a thief taker, but I might play a valuable role freeing up real coppers. I could tell with a sick certainty that those very words, valuable role, were rushing towards the conversation. I was hoping for something a bit more proactive, sir, I said. This would be proactive, said Neblet. You'd be performing a valuable role. Police officers, as a rule, don't need an excuse to go to the pub. But one of the many non-excuses they have is the traditional end-of-probation booze-up when members of the shift get the brand-new full constables completely hammered. To that end, Leslie and me were dragged across the strand to the Roosevelt Toad and plied with alcohol until we were horizontal. That was the theory, anyway. How did it go? Leslie asked over the roar of the pub. Badly, I shouted back. Case progression unit. Leslie pulled a face. What about you? I don't want to tell you, she said. It'll piss you off. Hit me, I said. I can take it. I've been temporarily assigned to the murder team, she said. I'd never heard of that happening before. As a detective? As a uniformed constable in plain clothes, she said. It's a big case. They need bodies. She was right. It did piss me off. The evening went sour after that. I stuck it out for a couple of hours, but I hate self-pity, especially mine. So I went out and did the next best thing to sticking my head in a bucket of cold water. 
Unfortunately, it had stopped raining while we were in the pub, so I settled for letting the freezing air sober me up. Leslie caught up with me twenty minutes later. Put your bloody coat on, she said. You'll catch a death. Is it cold? I asked. I knew you'd be upset, she said. I put my coat on. Have you told the tribe yet? I asked. In addition to her mum, her dad, and Nan, Leslie had five older sisters, all still resident within a hundred meters of the family home in Brightlingsea. I'd met them once or twice when they descended upon London en masse for a shopping expedition. They were loud to the point of constituting a one-family breach of the peace, and would have merited a police escort if they hadn't already had one, i.e., Leslie and me. This afternoon, she said, they were well pleased. Even Tanya. She doesn't even know what it means. Have you told yours yet? Tell them what? I asked. That I work in an office. Nothing wrong with working in an office. I just want to be a copper. I said. I know, said Leslie. But why? Because I want to help the community. I said. Catch bad guys. Not the shiny buttons, then? She asked. Or the chance to slap the cuffs on and say you're Nick, my son. Maintain the Queen's peace. I said. Bring order out of chaos. She shook her head sadly. What makes you think there's any order? She said. And you've been out on patrol on a Saturday night. Does that look like the Queen's peace? I went to lean nonchalantly against the lamppost, but it went wrong, and I staggered around a bit. Leslie found this much funnier than I thought we really deserved. She sat down on the step of Waterstone's bookshop to catch her breath. Okay, I said. Why are you in the job? Because I'm really good at it," said Leslie. "You're all that good a copper," I said. "Yes, I am," she said. "Let's be honest. I'm bloody amazing as a copper. And what am I? Too easily distracted. I am not. New Year's Eve, Trafalgar Square, big crowd, bunch of total wankers pissing in the fountain. Remember that?" asked Leslie. "Wheels come off, wankers get stroppy, and what were you doing?" Was only gone for a couple of seconds. I said, "You were checking what was written on the lion's bum," said Leslie. "I was wrestling a couple of drunken chavs, and you were doing historical research." Do you want to know what was on the lion's bum? I asked. "No," said Leslie. "I don't want to know what was written on the lion's bum, or how siphoning works, or why one side of Floral Street is a hundred years older than the other." You don't think any of that's interesting? Not when I'm wrestling chavs, catching car thieves, or attending a fatal accident," said Leslie. "I like you. I think you're a good man, but it's like you don't see the world the way a copper needs to see the world. It's like you're seeing stuff that isn't there. Like what? I don't know," said Leslie. "I can't see stuff that isn't there. Seeing stuff that isn't there can be a very useful skill for a copper," I said. Leslie snorted. "It's true," I said. Last night, while you were distracted by your caffeine dependency, I met an eyewitness who wasn't there. Wasn't there? Said Leslie. How can you have an eyewitness who wasn't there? I hear you ask. I'm asking. Said Leslie. When your eyewitness is a ghost, I said. Leslie stared at me for a moment. I would have gone with the CCTV camera controller myself, she said. What? Guy watching the murder on CCTV. Said Leslie, "He'd be a witness who wasn't there, but I like the ghost thing." I interviewed a ghost. I said, <laughs> "Bollocks," said Leslie. 
So I told her about Nicholas Woolpenny, and the murdering gent who turned back, changed his clothes, and then knocked poor... What was the victim's name again? I asked. William Skirmish, said Leslie. It was on the news. Knocked poor William Skirmish's head clean off his shoulders. That wasn't on the news, said Leslie. The murder team will want to keep that back, I said, for witness verification. The witness in question being a ghost? asked Leslie. Yes. Leslie got to her feet, swayed a bit, and then got her eyes focused again. Do you think he's still there? she asked. The cold air was beginning to sober me up at last. Who? Your ghost, she said. Nicholas Nickleby. Do you think he might still be at the crime scene? How shall I know? I said. I don't even believe in ghosts. Let's go and see if he's there, she said. If I see him too, then it'll be like corrupt... Proof. Okay, I said. We wandered arm in arm up King Street towards Govan Garden. There was a great absence of Nicholas the ghost that night. We started at the church portico where I'd seen him, and, because Leslie was a thoroughgoing copper, even when pissed, did a methodical search around the perimeter. Chips, said Leslie after our second circuit, or a kebab. Maybe he doesn't come out when I'm with someone else, I said. Maybe he does shift work, said Leslie. Fuck it, I said, let's have a kebab. You'll be good at the case progression unit, said Leslie, and you'll be, if you say making a valuable contribution, I will not be held responsible for my actions. I was going to say making a difference, she said. You could always go to the States. I bet the FBI would have you. Why would the FBI have me? I asked. They could use you as an Obama decoy, she said. For that, I said, you can pay for the kebabs. In the end, we were too knackered to get kebabs, so we headed straight back to the section house where Leslie utterly failed to invite me to her room. I was at that stage of drunk where you lie in your bed in the dark and the room goes whirling around you and you're wondering about the nature of the universe and whether you can get to the sink before you throw up. Tomorrow was my last day off, and unless I could prove that seeing things that weren't there was a vital skill for the modern police officer, it was hello case progression unit for me. I'm sorry about last night, said Leslie. Neither of us could face the horrors of the kitchenette that morning, so we found shelter at the station canteen, despite the fact that the catering staff were a mixture of compact Polish women and skinny Somali men. A strange kind of institutional inertia meant that the food was classic English greasy spoon. The coffee was bad, and the tea was hot, sweet, and came in mugs. Leslie was having a full English breakfast. I was having a tea. It's all right, I said. Your loss, not mine. Not that, said Leslie, and smacked me on the hand with the flat of her knife. What I said about you being a copper. Oh, don't worry, I said. I've taken your feedback on board, and having extensively workshopped it this morning, I now feel that I can pursue my core career development goals in a diligent, proactive, but above all, creative manner. What are you planning to do? I'm going to hack Holmes to see if my ghost was right, I said. Every police station in the country has at least one Holmes suite. This is the Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, which allows computer illiterate coppers to join the late 20th century. Getting them to join the 21st century would be too much to ask for. 
Everything related to a major investigation is kept on the system, allowing detectives to cross-reference data and avoid the kind of cock-up that made the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper such an exemplary operation. The replacement to the old system was due to be called Sherlock, but nobody could find the words to make the acronym work, so they called it Holmes 2. Theoretically, you can access Holmes 2 from a laptop, but the Metropolitan Police likes to keep its personnel tied to fixed terminals, which can't be left on trains or sold to pawn shops. When a major investigation occurs, the terminals can be transferred from the suite to the incident rooms elsewhere in the station. Leslie and I could have sneaked into the home suite and risked being caught, but I preferred to plug my laptop into a land socket in one of the empty incident rooms and work in safety and comfort. I'd been sent on a Holmes II familiarization course three months earlier. At the time, I'd been excited because I thought they might be preparing me for a role in major investigations. But now I realize they were grooming me for data entry work. It took me less than half an hour to find the Covent Garden investigation. People are often negligent about passwords, and Inspector Neblett had used his youngest daughter's name and year of birth, which is just criminal. It also got me read-only access to the files we wanted. The old system couldn't handle big data files, but because Holmes II was only ten years behind the state of the art, detectives could now attach evidence, photographs, document scans, and even CCTV footage directly to what's called a nominal record file. It's like YouTube for cops. The murder team assigned to the William Skirmish murder had wasted no time grabbing the CCTV footage and seeing if they could get a look at the murderer. It was a big, fat file, and I went straight for it. According to the report, the camera was mounted on the corner of James Street looking west. It was low-quality, low-light footage updated at one frame per second. But despite the poor light, it clearly showed William Skirmish walking from under the camera towards Henrietta Street. There's our suspect, said Leslie, pointing. The screen showed another figure. The best you could say was probably male, probably in jeans and a leather jacket, walked past William Skirmish and vanished below the screen. According to the notes, this figure was being designated as Witness A. A third figure appeared, going away from the camera. I hit pause. Doesn't look like the same guy, said Leslie. Definitely not. This man was wearing what looked like a Smurf hat and what I recognized as an Edwardian smoking jacket. Don't ask me why I know what an Edwardian smoking jacket looks like. Let's just say it has something to do with Doctor Who and leave it at that. Nicholas had said it was red, but the CCTV image was in black and white. I clicked back a couple of frames and then forward again. The first figure, Witness A, dropped out of shot one, two frames before the man in the Smurf hat stepped into view. That's two seconds to get changed, said Leslie. That's not humanly possible. I clicked forward. The man in the Smurf hat produced his bat and stepped smartly up behind William's skirmish. The wind-up was between frames, and the hit was clear. In the next frame, Skirmish's body was halfway to the ground, and a little dark blob, which we decided must be the head, was just visible by the portico. My God! He really did knock his head clean off, said Leslie. Just as Nicholas had said he had. Now that, I said, is not humanly possible. 
You've seen a head come off before, said Leslie. I was there, remember? That was a car accident, I said. That's two tons of metal, not a bat. Yeah, said Leslie, tapping the screen, but there it is. There's something wrong here, apart from a horrible murder. I clicked back to where Smurf Hat had entered the scene. Can you see a bat? No, said Leslie. Both his hands are visible. Maybe it's on his back. I click forward. On the third frame, the bat appeared in Smurf Hat's hands, as if by magic. But that could just have been an artifact of the one-second lag between frames. There was something else wrong with it, too. That's much too big to be a baseball bat, I said. The bat was at least two-thirds as long as the man who carried it. I clicked backwards and forwards a few times, but I couldn't work out where he was keeping it. Maybe he likes to speak really softly, said Leslie. Where do you even buy a bat that size? The big bat shop, said Leslie. Bats are us. Let's see if we can get a look at his face, I said. Plus size bats, said Leslie. I ignored her and clicked forward. The murder took less than three seconds. Three frames. One, the wind-up. Two, the blow. And three, the follow-through. The next frame caught Smurf at mid-turn. His face, in three-quarter profile, showing a jutting chin and a prominent hook nose. The frame after showed Smurf Hat walking back the way he'd come, slower than the approach. Casual, as far as I could tell from the stuttering image. The bat vanished two frames after the murder. Again, I couldn't see where it had gone. I wondered if we could enhance the faces, and started looking for a graphic function I could use. Idiot, said Leslie. Murder team will be all over that. She was right. Connected to the footage were links to the enhanced pictures of William Skirmish, Witness A, and the murdering gent in the Smurf hat. Contrary to television, there's an absolute limit to how good a close-up you can extrapolate from an old-fashioned bit of videotape. It doesn't matter if it's digital. If the information isn't there, it isn't there. Still... Someone at the tech lab had done their best, and despite all the faces being blurry, it was at least obvious that there were three different people. He's wearing a mask, I said. Now you're getting desperate, said Leslie. Look at that chin and that nose, I said. Nobody has a face like that. Leslie pointed to a notation attached to the image. Looks like the murder team agree with you. There was a list of actions associated with the evidence file one of which was to check local costumiers, theatres and fancy dress shops for masks. It had a very low priority. Aha, I said. So, it might be the same person. Who can change their clothes in less than two seconds? asked Leslie. Do me a favour. All the evidence files are linked, so I checked to see whether the murder team had managed to track Witness A as he left the crime scene. They hadn't, and according to the action list, finding him had become a priority. I predicted a press conference and an appeal for witnesses. Police are particularly interested in talking to... would be the relevant phrase there. Smurfat had been tracked all the way down New Row, exactly the route Nicholas had said he'd taken, but vanished off the surveillance grid in St. Martin's Lane. According to the action list, half the murder team were currently scouring the surrounding streets for potential witnesses and clues. No, said Leslie, reading my mind... 
Nicholas, Nicholas the ghost, said Leslie. Nicholas, the corporeally challenged, I said, was right about the murderer's approach, the method of attack, and the cause of death. He was also right about the getaway route, and we don't have a timeline where witness A is visible at the same time as Smurf Hat. Smurf Hat? The, the, the murder suspect, I said. I need to take this to the murder team. What are you going to say to the SIO? asked Leslie. I met a ghost, and he said witness A put on a mask and did it. No, I'm going to say that I was approached by a potential witness who, despite leaving the scene before I could get his name and address, generated potentially interesting leads that may further the successful outcome of the investigation. It made Leslie pause, at least. And you think that'll get you out of the case progression unit? It's got to be worth a try, I said. It's not enough, said Leslie. One, they're already generating leads over Witness A, including the possibility that he was wearing a mask. Two, you could have got all that information from the video. They won't know I had access to the video. Peter, said Leslie, it shows someone's head being knocked off. It's going to be all over the internet by the end of the day. And that's if it's not on the ten o'clock news. Then I'll generate more leads, I said. <laughs> You're going to go looking for your ghost. Want to come? No, said Leslie, because tomorrow is the most important day of the rest of my career, and I'm going to bed early with a cocoa and a copy of Blackstone's Police Investigator's Workbook. Just as well, I said. I think you scared him away last night, anyway. Equipment for ghost hunters. Thermal underwear, very important. Warm coat, thermos flask, patience, ghost. It did occur to me quite early on that this was possibly the most absurd thing I'd ever done. Around ten, I took up my first position, sitting at an outdoor table of a cafe, and waited for the crowds to thin out. Once the cafe closed, I sauntered over to the church portico and waited. It was another freezing night, which meant that the drunks leaving the pubs were too cold to assault each other. At one point, a hen party went past. A dozen women in oversized pink t-shirts, bunny ears and high heels. Their pale legs were blotchy with cold. One of them spotted me. You better go home, she called. He's not coming! A mate shrieked with laughter. I heard one of them complaining that all the good-looking ones are gay. Which is what I was thinking when I saw the man watching me from across the piazza. What with the proliferation of gay pubs, clubs and chat rooms, it is no longer necessary for the single man about town to frequent public toilets and graveyards on freezing nights to meet the man of their immediate needs. Still, some people like to risk frostbite on their nether regions. Don't ask me why. He was about 180 in height, that's six foot in the old money, and dressed in a beautifully tailored suit that emphasized the width of his shoulders and a trim waist. I thought early forties with long, finely boned features and brown hair cut into an old-fashioned side parting. It was hard to tell in the sodium light, but I, I thought his eyes were grey. He carried a silver-top cane, and I knew without looking that his shoes were handmade. All he needed was a slightly ethnic younger boyfriend, and I'd have had to call the cliché police. When he strolled over to talk to me, I thought he might be looking for that slightly ethnic boyfriend after all. Hello, he said. He had a proper RP accent like an English villain in a Hollywood movie. What are you up to? I thought I'd try the truth. 
I'm ghost hunting, I said. Interesting, he said. Any particular ghost? Nicholas Woolpenny, I said. What's your name and address, he asked. No Londoner ever answers that question unchallenged. I beg your pardon? He reached into his jacket and pulled out his wallet. Detective Chief Inspector Thomas Nightingale, he said, and showed me his warrant card. <clears throat> uh, Constable Peter Grant, I said. Out of Charing Cross, Nick? Yes, sir. He gave me a strange smile. Carry on, Constable, he said, and went strolling back up James Street. So there I was, having just told a senior detective chief inspector that I was hunting ghosts, which, if he believed me, meant he thought I was bonkers, or if he didn't believe me, he thought I was cottaging and looking to perpetrate an obscene act contrary to public order. And the ghost that I was looking for had failed to make an appearance. Have you ever run away from home? I have, on two occasions. The first time, when I was nine, I only got as far as Argos on Camden High Street. And the second time, aged fourteen, I made it all the way to Euston Station and was actually standing in front of the departure boards when I stopped. On both occasions, I wasn't rescued or found or brought back. Indeed, when I returned home, I don't think my mum noticed I was gone. I know my dad didn't. Both adventures ended the same way, with the realisation that, in the end, no matter what, I was going to have to go home. For my nine-year-old self, it was the knowledge that the Argos store represented the outer limit of my understanding of the world. Beyond that point was a tube station and a building with statues of cats, and, further on, more roads and bus journeys that led to downstairs clubs that were sad and empty and smelled of beer. My fourteen-year-old self was more rational. I didn't know anyone in these cities on the departure boards, and I doubted there would be any more welcoming than London. I probably didn't even have enough money to get me further than Potter's Bar, and even if I did stow away for free, what was I going to eat? Realistically, I had three meals worth of cash on me, and then it would be back home to mum and dad. Anything I did short of getting back on the bus and going home was merely postponing the inevitable moment of my return. I had that same realisation in Covent Garden at three o'clock in the morning. That same collapse of potential futures down to a singularity, a future that I couldn't escape. I wasn't going to drive a fancy motor and say, you're nicked. I was going to work in the case progression unit and make a valuable contribution. I stood up and started walking back to the Nick. In the distance, I thought I could hear someone laughing at me. Chapter 2 Ghost Hunting Dog The next morning, Leslie asked me how the ghost hunting had gone. We were loitering in front of Neblet's office, the place from whence the fatal blow would fall. We weren't required to be there, but neither of us wanted to prolong the agony. There's worse things than the case progression unit, I said. We both thought for a moment. Traffic, said Leslie. That's worse than the CPU. You get to drive nice motors, though, I said. BMW 5, Mercedes M-Class. You know, Peter, you really are quite a shallow person, said Leslie. I was going to protest, but Neblet emerged from his office. He didn't seem surprised to see us. He handed a letter to Leslie, who seemed curiously reluctant to open it. They're waiting for you at Belgravia, 
said Neblet. Off you go. Bargravia is where the Westminster murder team is based. Leslie gave me a nervous little wave and skipped off down the corridor. There goes a proper thief-taker, said Neblet. He looked at me and frowned. Whereas you, he said, I don't know what you are. Proactively making a valuable contribution, sir, I said. Cheeky bugger is what you are, said Neblet. He handed me not an envelope, but a slip of paper. You're going to be working with Chief Inspector Thomas Nightingale. The slip had the name and address of a Japanese restaurant in New Row. Who am I working for? I asked. Economic and specialist crime, as far as I know, said Neblet. They want you in plain clothes, so you better get a move on. Economic and specialist crime was an admin basket for a load of specialist units. Everything from arts and antiques to immigration and computer crime. The important thing was that the case progression unit wasn't one of them. I left in a hurry before he could change his mind. But I want to make it clear that at no point did I break into a skip. Nero was a narrow, pedestrianised street between Covent Garden and St. Martin's Lane, with the Tesco's at one end and the theatres of St. Martin's Lane at the other. Tokyo Agogo was a bento place halfway down, sandwiched between a private gallery and a shop that sold sporting gear for girls. The interior was long and barely wide enough for two rows of tables, sparsely decorated in minimalist Japanese fashion, with polished wood floors, tables and chairs of lacquered wood, lots of right angles, and rice paper. I spotted Nightingale at a back table eating out of a black lacquered bento box. He stood when he saw me and shook my hand. Once I'd settled myself opposite, he asked if I was hungry. I said no thank you. I was nervous, and I make it a rule never to put cold rice into an agitated stomach. He ordered tea and asked if I minded if he continued eating. I said not at all, and he returned to spearing food out of his bento box with quick jabs of his chopsticks. Did he come back? asked Nightingale. Who? Your ghost, said Nightingale. Nicholas Woolpenny. Lurker, bug hunter, and sneak thief. Late of the parish of St. Giles. Can you hazard a guess as to where he's buried? In the cemetery of the actor's church? Very good, said Nightingale, and grabbed a duck wrap with a stab of his chopsticks. So did he come back? No, he didn't, I said. Ghosts are capricious, he said. They really don't make reliable witnesses. Are you telling me ghosts are real? Nightingale carefully wiped his lips with a napkin. You've spoken to one, he said. What do you think? Um, awaiting confirmation from a senior officer, I said. He put the napkin down and picked up his teacup. Ghosts are real. He took a sip. I stared at him. I didn't believe in ghosts or fairies or gods, and for the last couple of days I'd been like a man watching a magic show. I'd expected a magician to step out from behind the curtain and ask me to pick a card, any card. I wasn't ready to believe in ghosts, but that's the thing about empirical experience. It's the real thing. And if ghosts were real... Is this where you tell me there's a secret branch of the Met whose task it is to tackle ghosts, ghouls and fairies, demons, witches and warlocks, elves and goblins? 
I said. You can stop me before I run out of supernatural creatures. You haven't even scratched the surface, said Nightingale. Aliens? I had to ask. Not yet. And the secret branch of the Met? Just me, I'm afraid, he said. And you want me to, what, join? Help, said Nightingale, with this inquiry. You think there's something supernatural about the murder? I asked. Why don't you tell me what your witness had to say, he said, and then we'll see where it goes. So I told him about Nicholas and the change of clothes by the murdering gent, about the CCTV coverage and the murder team thinking it was two separate people. When I'd finished, he signalled the waitress for the bill. I wish I'd known this yesterday, he said, but we still might be able to pick up a trace. A trace of what, sir? I asked. The uncanny, said Nightingale. It always leaves a trace. Nightingale's motor was a Jag, a genuine Mark II with the 3.8-litre XK6 engine. My dad would have sold his trumpet for a chance to own a car like that, and that was back in the 60s when that still meant something. It wasn't pristine. There were some dings on the bodywork and a nasty scratch on the driver's side door, and the leather on the seats was beginning to crack. But when Nightingale turned the key in the ignition and the inline six rumbled, it was perfect where it counted. You took sciences at A-level, said Nightingale as we pulled out. Why didn't you take a science degree? Uh, I got distracted, sir, I said. My grades were low and I couldn't get on the course that I wanted. Really? What was the distraction? He asked. Music, perhaps? Did you start a band? No, sir, I said. Nothing that interesting. We headed down through Trafalgar Square and took advantage of the discreet Metropolitan Police flash on the windscreen to cut through the Mall, past Buckingham Palace and into Victoria. I knew there were only two places we might be going. Belgravia Nick, where the murder team had their incident room, or Westminster Mortuary, where the body was stashed. I hoped it was the incident room, but of course it was the mortuary. But you understand the scientific method, though, asked Nightingale. Yes, sir, I said, and thought. Bacon, Descartes, and Newton. Check. Observation, hypothesis, experiment, and something else that I could look up when I got back to my laptop. Good, said Nightingale, because I need someone with some objectivity. Definitely the morgue, then, I thought. Its official name is the Ian West Forensic Suite, and it represents the Home Office's best attempt to make one of its mortuaries look as cool as the ones in American TV shows. In order to keep filthy policemen from contaminating any trace evidence on the body, there was a special viewing area with live autopsies piped in by closed-circuit television. This had the effect of reducing even the most grisly post-mortem to nothing more than a gruesome TV documentary. I was all for that, but Nightingale, on the other hand, said that we needed to get close to the corpse. Why? I asked. Because there are other senses than sight, said Nightingale. Uh, are we talking ESP here? Just keep an open mind, said Nightingale. The staff made us don clean suits and masks before letting us near the slab. We weren't relatives, so they didn't bother with a discreet cloth over the gap between the body's shoulders and the head. I was so glad I'd skipped the bento that morning. I guessed William Skirmish had been an unremarkable man when he was alive, 
middle-aged, just over average height. His muscle tone was flabby, but he wasn't fat. I found it surprisingly easy to look at the detached head with its ragged edge of torn skin and muscle instead of a neck. People assume that, as a police officer, your first dead person will be a murder victim, but the truth is it's usually the result of a car accident. My first had been on day two when a cycle courier had his head knocked off by a transit van. After that, you don't exactly get used to it, but you do know that it could be a lot worse. I wasn't exactly enjoying the headless Mr. Skirmish, but I had to admit it was less intimidating than I'd imagined. Nightingale bent over the body and practically stuck his face into the severed neck. He shook his head and turned to me. Uh, help me turn him over, he said. I didn't want to touch the body, not even with surgical gloves on, but I couldn't bottle out now. The body was heavier than I was expecting, cold and inert as it flopped onto its belly. I quickly stepped away, but Nightingale beckoned me over. I want you to get your face as close to his neck as possible. Close your eyes and tell me what you feel, said Nightingale. I hesitated. I promise it will become clear, he said. The mask and eye protectors helped. There was no chance of me accidentally kissing the dead guy. I did as I was told and closed my eyes. At first, there was just the smell of disinfectant, stainless steel and freshly washed skin, but after a few moments I became aware of something else, a scratchy, wiry, panting, wet nose, wagging sensation. Well, asked Nightingale. Dog, I said. A, a yappy little dog. Growling, barking, yelling, flashes of cobbles, sticks, laughing, maniacal, high-pitched laughing. I stood up sharply. Violence and laughter? Asked Nightingale. I nodded. What was that? I asked. The uncanny, said Nightingale. It's like a bright light when you close your eyes. It leaves an afterimage. We call it vestigium. How do I know I didn't just imagine it? I asked. Experience, said Nightingale. You learn to distinguish the difference through experience. Thankfully, we turned our back on the body and left. I felt barely anything, I said, while we were changing. I is it always that weak? The body's been on ice for two days, said Nightingale, and dead bodies don't retain vestigia very well. So whatever caused it must have been very strong, I said. Quite, said Nightingale. Therefore, we have to assume that the dog is very important and we have to find out why. Maybe Mr. Skirmish had a dog, I said. Yes, said Nightingale. Let's start there. We changed and were on our way out of the mortuary when fate caught up with us. I heard rumours there was a nasty smell in the building, said a voice behind us, and bugger me if it isn't true. We stopped and turned. Detective Chief Inspector Alexander Sewall was a big man coming in a shade under two metres. Barrel-chested, beer-bellied, and with a voice that could make windows shake. He was from Yorkshire or somewhere like that, and like many Northerners with issues, he'd moved to London as a cheap alternative to psychotherapy. I knew him by reputation, and the reputation was, don't fuck with him under any circumstances. He bore down the corridor towards us like a bull on steroids, and as he did, I had to fight the urge to hide behind Nightingale. 
This is my fucking investigation, Nightingale, said Seawall. I don't care who you're currently fucking. I don't want any of your X-Files shit getting in the way of proper police work. I can assure you, Inspector, said Nightingale, I have no intention of getting in your way. Seawall turned to look at me. Who the hell is this? This is PC Peter Grant, said Nightingale. He's working with me. I could see this shocked Seawall. He looked at me carefully before turning back to Nightingale. You're taking on an apprentice, he asked. That's yet to be decided, said Nightingale. We'll see about that, said Seawall. There was an agreement. There was an arrangement, said Nightingale. Circumstances change. Not that fucking much of the dawn, said Seawall. But it seemed to me he'd lost some of his conviction. He looked down at me again. Take my advice, son, he said quietly. Get the fuck away from this man while you still have a chance. Is that all? asked Nightingale. Just stay the hell away from my investigation, said Seawall. I get where I'm needed, said Nightingale. That's the agreement. Circumstances can fucking change, said Seawall. Now, if you gentlemen don't mind, I'm late for my colonic irrigation. He went back up the corridor and crashed through the double doors and was gone. What's the agreement? I asked. It's not important, said Nightingale. Let's go and see if we can't find this dog. The north end of the London borough of Camden is dominated by two hills, Hampstead on the west, Highgate on the east, with the heath, one of the largest parks in London, slung between them like a green saddle. From these heights the land slopes down towards the River Thames and the floodplains that lurk below the built-up centre of London. Dartmouth Park, where William Skirmish had lived, was on the lower slopes of Highgate Hill and within easy walking distance of the heath. He'd had the ground-floor flat of a converted Victorian terrace, the corner house of a tree-lined street that had been traffic-calmed to within an inch of its life. Further downhill was Kentish Town, Leighton Road, and the estate where I grew up. Some of my schoolmates had lived round the corner from Skirmish's flat, so I knew the area well. I spotted a face in a first-floor window as we showed our cards to the uniform guarding the door. As in many converted terraces, a once-elegant hallway had been walled off with plasterboard, making it cramped and lightless. Two additional front doors had been jammed side by side into the space at one end. The door on the right was half open, but symbolically blocked with police tape. The other presumably belonged to the flat with the twitching curtains upstairs. Skirmish's flat was neat and furnished in the patchwork styles that ordinary people, the ones not driven by aspirational demons, choose for their homes. Fewer bookcases than I would have expected from a media type. Many photographs, but the ones of children were all black and white or the faded colour of an instamatic film. A life of quiet desperation, said Nightingale. I knew it was a quote, but I wasn't going to give him the satisfaction of asking who'd said it. Chief Inspector Seawall, whatever else he was, was no fool. We could tell that his murder team had done a thorough job. There were smudges of fingerprint powder on the phone, the door handles and frames, and books had been pulled off bookcases and then put back upside down. The last seemed to annoy Nightingale more than was strictly appropriate. It's just careless, he said. Drawers had been pulled out, searched, and then left slightly open to mark their status. 
anything worthy of note would have been noted and logged into Holmes, probably by poor suckers like Leslie. But the murder team didn't know about my psychic powers and the vestigium of the barking dog. And there was a dog. That, or Skirmish had a taste for palmeaty chunks in gravy, and I didn't think his quiet life had been quite that desperate. I called Leslie on her mobile. Are you near Holmes Terminal? I asked. I haven't left the bloody thing since I got here, said Leslie. They've had me on data entry and bloody statement verification. Really, I said, trying not to gloat. Guess where I am. You're at Skirmish's flat in Dartmouth Bloody Park, she said. How do you know that? Because I can hear DCIC while yelling about it right through this office wall, she said. Who's Inspector Nightingale? I glanced at Nightingale, who was looking at me impatiently. I'll tell you later, I said. Can you check something for us? Sure, said Leslie. What is it? When the murder team tossed the flat, did they find a dog? I heard her tapping away as she did a text search on the relevant files. No mention of a dog in the report. Thanks, I said. You made a valuable contribution. You're so buying the drinks tonight, she said, and hung up. I told Nightingale about the absence of dog. Let's go and find a nosy neighbour, said Nightingale. He'd obviously seen the face in the window, too. Beside the front door, an intercom system had been retrofitted above the doorbells. Nightingale barely had time to press the button before the lock buzzed open and a voice said, Come on up, dear. There was another buzz, and the inner door opened, behind a dusty but otherwise clean staircase that led upwards, and as we started up, we heard a small, yappy dog start barking. The lady who met us at the top did not have blue-rinsed hair. Actually, I'm not sure what blue-rinsed hair would look like, and why anyone would think blue hair was a good idea in the first place. Nor did she have fingerless mittens or too many cats, but there was something about her that suggested that both could be serious lifestyle choices in the future. She was also quite tall for a little old lady, spry and not even slightly senile. She gave her name as Mrs. Shirley Palmarin. We were quickly ushered into a living room that had last been seriously refurnished in the 1970s and offered tea and biscuits. While she bustled in the kitchen, the dog, a short-haired, white-and-brown mongrel terrier, wagged its tail and barked non-stop. Clearly the dog didn't know which of us it regarded as the greater threat, so it swung its head from one side to the other continuously until Nightingale pointed a finger at it and muttered something under his breath. The dog immediately rolled over, closed its eyes, and went to sleep. I looked at Nightingale. But he just raised an eyebrow. Has Toby gone to sleep? asked Mrs. Palmarin when she returned with her tea tray. Nightingale jumped to his feet and helped her settle it on the coffee table. He waited until our host had sat down before returning to his seat. Toby kicked his feet and growled in his sleep. Obviously nothing short of death was going to keep this dog quiet. Such a noisy thing, isn't he? said Mrs. Palmarin as she poured the tea. Now that Toby was relatively quiet, I had a chance to notice that there was a lack of dogness about Mrs. Palmarin's flat. There were photographs of, presumably, Mr. Palmarin and their children on her mantelpiece, but no chintz or doilies. There was no dog basket by the fireplace, and no hair ground into the corners of the sofa. I got out my notebook and pen. 
Is he yours? I asked. Ah, Lord, no, said Mrs. Palmerin. He belonged to poor Mr. Skirmish, but I I've been looking after him for a little while now. He's not a bad chap when you get used to him. He's been here from before Mr. Skirmish's death, asked Nightingale. Oh, yes, said Mrs. Palmerin with relish. You see, Toby's a fugitive from justice. He's on the lamb. Well, what was his crime? asked Nightingale. He's wanted for a serious assault, said Mrs. Palmerin. He bit a man right on his nose. The police were called and everything. She looked down to where Toby was chasing rats in his sleep. If I hadn't let you hole up here, it would be the pokey for you, my lad, she said, and then the needle. I called Kentish Town Nick, who put me through to Hampstead Nick, who told me that, yes, there had been a call-out to a dog attack on Hampstead Heath just before Christmas. The victim had failed to press charges, and that was all there was to report. They gave me the name and address of the victim. Brandon Coopertown, Downshire Hill, Hampstead. You put a spell on the dog, I said, as we left the house. Yeah, just a small one, said Nightingale. So, magic is real. I said, which makes you a what? A wizard. <laughs> like Harry Potter. Nightingale sighed. No, he said, not like Harry Potter. In what way? I'm not a fictional character, said Nightingale. We hopped back in the jag and headed west, skirting the south end of Hampstead Heath before swinging north to climb the hill into Hampstead proper. This far up the hill was a maze of narrow streets choked with BMWs and Chelsea tractors. The houses had seven-figure prices, and if there was any quiet desperation here, then it had to be over the things that money couldn't buy. Nightingale parked the jack in the residence-only bay, and we walked up Downshire Hill looking for the address. It turned out to be one of a row of grand, Victorian, semi-detached mansions set back from the north side of the road. It was a seriously buff house with gothic trim and bay windows. The front garden was professionally cared for, and judging from the absence of an intercom, the Coopertowns owned the whole thing. As we approached the front door, we heard an infant crying, the sort of thready, measured crying of a baby that was settled in for a good wail and was prepared to keep it up all day if need be. With the house this expensive, I was expecting a nanny or, at the very least, an au pair, but the woman who opened the door looked too haggard to be either. August Coopertown was in her late twenties, tall, blonde, and Danish. We knew about the nationality because she managed to work it into the conversation almost immediately. Before the baby, she'd had a slim, boyish figure, but childbirth had widened her hips and put slabs of fat on her thighs. She managed to work that into the conversation pretty quickly as well. As far as August was concerned, all of this was the fault of the English, who had failed to live up to the high standards a well-brought-up Scandinavian woman comes to expect. I don't know why. Perhaps the Danish hospitals have gyms attached to their maternity units. She entertained us in her knocked-through living room stroke dining room with blonde wood floors and more stripped pine than I really like to see outside of a sauna. Despite her best efforts, the baby had already begun to make inroads into the ruthless cleanliness of the house. A feeding bottle had rolled between the solid oak legs of the sideboard, 
and there was a discarded romper suit balled up on top of the Bang & Olufsen stereo. I smelled stale milk and vomit. The baby lay in his 400-quid cot and continued to cry. Family portraits were hung in a tasteful grouping over the minimalist granite fireplace. Brandon Coopertown was a good-looking older man in his mid-forties with black hair and narrow features. While Mrs. Coopertown bustled, I surreptitiously took a photograph with my phone camera. I keep forgetting you can do that, murmured Nightingale. Welcome to the 21st century, I said, sir. Nightingale rose politely as Mrs. Coopertown bustled back in. This time I was ready and followed him up. May I ask what your husband does for a living? asked Nightingale. He was a television producer, a successful one, with BAFTAs and format sales to the US, which explained the seven-figure house. He could do even better, but his ascension to the higher planes of international production were entirely hampered by the parochial nature of British television. If only the British could stop making programs that catered only to a domestic audience, or even cast actors who were the least bit attractive. As fascinating as Mrs. Coopertown's observations on the provinciality of British television were, we felt compelled to ask about the incident with the dog. That too is typical, said Mrs. Coopertown. Of course, Brandon didn't want to press charges. He's English. Didn't want to make a fuss. The police should have prosecuted the dog owner regardless. The animal was clearly a danger to the public. It bit poor Brandon right on his nose. The baby paused, and we all held our breath. But he merely burped once and started crying again. I looked at Nightingale and rolled my eyes over at the baby. Perhaps he could use the same spell as he used on Toby. He frowned at me. Maybe there were ethical issues about using it on babies. According to Mrs. Coopertown, the baby had been perfectly well behaved until the thing with the dog. Now, well, now Mrs. Coopertown thought he must be teething or have colic or reflux. Their GP didn't seem to have a clue and was unforgivably short with her. She thought they might be better off going private. How did the dog manage to bite your husband on the nose, I asked. What do you mean? asked Mrs. Coopertown. You said your husband was bitten on the nose, I said. The dog's very small. How did it reach his nose? My stupid husband bent down, said Mrs. Coopertown. We were out for a walk on the heath, all three of us, when this dog came running up. My husband bent down to pat the dog and snap. With no warning, it had bitten him on the nose. At first I thought it was quite comical, but Brandon started screaming, and then that nasty little man ran over and started yelling. Oh, what are you doing to my poor dog? Oh, leave him alone. The nasty little man being the owner of the dog, asked Nightingale. Nasty little man, nasty little dog, said Mrs. Coopertown. Was your husband upset? How can you tell with an Englishman? asked Mrs. Coopertown. I went to get something for the blood, and when I got back, Brandon was laughing. Everything is a joke to you people. I had to call the police myself. They came, Brandon showed them his nose, and they started laughing. Everyone was happy, even the nasty little dog was happy. But you weren't happy, I asked. It's but you weren't happy, I asked. It's not a question of happy, said Mrs. Coopertown. If a dog bites a man, what's to stop it from biting a child or a baby? 
May I ask where you were last Tuesday night? Asked Nightingale. Where I am every night, she said. Here, taking care of my son. And where was your husband? August Coopertown. Annoying, yes. Blonde, yes. Stupid, no. Replied. Why do you want to know? She asked. It's not important, said Nightingale. I thought you were here about the dog, she said. We are, said Nightingale, but we'd like to confirm some of the details with your husband. Do you think I'm making this up? Asked Mrs. Coopertown. She had the startled rabbit look that civilians get after five minutes of helping the police with their inquiries. If they stay calm for too long, it's a sign that they are professional villains or foreign or just plain stupid. All of which can get you locked up if you're not careful. If you find yourself talking to the police, my advice is to stay calm but look guilty. It's your safest bet. Not at all, said Nightingale. But since he's the principal victim, we'll need to take his statement. He's in Los Angeles, she said. He's coming home late tonight. Nightingale left his card and promised Mrs. Coopertown that he and, by extension, all right-thinking policemen took attacks by small yappy dogs very seriously, and that they would be in touch. What did you sense in there? Asked Nightingale as he walked back. As in the vestigium. Vestigium is the singular. Vestigia is the plural. Said Nightingale. Did you sense vestigia? To be honest, I said. Nothing. Not even a vestige. A wailing child, a desperate mother, and an absent father. Not to mention a house of that antiquity. Said Nightingale. There should have been something. She seemed a bit of a neat freak to me. I said, perhaps she hoovered up all the magic. Something certainly did, said Nightingale. We'll talk to the husband tomorrow. Let's get back to Covent Garden and see if we can't pick up the trail there. It's been three days, I said. Won't the vestigia have worn off? Stone retains vestigia very well. That's why old buildings have such character, said Nightingale. That said, what with the foot traffic and the area's supernatural components, they certainly won't be easy to trace. We reached the jag. Can animals sense vestigia? It depends on the animal," said Nightingale. "What if it was one that we think might already be connected to the case?" I asked. "Why are we drinking in your room?" asked Leslie. "Because they won't let me take the dog into the pub," I said. Leslie, who was perched on my bed, reached down and scratched Toby behind the ears. The dog whimpered with pleasure and tried to bury its head in Leslie's knee. You should have told them it was a ghost hunting dog," she said. "We're not hunting for ghosts," I said. "We're looking for traces of supernatural energy." Did he really say he was a wizard? I was really beginning to regret telling Leslie everything. Yes, I said. I saw him do a spell and everything. We were drinking bottles of grass from a crate that Leslie had liberated from the station's Christmas party and stashed behind a loose section of plasterboard in the kitchenette. You remember that guy we arrested for assault last week? How could I forget? I've been shoved into a wall during the struggle. I think you hit your head much harder than you thought," she said. "It's all real," I said. "Ghosts, magic, everything." Then why doesn't everything seem different?" she asked. "Because it was there in front of you all the time," I said. "Nothing's changed, so why should you notice anything?" I finished my bottle. Duh. 
I thought you were a skeptic, said Leslie. I thought you were scientific. She handed me a fresh bottle and I waved it at her. Okay, I said. You know my dad used to play jazz. Of course, said Leslie. You introduced me once, remember? I thought he was nice. I tried not to wince at that and continued. And you know jazz is about improvising on a melody. No, she said. I thought it was when you sang about cheese and tying up people's gaiters. Funny, I said. I once asked my dad, when he was sober, how he knew what to play, and he said, "When you get the right line, you just know because it's perfect. You found the line and you just follow it." And that's got the. I thought it was when you sang about cheese and tying up people's gaiters. Funny, I said. I once asked my dad, when he was sober, how he knew what to play, and he said. When you get the right line, you just know because it's perfect. You found the line and you just follow it. And that's got the fuck to do with what? What Nightingale can do fits with the way I see the world. It's the line, the right melody. <laughs> Leslie laughed. You want to be a wizard, she said. I don't know. Liar, she said. You want to be his apprentice and. Learn magic and ride a broomstick.、Uh, I don't think real wizards ride broomsticks. I said. Would you like to think about what you just said? Asked Leslie. Anyway, how would you know? He could be washing around even as we're speaking. Because if you had a car like that, Jag, you wouldn't spend any time mucking about on a broomstick. Fair point, said Leslie, and we clinked bottles. Covent Garden, night time again. This time with a dog. Also a Friday night, which meant crowds of young people being horribly drunk and loud in two dozen languages. I had to carry Toby in my arms, or I'd have lost him in the crowd, lead and all. He enjoyed the ride, alternating between snarling at tourists, licking my face, and trying to drive his nose into passing armpits. I'd offered Leslie a chance to put in some unpaid overtime, but strangely, she declined. I did zap her Brandon Cooper Town's picture, and she promised to put his details on Holmes for me. It was just turning eleven when Toby and I reached the piazza and found Nightingale's Jag parked as close to the actor's church as you could get without being towed away. Nightingale climbed out as I walked over. He was carrying the same silver-topped cane as he had when I'd first met him. I wondered if it had any special significance beyond being a handy blunt instrument in times of trouble. How do you want to do this? Asked Nightingale. You're the expert, sir. I said. I looked into the literature on this. Said Nightingale, and it wasn't very helpful. There's a literature about this. You'd be amazed, Constable, about what there is literature on. We have two options, I said. One of us leads him around the crime scene, or we let him go and see where he goes. I believe we should do it in that order," said Nightingale. "You think a directed first pass will make a better control?" I asked. "No," said Nightingale. "But if we let him off the lead and he runs away, that's the end of it. I'll take him for his walk. You stay by the church and keep an eye out." He didn't say what I should keep an eye out for, but I had a shrewd idea I knew already. Just as I'd suspected, as soon as Nightingale and Toby vanished around the side of the covered market, I heard someone psting at me. I turned around and found Nicholas Woolpenny beckoning me from behind one of the pillars. Over here, Squire," 
hissed Nicholas, before he comes back. He drew me behind the pillar where, among the shadows, Nicholas seemed more solid and less worrying. Do you know what manner of man you're keeping company with? You're a ghost, I said. Not myself, said Nicholas. In with a nice suit and a silver cadwallower. Inspector Nightingale, I said. He's my governor. Well, I don't want to tell you your business, said Nicholas. But I find myself another governor if I was you. Someone less touched. Touched by what? I asked. It's just you ask him about the year of his birth, said Nicholas. I heard Toby bark, and suddenly Nicholas wasn't there anymore. You're not making any friends here, Nicholas, I said. Nightingale returned with Toby, and with nothing to report. I didn't tell him about the ghost or what the ghost had said about him. I feel it's important not to burden your senior officers with more information than they need. I picked up Toby and held him so that his absurd, doggy face was level with mine. I tried to ignore the smell of pow meaty chunks in gravy. Listen, Toby, I said. Your master is dead. I'm not a dog person, and my governor would turn you into a pair of mittens as soon as look at you. You're looking at a one-way ticket to Battersea Dog's home and the big sleep. Your one chance to avoid the big kennel in the sky is to use whatever doggy supernatural senses you have to track whatever it was murdered your owner. Do you understand? Toby panted, and then barked once. Close enough, I said, and put him down. He immediately trotted over to the pillar and lifted his leg. I wouldn't turn him into a pair of mittens, said Nightingale. No? He's a short-haired breed. They'd look terrible, said Nightingale. Might make a good hat. Toby snuffled around a spot close to where his master's body had lain. He looked up, barked once, and shot off towards King Street. Damn, I said. I wasn't expecting that. Get after him, said Nightingale. I was already on my way. Detective Chief Inspectors don't run. That's what they have constables for. I sprinted after Toby, who, like all rat-like dogs, could really shift when he wanted to. Past the Tesco's he went, and down New Row with his little legs whirring like a low-budget cartoon. Two years running down drunks in Leicester Square had given me some speed and stamina, and I was gaining when he crossed St. Martin's Lane and into St. Martin's Court on the other side. I lost ground when I had to dodge around a crocodile of Dutch tourists leaving the Noel Coward Theatre. Police, I yelled. Get out of the way! I didn't yell, stop that dog. I do have some standards. Toby whirred past the Jay Sheiky Oyster Bar and the Salt Beef and Falafel Place on the corner and shot across the Charing Cross Road, which is one of the busiest roads in central London. I had to look both ways before crossing. But luckily, Toby had stopped at a bus stop and was relieving himself against the ticket machine. Toby gave me the smug, self-satisfied look employed by small dogs everywhere when they've confounded your expectations or messed up your front garden. I checked which buses used the stop. One of them was the 24 Camden Town Chalk Farm in Hampstead. Nightingale arrived, and together we counted cameras. There were at least five that had a good view of the bus stop, not to mention the cameras that Transport for London routinely mounts in its buses. 
I left a message on Leslie's phone suggesting she check the camera footage from the 24 bus first. I'm sure she was thrilled when she got it. She got her revenge by calling me at 8 o'clock the next morning. I hate winter. I hate waking up in the dark. Don't you ever sleep? I asked. Early bird gets the worm, said Leslie. You know that picture you sent me? The one of Brandon Coopertown? I think he boarded the number 24 at Leicester Square less than ten minutes after the murder. Have you told Seawall? Of course I have, said Leslie. I love you dearly, but I ain't going to fuck up my career for you. What did you tell him? That I had a lead on Witness A, one of several hundred generated in the last two days, I might add. What did he say? He told me to check it out, said Leslie. According to Mrs. Coopertown, he should be back today. Even better. Can you pick me up, I asked. Of course, said Leslie. What about Voldemort? Mm, he's got my number, I said. I had time for a shower and a coffee before meeting Leslie outside. She arrived in a ten-year-old Honda Accord that looked like it had been used in one too many drug raids. She gave me a sour look as Toby scrambled onto the back seat. This is just a borrow, you know, she said. I wasn't about to leave him in my room, I said, as Toby snuffled God knows what from the gaps between the seats. Are you sure it was Coopertown? Leslie showed me a couple of hard copies. The bus security camera was angled to get a good shot of anyone coming up the stairs, and there was no mistaking the face. It was him. Is that bruising? I asked. There appeared to be blotches on Coopertown's cheeks and neck. Leslie said she didn't know, but it had been a cold night, so it could have been from drink. Because it was Saturday, the traffic was merely horrendous, and we made Hampstead in just under half an hour. Unfortunately, as we pulled into Downshire Hill, I spotted the familiar silver shape of the Jaguar nestled among the Range Rovers and BMWs. Toby started yapping. Doesn't he ever sleep? asked Leslie. I reckon he was on Obbo all night, I said. He ain't my governor, said Leslie, so I'm going to do the job. Coming? We left Toby in the car and headed for the house. Inspector Nightingale got out of his jag and intercepted us just short of the front gate. I noticed he was wearing the same suit he had been in the night before. Uh, Peter, he said, and inclined his head to Leslie. Constable May, I take it this means your search was successful? Even the Queen of Perky wasn't going to defy a senior officer to his face, so she told him about the CCTV footage from the bus, and how we were 90% certain, what with the evidence from our ghost-hunting dog, that Brandon Coopertown, at the very least, was witness A, if not actually the killer. Have you checked his flight details with immigration yet? asked Nightingale. I looked at Leslie, who shrugged. No, sir, I said. So he could have been in Los Angeles when the murder was committed. We thought we'd ask him, sir, I said. Toby started barking. Not his usual annoying yap, but proper furious barks. For a moment I thought I felt something. A wave of emotion, like the excitement of being in a crowd at a football match when a goal is scored. Nightingale's head snapped round to look at Coopertown's house. We heard a window break and a woman screaming. Constable, wait! shouted Nightingale. But Leslie was already through the gate and into the garden. Then she stopped so suddenly that Nightingale and I nearly piled into her back. She was staring at something on the lawn. Jesus Christ, no, she whispered. I looked. 
My brain kept trying to slide away from the idea that someone had thrown a baby from a first-floor window. Tried to convince me that what I was seeing was a scrap of cloth or a doll, but it wasn't. Call an ambulance, said Nightingale, and ran up the steps. I grabbed my phone as Leslie stumbled over to the baby and fell to her knees. I saw her turn the little body over and feel for a pulse. I gave the emergency code and the address on automatic. Leslie bent over and started mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, her mouth covering the baby's mouth and nose in the prescribed manner. Grant, get in here, called Nightingale. His voice was steady, businesslike. It got me moving up the steps and onto the porch. Nightingale must have kicked the front door right off its hinges because I had to run right over it to get into the hall. We had to stop to work out where the fuck the noise was coming from. The woman screamed again. Upstairs. There was a thumping sound like somebody beating a carpet. A voice, I thought it might be a man's, but it was very high-pitched, was screaming. Have you got a headache now? I don't even remember the stairs. Suddenly I was on the landing with Nightingale in front of me. I saw August Coopertown lying face down at the far end of the landing, one arm thrust through a gap in the banisters. Her hair was wet with blood, and a pool was growing under her cheek. A man was stood over her holding a baton at least a metre and a half in length. He was panting hard. Nightingale didn't hesitate. He bulled forward, shoulder down, obviously planning to take the man down in a rugby tackle. I charged too, thinking I'd go high to pin the man's arms after he'd gone down. But the man whirled round and casually backhanded Nightingale with enough force to slam him into the banisters. I was staring right at his face. I assumed it must be Brandon Coopertown, but it was impossible to tell. I could see one of his eyes, but a great flap of skin had been peeled back from around his nose and was covering the other eye. Instead of a mouth, he had a bloody maw full of white flecks of broken teeth and bone. I was so shocked that I stumbled and fell, which was what saved my life when Coopertown swung that baton at me and it passed right over my head. I hit the ground and the bastard ran right over me, slamming one foot down on my back and blowing the air out of my lungs. I rolled over as I heard his feet on the stairs and managed to get onto my hands and knees. There was something wet and sticky under my fingers and I realised there was a thick trail of blood leading across the landing and down the stairs. There was a crash and a series of thumps from the hallway below. You need to get up, Constable, said Nightingale. What the fuck was that? I asked as he helped me up. I looked into the hallway where Coopertown, or whoever the hell it was, had fallen, mercifully face down. I really have no idea, said Nightingale. Try to stay out of the blood trail. I went downstairs as fast as I could. The fresh blood was bright red, arterial. I guessed it must have fountained out of the hole in his face. I bent down and gingerly touched his neck, looking for a pulse. There wasn't one. What happened? I asked. Peter, said Inspector Nightingale, I need you to step away from the body and walk carefully outside. We mustn't contaminate the scene any more than we have already. This is why you have procedure, training and drill, so that you do things when your brain is too shocked to think for itself. Ask any soldier. I stepped outside into the daylight. In the distance, I could hear sirens. Chapter 3. The Folly 
Inspector Nightingale had told Leslie and me to wait in the garden and faded back into the house to check there was nobody else inside. Leslie had used her coat to cover the baby and was shivering in the cold. I tried to struggle out of my jacket so I could offer it to her, but she stopped me. It's covered in blood, she said. She was right. There were smears of blood up the sleeves and trailing the edge of the hem. There was more blood on the knees of my trousers. I could feel the stickiness where it had soaked through the material. There was blood on Leslie's face, around her lips, from where she had tried to resuscitate the baby. She noticed me staring. I know, she said. I've still got the taste in my mouth. We were both trembling and I wanted to scream, but I knew I had to be strong for Leslie's sake. I was trying not to think about it, but the red ruin of Brandon Cooperstown's face kept sneaking up on me. Hey, said Leslie, keep it together. She was looking concerned, and she looked even more concerned when I started to giggle. I couldn't help myself. Peter. Sorry, I said. But you're being strong for me, and I'm being strong for you, and <laughs> don't you get it? This is how you get through the job. I got my giggles under control, and Leslie half smiled. All right, said Leslie. I won't freak out if you don't. She took my hand, squeezed it, and let go. Do you think our backup is walking from Hampstead, Nick? I asked. The ambulance arrived first. The paramedics rushing into the garden and spending twenty minutes trying futilely to resuscitate the child. Paramedics always do this with children, regardless of how much it damages the crime scene. You can't stop them, so you might as well let them get on with it. The paramedics had just got started when a transit van worth of uniforms arrived and started milling around in confusion. The sergeant approached us cautiously, mistaking us for civilians covered in blood and therefore potential suspects. Are you all right? He asked. I couldn't speak. It seemed like such a stupid question. The sergeant looked over at the paramedics who were still working on the baby. Can you tell me what happened? He asked. There's been a serious incident," said Nightingale as he emerged from the house. "You," he said, pointing at a luckless constable. "Get another body. Go round the back and make sure nobody gets in or out that way." The constable grabbed a mate and legged it. The sergeant looked like he wanted to ask for a warrant card, but Nightingale didn't give him the chance. "I want the street closed and tapped off for ten yards in both directions," he said. "The press are going to be all over this any minute, so make sure you've got enough bodies to keep them back." The sergeant didn't salute because we're the Met and we don't salute. But there was a touch of the parade ground in the way he swivelled around and marched off. Nightingale looked over to where Leslie and I stood shivering. He gave us a reassuring nod, turned on one of the remaining constables, and started barking orders. Soon after that, blankets appeared, a place was found in the transit van, and cups of hot tea with three sugars thrust into our hands. We drank the tea and waited in silence for the other shoe to drop. It took less than forty minutes for DCI Seawall to reach Downshire Hill. Even with the Saturday traffic, it meant he must have been doing blues and twos all the way from Belgravia. He appeared in the side door of the van and frowned at Leslie and me. "You two all right?" he asked. We both nodded. "We won't fucking go anywhere," he said. "Fat chance of that. A major investigation." Once it gets underway, is as exciting as watching reruns of Big Brother, although possibly involving less sex and violence. 
criminals are not caught by brilliant deductive reasoning, but by the fact that some poor slob has spent a week tracking down every shop in Hackney that sells a particular brand of trainer, and then checking the security camera footage on every single one. A good senior investigating officer is one who makes sure their team has dotted every I and crossed every T, not least so that some rupert in a wig can't drive a defendant's credit card into a crack in the case and wedge it wide open. Sewell was one of the best. So first, we were taken out separately to a tent that the forensic people had erected near the front gate. There, we stripped to our underwear and traded our street clothes for a stylish one-piece bunny suit. As I watched my favourite suit jacket being stuffed into an evidence bag, I realised I'd never bothered to find out whether you ever got things like that back, and if they did give it back to me, would they dry clean it first? They took swabs of the blood on our faces and hands, and then were nice enough to hand us some wipes so we could get the rest off. We ended up back in the transit van for lunch, which was a couple of shop sandwiches. But this being Hampstead, they are pretty high quality. I found myself surprisingly hungry, and I was thinking of asking for a second round when DCI Seawold climbed into the van with us. His weight caused the van to sink down on one side, and his presence caused Leslie and me to push ourselves unconsciously into our seat backs. How are you two bearing up? he asked. We told him that we were fine and ready, in fact, dead keen, to get back up on that horse and go to work. That's a lot of wank, he said. But at least it's convincing, Wank. In a couple of minutes, we're going to take you down Hampstead Nick, where a nice lady from Scotland Yard is going to take your statements separately. And while I'm a believer in veracity in all things, I want to make it clear that there isn't going to be any fucking mumbo jumbo voodoo X Files shit in any fucking statement. Is that understood? We indicated that he had indeed adequately communicated his position. As far as anyone else is concerned, normal fucking policing got us into this mess, and normal fucking policing will get us out of it. And with the creaking of the van suspension, he left. Did he just ask us to lie to a senior officer? I asked. Yep, said Leslie. Just checking, I said. So we spent the rest of the afternoon bearing false witness in separate interview rooms. We were careful to make sure that while our accounts broadly agreed, there were lots of authentic-looking discrepancies. No one can fake a statement the way a policeman can. After lying, we borrowed some section house castoffs to wear and headed back to Downshire Hill. A serious crime in an area like Hampstead was always going to be big news, and the media was out in force. Not least because half the presenters could have walked to work that afternoon. We let a suspiciously quiet Toby out of the Honda Accord, spent an hour or so cleaning up the back seat, and then drove all the way back to Charing Cross with the windows down. We couldn't really blame Toby since we'd been the ones who left him in the car all day. We bought him a McDonald's Happy Meal, so I think he forgave us. We went back to my room and drank the last of the grosh. Then Leslie peeled off her clothes and climbed into my bed. I climbed in behind her and put my arms around her. She sighed and spooned against me. I got an erection, but she was much too polite to mention it. Toby made himself comfortable on the end of the bed, using our feet as a pillow, and we all went to sleep like that. When I woke up the next morning, Leslie was gone and my phone was ringing. When I answered, it was Nightingale. Are you ready to go back to work? 
he asked. I told him I was. Back to work. Back to the Ian West Forensic Bar and Grill, where Inspector Nightingale and I were booked in for a guided tour of Brandon Cooperstown's horrible injuries. I was introduced to Abdul Haq Walid, a spry gingery man in his fifties who spoke with a soft Highland accent. Dr. Walid handles all our special cases, said Nightingale. I specialize in cryptopathology, said Dr. Walid. Salam, I said. Al-salam alaykum, said Dr. Walid, shaking my hand. I've been hoping that this time we'd use the remote monitoring suite, but Nightingale didn't want a visual record of this stage of the autopsy. Once again, in aprons, masks and eye protectors, we entered the lab. Brandon Coopertown, or at least the man we thought was Brandon Coopertown, lay naked on his back on the table. Dr. Walid had already opened up his torso with a standard Y-shaped incision, and, after rummaging around for whatever pathologists look for in there, closed him back up again. We had confirmed his identity via the biometrics on his passport. Uh, below the neck, said Dr. Walid, he's a physically fit man in his late forties. It's his face that holds our interest here. Or rather, what was left of his face. Dr. Walid had used clamps to splay open the torn flaps of skin so that Brandon Coopertown's face looked horribly like a pink and red daisy. Starting with the skull said Dr. Walid, and leaned in with a pointer. Nightingale followed suit, but I contented myself with peering over his shoulder. As you can see, there is extensive damage to the bones of the face, the mandible, maxilla, and zygomatic bones have been effectively pulverized, and the teeth, those normally reliable survivors, have been shattered. A heavy blow to the face, asked Nightingale. That would have been my first guess, said Dr. Walid. If not for this... He used a clamp to seize one flap of skin, I guessed what had once been covering the cheek, and draw it over the face. It reached right across the breadth of the skull and flopped down to cover the ear on the other side. The skin has been stretched beyond its natural capacity to retain its shape, and while there is not much left of the muscle tissue, that too shows lateral degradation. Judging from the lines of stress, I'd say something pushed out his face around the chin and nose, stretching the skin and muscle, pulverizing the bone, and then holding it in position. Then, whatever it is holding it in shape vanishes. The bone and soft tissues have lost all their integrity, and basically his face falls off. Are you thinking dissimilar? asked Nightingale. Or a technique very like it, said Dr. Walid. Nightingale explained for my benefit that dissimilar was a magic spell that could change your appearance. Actually, he didn't use the word magic spell, but that's what it amounted to. Unfortunately, said Dr. Walid, it essentially moves the muscles and skin into new positions, and this can cause permanent damage. Never was a popular technique, said Nightingale. You can see why, said Dr. Walid, indicating the remains of Brandon Coopertown's face. Any signs that he was a practitioner? asked Dr. Nightingale. Dr. Walid produced a covered stainless steel tray. I knew you'd ask that, he said. So here's something I whipped out earlier. He lifted the cover to reveal a human brain. I'm no expert, but it didn't look like a healthy brain to me. It looked shrunken and pitted as if it had been left out in the sun to shrivel.
As you can see, said Dr. Walid, there's extensive degradation of the cerebral cortex and evidence of intracranial bleeding that we might associate with some form of degenerative condition if Inspector Nightingale and I were not already familiar with the true cause. He sliced it in half to show us the interior. It looked like a diseased cauliflower. And this, said Dr. Walid, is your brain on magic. Magic does that to your brain? I asked. No wonder nobody does it anymore. This is what happens if you overstep your limitations, said Nightingale. He turned to Dr. Walid. There wasn't any evidence of practice at his house. No books, no paraphernalia, no vestigium. Could someone have stolen his magic? I asked. Sucked it out of his brain? That's very unlikely, said Nightingale. It's almost impossible to steal another man's magic. Except at the point of death, said Dr. Walid. It's much more likely that our Mr. Coopertown did this to himself, said Nightingale. Then you're saying he wasn't wearing a mask during the first attack, I asked. It seems likely, said Nightingale. So his face was mashed up on the Tuesday, I said, which explains why he looks blotchy on the bus cameras, then he flies to America, stays three nights and comes back here, and all the time his face is, is essentially destroyed. Dr. Walid thought it through. That would be consistent with the injuries and the evidence of the beginnings of regrowth around some of the bone fragments. Must have been in some serious pain, I said. Not necessarily said Nightingale. One of the dangers of dissimilar is that it hides the pain. The practitioner can be quite unaware that he's injuring himself. But when his face was normal-looking, that was only because the magic was holding it together? Dr. Walid looked at Nightingale. Yes, said Nightingale. When you fall asleep, what happens to the spell? I asked. It would probably collapse said Nightingale, but he was so badly damaged that once the spell collapsed, his face would fall off. He'd have had to keep the spell up the whole time he was in America, I said. Are you telling me he didn't sleep for four days? Mm, seems a bit unlikely, said Dr. Walid. Do spells work like software? I asked. Nightingale gave me a blank look. Dr. Walid came to the rescue. In what way, he said. Could you persuade somebody's unconscious mind to maintain a spell, I asked. That way, the spell would stay running even when they were asleep. Mm, it's theoretically possible, but, but morality aside, I, I couldn't do it, said Nightingale. I don't think any human wizard could do it. Any human wizard? Okay... Dr. Walid and Nightingale were looking at me, and I realized they were already there and waiting for me to catch up. When I asked about ghosts, vampires, and werewolves, and you said I hadn't scratched the surface, you weren't joking, were you? Nightingale shook his head. I'm afraid not, he said. Sorry. Shit, I said. Dr. Walid smiled. I said exactly the same thing thirty years ago, he said. So whatever did this to poor old Mr. Coopertown was probably not human, I said. I wouldn't like to say for certain, said Dr. Walid, but that's the way to bet. Nightingale and I did what all good coppers do when faced with a spare moment in the middle of the day. We went looking for a pub. 
Just round the corner, we found the relentlessly upmarket Marquis of Queensbury looking a little bedraggled in the afternoon drizzle. Nightingale stood me a beer, and we sat down in a corner booth beneath a Victorian print of a bare-knuckle boxing match. How do you become a wizard? I asked. Nightingale shook his head. It's not like joining the CID, he said. You surprise me, I said. What is it like? It's an apprenticeship, he said. A commitment to the craft, to me and to your country. Do I have to call you Sifu? I got a smile at least. No, said Nightingale. You have to call me Master. Master, that's the tradition, said Nightingale. I said the word in my head and it kept on coming out. Master! Couldn't I call you Inspector instead? What makes you think I'm offering you a position? I took a pull from my pint and waited. Nightingale smiled again and sipped his own drink. Once you cross this particular Rubicon, there will be no going back, he said. And you can call me Inspector. I've just seen a man kill his wife and child, I said. If there's a rational reason for that, then I want to know what it is. If there's even a chance that he wasn't responsible for his actions, then I want to know about it, because that would mean we might be able to stop it happening again. That is not a good reason to take on this job, said Nightingale. Is there a good reason? I asked. I want in, sir, because I've got to know. Nightingale lifted his glass in salute. That's a better reason. So what happens now? I asked. Nothing happens now, said Nightingale. It's Sunday. But first thing tomorrow, we go and see the commissioner. <laughs> Good one, sir, I said. No, really, said Nightingale. He's the only person authorized to make the final decision. New Scotland Yard was once an ordinary office block that was leased by the Met in the 1960s. Since then, the interior of senior offices have been refitted several times. Most recently, during the 1990s, easily the worst decade for institutional decor since the 70s, which was why, I suppose, the anteroom to the commissioner's office was a bleak wilderness of laminated plywood and molded polyurethane chairs. Just to put visitors at their ease... Photographic portraits of the last six commissioners stared down from the walls. Sir Robert Mark, 1972 to 1977, looked particularly disapproving. I doubt he thought I was making a significant contribution. It's not too late to withdraw your application, said Nightingale. Yes, it was, but it didn't mean I wasn't wishing it wasn't. Typically, a constable only sits in the commissioner's anteroom when he's been very brave or very stupid, and I really couldn't tell which one applied to me. The commissioner only made us wait ten minutes before his secretary came and fetched us. His office was large and designed with the same lack of style as the rest of Scotland Yard, only with a layer of fake oak panelling on top. There's a portrait of the Queen on one wall, and another of the first commissioner, Sir Charles Rowan, on the other. I stood as close to parade ground attention as any London copper can get and nearly flinched when the commissioner offered me his hand to shake. Constable Grunt, he said. Your father was Richard Grunt, wasn't he? I have some of his records from when he was playing with Toby Hayes on vinyl, of course. 
He didn't wait for me to answer, but shook Nightingale's hand and waved us into our seats. He was another northerner who'd come up the hard way and done that stint in Northern Ireland, which appears to be obligatory for would-be commissioners of the Metropolitan Police. Presumably because violent sectarianism is thought to be character-building. He wore the uniform well and was judged by the rank and file as possibly not being a total muppet, which put him well ahead of some of his predecessors. This is an unexpected development, Inspector, said the Commissioner. There are some that will see this as an unnecessary step. Commissioner, said Nightingale carefully, I, I believe circumstances warrant a change in the arrangement. When I was first briefed about the nature of your section, I was led to believe it was merely a vestigial function, and that the... The Commissioner had to force the word out. That the... Magic was in decline and only posed a marginal threat to the Queen's peace. In fact, I definitely remember the word dwindle being bandied about by the Home Office. Eclipsed by science and technology was another phrase I heard a lot. Uh, the Home Office has never really understood that science and magic are not mutually exclusive, sir. The founder of my society provided proof enough of that. I believe there has been a slow but steady increase in magical activities. The magic's coming back, asked the Commissioner. Since the mid-sixties, said Nightingale. The sixties, said the Commissioner. Why am I not surprised? This is damned inconvenient. Any idea why? No, sir, said Nightingale. But then there never was any real consensus as to why it faded in the first place. Mm hmm. I've heard the word Ettersburg used in that context, said the Commissioner. For a moment there was a real pain on Nightingale's face. Ettersburg was part of it, certainly. The Commissioner blew out his cheeks and sighed. The murders in Covent Garden and Hampstead, these are connected? he asked. Yes, sir. You think the situation will get worse? Yes, sir. Enough to warrant breaking the agreement? It takes ten years to train an apprentice, sir, said Nightingale. It's better to have a spare, just in case something happens to me. The Commissioner gave a mirthless chuckle. Does he know what he's getting himself into? Does any copper? asked Nightingale. Very well, said the Commissioner. On your feet, son. We stood. Nightingale told me to raise my right hand and read me the oath. Do you, Peter Grant of Kentish Town, swear to be true to our sovereign queen and her heirs, and well and truly serve your master for the term of your apprenticehood, and ye shall be in obedience to all the wardens and clothing of that fellowship. In reverence of the secret of the said fellowship, ye shall keep and give no information to any man but of the said fellowship, and in all these things... Ye shall well and truly behave yourself, and secretly keep this oath to your power, so help you God, your sovereign, and the power that set the universe in motion. I swore, although I did almost stumble over the clothing bit. So help you God, said the Commissioner. Nightingale informed me that as his apprentice, I was required to lodge at his London residence in Russell Square. He told me the address and dropped me back at the Charing Cross section house. Leslie, help me pack. Shouldn't you be a Belgravia? I asked, doing murder team stuff. I've been told to take the day off, said Leslie. Compassionate, don't get on the media's radar, leave. That I can understand. 
A family annihilation involving charismatic rich people was going to be a news editor's dream story. Once they'd picked over the gruesome details, they could extend the mileage by asking what the tragic death of the Coopertown family told us about our society and how this tragedy was an indictment of the modern culture, secular humanism, political correctness, the situation in Palestine, delete where applicable. About the only thing that could improve the story would be the involvement of a good-looking, blonde, WPC out, I might add, unsupervised on a dangerous assignment. Questions would be asked. Answers would be ignored. Who's going to Los Angeles, I asked. Somebody would have to trace Brandon's movements in the States. A couple of sergeants I never got a chance to meet, she said. Only worked there a couple of days before you got me into trouble. You're his blue-eyed girl, I said. Seawell's not going to hold it against you. I still reckon you owe me, she said, as she picked up my bath towel and briskly folded it into a tightly packed cube. What do you want? I asked. Leslie asked if I was likely to get the evening off, and I said I could try. I don't want to be stuck here, she said. I want to go out. Where do you want to go? I asked and watched as she unfolded the towel and refolded it into a triangle shape. Anywhere but the pub, she said, and handed the towel to me. I managed to stuff it into my rucksack, but I had to unfold it first. What about a film, I asked. Mm, sounds good, she said, but it's got to be funny. Russell Square lies a kilometre north of Covent Garden, on the other side of the British Museum. According to Nightingale, it was at the heart of a literary and philosophical movement in the early years of last century. But I remember it because of an old horror movie about cannibals living in the underground system. The address was on the south side of the square where a row of Georgian terraces had survived. They were five stories high, counting the dormer conversions, with wrought iron railings defending steep drops into basement flats. The address I wanted had a noticeably grander flight of stairs than its neighbours, leading to double mahogany doors with brass fittings. Carved above the lintel were the words, Scientia Potestas Est. Science points east, I wondered. Science portentous, yes. Science protests too much. Scientific potatoes rule. Had I stumbled on the lair of dangerous plant geneticists? I hold my rucksack and two suitcases up to the landing. I press the brass doorbell, but I couldn't hear it ring through the thick doors. After a moment, they opened on their own. It might have been the traffic noise, but I swear I didn't hear a motor or any kind of mechanism at all. Toby whined and hid behind my legs. That's not creepy, I said. Not even in the slightest. I pulled my suitcase through the doors. The entrance lobby had a mosaic floor in the Roman manor and a wooden and glass booth that, while in no way resembling a ticket booth, indicated that there was an inside and an outside to the building and that one had better have permission if one wanted to proceed inside. Whatever this place was, it certainly wasn't Nightingale's private residence. Beyond the booth, flanked by two neoclassical pillars, was a marble statue of a man dressed in an academic gown and breeches. He cradled a mighty tome in one arm and a sextant in the other. 
His square face held an impression of implacable curiosity, and I knew his name even before I saw the plinth which read, Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, Let Newton be, and all was light. Nightingale was waiting for me by the statue. Welcome to the folly, he said, the official home of English magic since 1775. And your patron is Sir Isaac Newton, I asked. Nightingale grinned. He was our founder, and the first man to systemize the practice of magic. I was taught he invented modern science, I said. He did, said Nightingale. That's the nature of genius. Nightingale took me through a door into a rectangular atrium that dominated the center of the building. Above me were two rows of balconies, and an iron and glass Victorian dome formed the roof. Toby's claws clicked on a floor of polished cream-colored marble. It was very quiet, and for all that the place was spotless, I got a strong sense of abandonment. Through here is the big dining room, which we don't use anymore. The lounge and the smoking room, which we also don't use. Nightingale pointed to doors on the other side of the atrium. General library, lecture hall, downstairs are the kitchens, sculleries, and wine cellar. The back stairs, which are actually at the front, are over there. Coach house and mews are through the rear doors. How many people live here? I asked. Just the two of us. And Molly, said Nightingale. Toby suddenly crouched down at my feet and growled, a proper rat-in-the-kitchen growl that was all business. I looked over and saw a woman gliding towards us across the polished marble. She was slender and dressed like an Edwardian maid, complete with starched white bib apron over a full black skirt and white cotton blouse. Her face didn't fit her outfit, being too long and sharp-boned with black, almond-shaped eyes. Despite her mob cap, she wore her hair loose, a black curtain that fell to her waist. She instantly gave me the creeps. And not just because I've seen too many Japanese horror films. This is Molly, said Nightingale. She does for us. Does what? Whatever needs doing, said Nightingale. Molly lowered her eyes and did an awkward little dip that might have been a curtsy or a bow. When Toby growled again, Molly snarled back, showing disturbingly sharp teeth. Molly, said Nightingale sharply. Molly demurely covered her mouth with her hand, turned, and went gliding back the way she came. Toby gave a little self-satisfied snort that didn't fool anyone but himself. "'And she is?' I asked. "'Indispensable,' said Nightingale. Before we went up, Nightingale led me over to an alcove set in the north wall. There, resting on a pedestal like a household god, was a sealed museum case containing a copy of a leather-bound book— it was open to the title page. I leaned over and read, Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Artes Magisis Autore I. S. Newton. So not content with kicking off the scientific revolution, our boy Isaac invented magic, I asked. Not invented, said Nightingale, but he did codify its basic principles, made it somewhat less hit and miss. Magic and science, I said. <laughs> what did he do for an encore? Uh, reform the royal mint and save the country from bankruptcy, said Nightingale. Apparently there were two main staircases. We took the east one up to the first of the colonnaded balconies and a confusion of wood panelling and white dust sheets. 
Two more flights of stairs led us to a second-story hallway lined with heavy wooden doors. He opened one, seemingly at random, and ushered me in. This is yours, he said. It was twice the size of my room at the section house, with good proportions and a high ceiling. A brass double bed was shoved into one corner, a Narnia wardrobe in the other, and a writing desk was between them where it could catch the light from one of the two sash windows. Bookshelves covered two entire walls, empty except for what turned out on later inspection to be a complete set of the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, published in 1913, a battered first edition of Brave New World, and a Bible. What had obviously once been an open fireplace had been replaced with a gas fire surrounded by ceramic green tiles. The reading lamp on the desk had a faux Japanese print shade, and beside it was a bakelite phone that had to be older than my father. There was a smell of dust and freshly applied furniture polish, and I guessed that this room had dreamed the last fifty years away under the white dust sheets. When you're ready, meet me downstairs, said Nightingale, and make sure you're presentable. I knew what that was about, so I tried to stretch it, but it didn't take me long to unpack. Strictly speaking, it wasn't our job to pick up grieving parents from the airport, leaving aside the fact that, officially, this was Westminster murder team's case. It was extremely unlikely that August Coopertown's parents had any information pertinent to the murder. It sounds callous, but detectives had better things to do than impromptu counselling for bereaved relatives. That's what family liaison officers are for. Nightingale didn't see it that way, which is why he and I were standing at the arrivals barrier at Heathrow when Mr. and Mrs. Fisher cleared the customs. I was the one holding the cardboard sign. They weren't what I expected. The dad was short and balding and the mum was mousy-haired and tubby. Nightingale introduced himself in what I assumed was Danish and told me to carry the bags to the jag, which I was glad to do. Ask any police officer what the worst part of the job is, and they will always say, breaking bad news to relatives. But this is not the truth. The worst part is staying in the room after you've broken the news so that you're forced to be there when someone's life disintegrates around them. Some people say it doesn't bother them. Such people are not to be trusted. The Fishers had obviously Googled for the closest hotel to their daughter's house, and had thus booked themselves into a brick-built combination prison block stroke petrol station on Haverstock Hill, whose lobby was shop-worn, fussy, and as welcoming as a job centre. I doubt the Fishers noticed, but I could see that Nightingale didn't think it was good enough, and for a moment I thought he was going to offer to put them up at the folly. Then he sighed and told me to put the luggage down by the reception desk. I'll deal with things from here, he said, and sent me home. I said goodbye to the fishes and walked out of their lives as fast as I could go. After that, I really didn't want to go out, but Leslie persuaded me. You can't just come to a stop because bad things happen, she said. Besides, you owe me a night out. I didn't argue. After all, the good thing about the West End is that there's always somewhere to see a film. We started at the Prince Charles, but they were showing Twelve Monkeys downstairs, and the Kurosawa double bill upstairs. So we went round the corner to the Leicester Square Voyage.
The Voyage is a miniature village version of a multiplex with eight screens, of which at least two are larger than your average plasma screen television. Normally, I like a certain amount of gratuitous violence in my cinema, but I let Leslie persuade me that Sherbet Lemons, this month's feel-good rom-com with Alison Tyke and Dennis Carter, was just the film to cheer us up. For all I know, it might even have worked had we had the chance to see it. The foyer was dominated by the concessions counter, which stretched across its breadth. There were eight transaction points, each with its own till nestled amid a confusion of popcorn dispensers, hot dog grills, and cardboard display signs offering kids' boxes tied to the latest blockbuster. Above each transaction point was a widescreen LCD, which displayed the films on offer, their age classification, when they were on, how long we had until they started, and how many seats were left in each auditorium. At regular intervals, the screen would switch to display a trailer, an advert for mechanically recovered meat, or just to tell you what a good time you were having at the Voyage chain of cinemas. That evening, there was only one transaction point open, and the queue of approximately fifteen stood waiting to be served. We joined the queue behind a well-dressed middle-aged woman with about four girls aged between nine and eleven. It didn't bother Leslie and me. If you learn one thing as a copper, it's how to wait. The follow-up investigation revealed that the single member of staff manning the transaction point that shift was a 23-year-old Sri Lankan refugee named Sadun Ranatunga, one of four people staffing the Leicester Square Voyage that evening. At the time of the incident, two were cleaning out screens one and three in preparation for the next showing. One was on duty to take tickets, and the last was dealing with a particularly unpleasant spillage in the gents. Because Mr. Ranatunga was selling both tickets and popcorn, it took him at least 15 minutes to wear down the queue to the point where the woman in front of us began to get her hopes up. Her accompanying children, who up till then had been amusing themselves elsewhere, flocked back to the queue so they could get their bid for sweets in early. She was impressively firm, making it clear that the ration was to be one drink and one serving of popcorn or a packet of sweets. No exception. I don't care what Priscilla's mother let you have when she took you out. No, you can't have nachos. What are nachos anyway? Behave or you won't get anything. The tipping point came, according to Charing Cross CID, when the couple next in line asked for a concessionary price. The couple, who were identified as Nicola Fabroni and Eugenio Turco, a pair of heroin addicts from Naples, who had come to London to dry out. Had leaflets from the Piccadilly English School, which they claimed made them bona fide students. As recently as the week before, Mr. Ranatunga would have let it slide, but that afternoon his manager had informed him that head office had declared that Leicester Square Voyage had been selling far too many concessionary tickets, and that in future staff should decline any request that seemed suspect. In compliance with this directive. Mr. Ranatunga regretfully informed Turco and Fabroni that they would have to pay the full price. This did not go down well with the couple, who had budgeted their evening on the basis they could lig into the cinema. They remonstrated with Mr. Ranatunga, who was adamant in his refusal. But since both parties were doing this in their second language, it used up valuable time. Finally, and with ill grace, Turco and Fabroni paid the full price with a pair of grubby five-pound notes and a handful of ten-pence pieces. Apparently, Leslie had kept her copper's eye on the Italians right from the start, while I, easily distracted, remember, had been wondering whether I could sneak Leslie back to my room at the Folly.
That's why it came as a bit of a surprise when the respectable middle-class woman in the good coat, standing in front of us, lunged across the counter and tried to strangle Mr. Ranatunga to death. Her name was Celia Munro, resident of Finchley, who had brought her daughters Georgina and Antonia and their two friends, Jennifer and Alex, to the West End as a special treat. The dispute started when Ms. Munro proffered five Voyager Film Fund vouchers as part payment for the tickets. Mr. Ranatunga regretfully indicated that the vouchers were not valid at this particular cinema. Ms. Munro asked why this might be so, but Mr. Ranatunga was unable to say, since his management had never bothered to brief him on the promotion in the first place. Ms. Munro expressed her dissatisfaction with the degree of forcefulness which surprised Mr. Ranatunga, Leslie, and me, and, according to her later statement, Ms. Munro herself. It was at this point that Leslie and I decided to intervene, but we hadn't even had time to step forward and ask what the problem was when Ms. Munro made her move. It happened very quickly, and as is often the case with unexpected events, took us a few moments to register what was going on. Fortunately, we were both sufficiently street-seasoned not to freeze, and we each grabbed a shoulder and tried to drag the woman off poor Mr. Ranatunga. Her grip on his neck was so strong that Mr. Ranatunga was pulled back across the counter as well. By now, one of the girls was hysterical, and apparently the eldest, Antonia, started beating me across the back with her fists, but I didn't feel it at the time. Miss Munro's lips were drawn in a rictus of rage, tendons standing out on her neck and forearms. Mr. Ranatunga's face was darkening, his lips turning blue. Leslie got her thumb into the pressure point on Ms. Munro's wrist and she let go in such a hurry that we both went sprawling backwards onto the floor. She landed on top of me, so I tried to pin her arms, but not before she got a vicious elbow into my ribs. I used my weight and strength advantage to tip her off and roll her face down onto the popcorn-smelling carpet. Of course, I didn't have my cuffs with me, so I had to hold her with both hands behind her back. Legally speaking... Once you've laid hands on a suspect, you pretty much have to arrest them. I gave her the caution, and she went limp. I looked over at Leslie, who had not only tended to the injured man, but had corralled the children and called the incident to Charing Cross. If I let you up, I said, are you going to behave? Ms. Monroe nodded. I let her roll over and sit up where she was. I just wanted to go to the pictures, she said. When I was young, you just went to the local Odeon and said, A ticket, please, and you gave them money, and they gave you a ticket. When did that become so complicated? When did these disgusting nachos arrive? I mean, what the fuck is a nacho anyway? One of the girls giggled nervously at the profanity. Leslie was writing in her official notebook. You know in the caution when it says anything that you do say may be used in evidence against you? Well, this is what they're talking about. Is that boy hurt? She looked at me for reassurance. I don't know what happened. I, I, I just wanted to talk to someone who could speak English properly. I went on holiday to Bavaria last summer and everyone spoke English really well. I bring my kids down to the West End and everyone's foreign and I don't understand a word they're saying. I suspect some total bastard at the CPS could parlay that into a racially aggravated crime. I caught Leslie's eye, and she sighed, but stopped taking notes. I just wanted to go to the pictures, repeated Ms. Munro. 
Salvation arrived in the form of Inspector Neblet, who took one look at us and said, I just can't let you two out of my sight, can I? He didn't fool me. I knew he'd been rehearsing that line the whole way over. Nonetheless, we were all troops back to the Nick to complete the arrest and do the paperwork. And that's three hours of my life I won't get back in a hurry. We ended up, like all coppers on overtime, in the canteen, where we drank tea and filled in forms. There's the case progression unit when you need it, said Leslie. Told you we should have seen Seven Samurai, I said. Did you think there was something odd about the whole thing? asked Leslie. Odd how? You know, said Leslie, middle-aged woman suddenly goes bonkers and attacks someone in a cinema in front of her children. Are you sure you didn't feel any... She waved her fingers. I wasn't paying attention, I said. Looking back, I thought there might have been something. A flash of violence and laughter, but it felt suspiciously retrospective. A memory I'd conjured up after the fact. Mr. Munro arrived with a brief and the parents of the other children, around nine, and his wife was released on police bail less than an hour later. Considerably earlier than Leslie and I finished the paperwork. I was too knackered by then to try anything clever, so I said goodbye and caught a lift in the fast response car back to Russell Square. I had a brand new set of keys, including one for the tradesman's entrance round the back. That way I didn't have to sneak past the disapproving gaze of Sir Isaac. The main atrium was dimly lit, but as I climbed the first flight of stairs, I thought I saw a pale figure gliding across the floor. You know you're staying somewhere posh when the breakfast room is a completely different room, and not the same place where you had your dinner only dressed up with different china. It faced southeast to catch the thin January light, and looked out over the coach house and mews. Despite the fact that only Nightingale and I were eating, all the tables had been laid and bore laundry white tablecloths. You could have seated fifty people in there. Likewise, the serving table sported a line of silver-plated salvers with kippers, eggs, bacon, black pudding, and a bowl full of rice, peas, and flaked haddock that Nightingale identified as kedgeri. He seemed as taken aback by the amount of food as I was. I think Molly may have become a little over-enthusiastic, he said, and helped himself to the kedgeri. I had a bit of everything, and Toby got some sausages, some black pudding, and a bowl of water. There's no way we can eat all this, I said. What's she going to do with the leftovers? I learned not to ask these questions, said Nightingale. Why's that? Because I'm not sure I want to know the answers, he said. My first proper lesson in magic took place in one of the labs at the back of the first floor. The other labs had once been used for research projects, but this one was for teaching, and indeed it looked just like a school chemistry lab. There were waist-high benches with gas taps for Bunsen burners placed at regular intervals and white porcelain basins sunk into the varnished wooden tops. There was even a poster of the periodic table on the wall. Missing, I noticed, all the elements discovered after World War II. But first we need to fill up a sink, said Nightingale. He selected one and turned the tap at the base of its long, swan-necked spout. There was a distant knocking sound. The black swan neck shook, gurgled, and then coughed up a gout of brown water. We both took a step backwards. 
How long since you used this place? I asked. The knocking grew louder, faster, and then water poured from the spout. Dirty at first, but then clear. The knocking faded away. Nightingale put the plug in and let the basin fill three quarters before closing the tap. When you're attempting this spell, he said, always have a basin of water ready as a safety precaution. Are we going to make fire? Only if you do it wrong, said Nightingale. I'm going to make a demonstration and you must pay close attention, as you did when searching for Vestigia. Do you understand? Vestigia, I said. Got it. Nightingale held out his right hand, palm upwards, and made a fist. Watch my hand, he said, and opened his fingers. Suddenly, floating a few centimeters above his palm, was a ball of light. Bright, but not so bright that I couldn't stare at it. Nightingale closed his fingers, and the orb vanished. Again? he asked. Up until then, I think a bit of me had been waiting for the rational explanation. But when I saw how casually Nightingale produced that wear-light, I realized that I had the rational explanation. Magic worked. The next question, of course, was, how did it work? Again, I said. He opened his hand and the light appeared. The source seemed to be the size of a golf ball with a smooth, pearlescent surface. I leaned forward, but I couldn't tell whether the light emanated from inside the globe or from its skin. Nightingale closed his palm. Be careful, he said. You don't want to damage your eyes. I blinked and saw purple blotches. He was right. I'd been fooled by the soft quality of the light into staring too long. I splashed some water into my eyes. Ready to go again? asked Nightingale. Try and focus on the sensation as I do it. You, you should feel something. Something? I asked. Magic is like music, said Nightingale. Everyone hears it differently. The technical term we use is forma. But um, that's no more helpful than something, is it? Can I close my eyes? I asked. By all means, said Nightingale. I did feel a something, like a catch in the silence at the moments of creation. We repeated the exercise until I was sure I wasn't imagining it. Nightingale asked me if I had any questions. I asked him what the spell was called. Colloquially, it's known as a were-light, he said. Can you do underwater? I asked. Nightingale plunged his hand into the sink and, despite the awkward angle, demonstrated forming a were-light without any apparent difficulty. So it's not a process of oxidization, is it? I said. Focus, said Nightingale. Magic first, science later. I tried to focus, but on what? In a minute, said Nightingale, I'm going to ask you to open your hand in the same manner as I have demonstrated. As you open your hand, I want you to make a shape in your mind that conforms to what you sensed when I created my wear light. Think of it as a key that opens a door. Do you understand? Hand, I said. Shape, key, lock, door. Precisely, said Nightingale. Start now. I took a deep breath, extended my arm, and opened my fist. Nothing happened. Nightingale didn't laugh, but I would have preferred it if he had. I took another deep breath, tried to shape my mind, whatever that meant, and opened my hand again. Let me demonstrate again, said Nightingale, and then you follow. He created the wear light. I felt for the shape of the former and tried to replicate it. 
I still failed to create my own light, but this time I thought I felt an echo of the former in my mind, like a snatch of music from a passing car. We repeated the exercise several times until I was certain I knew what the shape of the former was, but I couldn't find the shape in my own mind. The process must have been familiar to Nightingale because he could tell what stage I was at. Practice this for another two hours, he said. Then we'll stop for lunch, and then two more hours after that. Then you can have the evening off. Just do this, I asked. No learning of ancient languages or magic theory. This is the first step, said Nightingale. If you can't master this, then everything else is irrelevant. So this is a test? That's what an apprenticeship is, said Nightingale. Once you've mastered this former, then I can promise you plenty of study. Latin, of course, Greek, Arabic, technical German, not to mention you'll be taking over my legwork on all my cases. Good, I said. Now I'm incentivized. Nightingale laughed and left me to it. Chapter 4 By the River There are some things you don't want to be doing less than ten minutes after waking up, and doing a ton down the Great West Road is one of them. Even at three in the morning, with the spinner on and a siren to clear the way, and the roads as empty of traffic as London's roads ever get, I was hanging onto the door straps and trying not to think about the fact that the Jag, with its many vintage qualities of style and craftsmanship, was sadly lacking in the airbag and modern crumple zone department. Have you fixed the radio yet? asked Nightingale. At some point, the Jag had been fitted with a modern radio set, which Nightingale cheerfully admitted he didn't know how to use. I'd managed to get it turned on, but got distracted when Nightingale put us round the Hogarth roundabout fast enough to smack my head against the side window. I took advantage of a relatively straight bit of road to key into Richmond Borough Command, which was where Nightingale said the trouble was. We caught the tail end of a report delivered in the slightly strangulated tone adopted by someone who's desperately trying to sound like they're not panicking. It was something about geese. Tango Whiskey 3 from Tango Whiskey 1. Say again? TW1 would be the Richmond duty inspector in the local control room. TW3 would be one of the borough's incident response vehicles. Tango Whiskey 1 from Tango Whiskey 3. We're down by the White Swan being attacked by the bloody geese. White Swan, I asked. It's a pub in Twickenham, said Nightingale. By the bridge to Eel Pie Island. Eel Pie Island I knew to be a collection of boatyards and houses on a river islet barely 500 metres long. The Rolling Stones had once played a gig there, and so had my father. That's where I knew it from. And the geese? I asked. Better than watchdogs, said Nightingale. Ask the Romans. TW1 wasn't interested in the geese. She wanted to know about the crime. There'd been multiple 999 calls 20 minutes earlier reporting a breach of the peace and possible fighting between groups of youths, which, in my experience, could turn out to be anything from a hen night gone wrong to foxes turning over rubbish bins. TW bins. TW3 reported seeing a group of IC1 males dressed in jeans and donkey jackets fighting with an unknown number of IC3 females on Riverside Road. IC1 is the identification code for white people. IC3 is black people, and if you're wondering, I tend to jump between IC3 and IC6, Arabic or North African. It depends on how much sun I've caught recently. 
Black versus white was unusual but not impossible, but I'd never heard of boys versus girls before, and neither had TW1 who wanted clarification. Uh, female, reported TW3, definitely female, and one of them is stark naked. I was afraid of that, said Nightingale. Afraid of what? I asked. There was a rush of emptiness outside the jag as we shot across Chiswick Bridge. Upstream of Chiswick, the Thames throws a loop northwards round Kew Gardens, and we were cutting across the base and aiming for Richmond Bridge. There's an important shrine nearby, said Nightingale. I think the boys might have been after that. When he said shrine, I guessed he wasn't talking about the rugby stadium. And the girls are defending the shrine? Something like that, said Nightingale. He was a superb driver with a level of concentration that I always find a comfort at high speed, but even Nightingale had to slow down when the streets narrowed. Like a lot of London, Richmond Town Centre had been laid out back when town planning was something that happened to other people. Tango Whiskey 1 from Tango Whiskey 4. I'm on Church Lane by the river. I've got five or six IC1 males climbing into a boat in pursuit. TW4 would be Richmond's second incident response vehicle meaning that just about every available body was now dealing. TW3 reported that there was no sign of the IC3 females, naked or otherwise, but that they could see a boat that was heading for the opposite bank. Call them and tell them we're on our way, said Nightingale. What's our call sign, I asked. Zulu 1, he said. I keyed the microphone. Tango Whiskey 1 from Zulu 1, show us dealing. There was a bit of a pause while TW1 digested this. I wondered if the duty inspector knew who we were. Zulu 1 from Tango Whiskey 1. Copy that. The inspector had sounded flat, neutral. She knew who we were, all right. Be advised that the suspects seem to have crossed the river and may now be on the south bank. I tried to acknowledge, but it came out strangulated when Nightingale put us the wrong way down the one-way system on George Street which you're not supposed to do even with your lights and siren on, not least because of the risk of coming face to face with something heavy and designed to clean streets in the middle of the night. I braced my legs in the footwell as our headlights lit up a two-meter cherry-red Valentine's heart in the window of boots. TW3 called in. Be advised that the suspect boat is now on fire. I can see people jumping off. Knighting up put his foot down, but mercifully, we turned a corner and were back going the right way down the street. On the right was Richmond Bridge, but Nightingale went straight across the mini roundabout and down the road that ran beside the Thames. We heard TW1 calling in the London Fire Brigade boat, twenty minutes away at least. Nightingale threw the jag into a right-hand turn that I hadn't even noticed, and suddenly we were racing through the pitch darkness, jolting along a track with gravel pinging off the bottom of the chassis. A sudden turn to the left, and we were running right along the water's edge, following the river as it curved north again. A line of cabin cruisers was moored close to the opposite bank, and beyond them I could see yellow flames, our burning boat. This was no modern pleasure cruiser. It looked more like a half-length narrowboat, the kind owned by homeopathic entrepreneurs that was supposed to have hand-painted gunnels and a cat asleep on the roof. If this boat had a cat, though, I hoped it could swim, because it was on fire from stem to stern. There, said Nightingale. I looked ahead and saw figures caught on the fringes of our headlights. I called into TW1. Confirmed suspects on the south bank near... Where the hell are we? Hamilton's Ferry, said Nightingale, and I passed it on. 
Nightingale braked the jag, and we pulled up opposite the burning boat. There were torches in the glove compartment, vulcanized monstrosities with old-fashioned filament bulbs. Mine proved reassuringly heavy in the hand when Nightingale and I stepped out into the darkness. I set my light along the path, but the suspects, assuming that's what they were, had scarpered. Nightingale seemed much more interested in the river than the path. I used my torch to check the water around the narrowboat, which I saw was drifting slowly downstream, but there was nobody in the water.、Uh, sh sh shouldn't we check? There's no one left on board. I asked. There'd better be no one on that boat," said Nightingale loudly, as if speaking to the river rather than to me. And I want that fire put out right now," he said. I heard a giggle out of the darkness. I pointed my torch in the direction it came from, but there was nothing to see except the boats moored on the far bank. I turned to see the burning boat being sucked down into the river, as if someone had grabbed hold of the bottom and yanked it under the surface. The last of the flames guttered out, and then, like an escaping rubber duck, it bobbed up to the surface, the fire entirely doused. What did that? I asked. River spirits," said Nightingale. Stay here while I check further up the bank. I heard another laugh from across the water. Then, very clearly, and not three meters from where I was standing, someone, definitely a woman and a Londoner, said, "Oh shit!" Then came the sound of metal being torn. I ran over. At that point, the bank was a muddy slope held together with tree roots and bits of stone reinforcements. As I got close, I heard a splash and got my torch on just in time to see the sleek, curved shape vanish beneath the surface. I might have thought it was an otter, if I was stupid enough to think otters were hairless and grew as big as a man. Just below my feet was a square cage made out of chicken wire, part of an anti-erosion project I learned later. One side of which had been torn open. Nightingale returned empty-handed and said that we might as well wait for the fireboat to come out and take the remains of the narrowboat under tow. I asked him if there was such a thing as mermaids. That wasn't a mermaid, he said. So there are such things as mermaids, I said. Focus, Peter, he said. One thing at a time. Was that a river spirit? I asked. Genii locorum, he said. The spirit of a place, a goddess of the river, if you like, although not the goddess of Thames herself, Nightingale explained, because her taking a direct part in any agro would be a violation of the agreement. I asked whether this was the same agreement as the agreement or a different agreement entirely. There are a number of agreements, said Nightingale. A great deal of what we do is making sure everyone keeps to them. There's a goddess of the river, I said. Yes, Mother Thames, he said patiently. And there's a god of the river, Father Thames. Are they related? I said. No, he said. And that's part of the problem. Are they really gods?、Uh, I never worry about the theological questions," said Nightingale. "They exist. They have power, and they can breach the Queen's peace. That makes them a police matter." A searchlight stabbed out of the darkness and swept over the river once, twice, before swinging back to fix on the remains of the narrow boat. The London Fire Brigade had arrived. I smelled diesel exhaust as the fireboat gingerly manoeuvred alongside figures in yellow helmets, waiting with hoses and boat hooks. The searchlight revealed that the superstructure had been completely gutted by the fire, but I could see that the hull had been painted red with black trim. I could hear the firemen chatting to each other as they boarded and made the narrow boat safe.
It was all reassuringly mundane, which brought me to another thought. Nightingale and I had scrambled out of bed, into the jag, and headed west, before there was any indication that this was nothing more than the tail end of an average Friday night. How did you know it was our shout? I asked. I have my sources, said Nightingale. One of Richmond's IRVs arrived with the duty inspector on board, and we all indulged in a bit of bureaucratic strutting to establish our respective bona fides. Richmond won on points, but only because one of them had a flask full of coffee. Nightingale briefed the locals. It was a gang thing, he said. Some IC1 youths, no doubt drunk, had stolen a boat, sailed down from beyond Teddington Lock, and picked a fight with a local group of IC3 youths, some of whom were female. When they tried to escape, the Teddington gang had managed accidentally to set their boats on fire and abandoned ship and escaped on foot down the Thames pathway. Everyone nodded their head. It sounded like a typical Friday night in the big city. Nightingale said he was sure nobody had drowned, but the Richmond duty inspector decided to call in a search and rescue team just in case. Then, our two inspectors having marked their respective trees... We went our separate ways. We drove back up to Richmond, but stopped well short of the bridge. Dawn was at least an hour away, but as I followed Nightingale through an eye, but the Richmond duty inspector decided to call in a search and rescue team just in case. Then, our two inspectors having marked their respective trees, we went our separate ways. We drove back up to Richmond, but stopped well short of the bridge. Dawn was at least an hour away. But as I followed Nightingale through an iron gate, I could see that the road we were on cut through a municipal gardens that sloped down to the river. There was an orange glow ahead of us. A hurricane lantern hung on the lower branches of a plane tree, and it illuminated a row of red brick arches built into the revetment that supported the roadway. Inside these artificial caves I glimpsed sleeping bags, cardboard boxes, and old newspaper. I'm just going to have a chat with this troll, said Nightingale. Uh, Sir, I said, I, I think we're supposed to call them rough sleepers. Not this one we don't, said Nightingale. He's a troll. I saw movement in the shadow of one of the arches. A pale face, ragged hair, layers of old clothes against the winter cold. It looked like a rough sleeper to me. A troll? <laughs> really, I said. His name's Nathaniel said Nightingale. He used to sleep under Hungerford Bridge. Why did he move? I asked. Apparently he wanted to live in the suburbs. Suburban troll, I thought. Why not? This is your snout, isn't it? I said. He tipped you off. A policeman is only as good as his informants, said Nightingale. I didn't tell him that these days they were supposed to be referred to as covert human intelligence sources. Stay back a bit, he said. He doesn't hear you yet. Nathaniel ducked back into his lair as Nightingale approached and crouched politely at the threshold of the troll's cave. I stamped my feet and blew on my fingers. I'd been sensible enough to grab my uniform jumper, but even with that on under my jacket, three hours by the river in February was edging me into brass monkey's territory. If I hadn't been so busy jamming my hands into my armpits, I might have noticed much sooner that I was being watched. Actually, if I hadn't spent the last couple of weeks trying to separate vestigium from ordinary random paranoia, I wouldn't have noticed at all. 
It started as a flush, like embarrassment, like the time of the year eight disco when Rona Tang marched across the no man's land of the dance floor and informed me, in no uncertain terms, that Fumi Ajayi wanted me to dance with her. And there was no way I was going to dance with the conspiracy of teenage girls watching me while I did it. It was the same scrutiny, defiant, mocking, curious. I checked behind myself first, as you do, but I could see nothing but sodium streetlights up the road. I thought I felt a puff of warm breath against my cheek, a sensation like sunlight, mown grass and singed hair. I turned to stare out over the river, and for a moment I thought I saw movement, a, a face, something. Seen something? asked Nightingale, making me jump. Jesus Christ, I said. No, not on this river, said Nightingale. Not even Blake thought that was possible. We returned to the jag and the fickle embrace of its 1960s heating system. As we returned through Richmond Town Centre, the right way around the one-way system this time, I asked Nightingale whether Nathaniel the Troll had been helpful. He confirmed what we suspected, he said that the boys in the boat had been followers of Father Thames, had come downstream to raid the shrine at Eel Pie Island, and been caught by the followers of Mother Thames. They were doubtless well tanked up and probably did set their own fire while trying to make their escape. Downstream, the Thames was the sovereign domain of Mother Thames. Upstream, it belonged to Father Thames. The dividing line was at Teddington Lock, two kilometres downstream from Eel Pie Island. So you think Father Thames is making a grab for turf, I asked. It made these gods sound like drug dealers. Traffic was noticeably heavier heading back. London was waking up. It's hardly surprising that the spirits of a locality would exhibit territoriality, said Nightingale. In any case, I think you might have a unique insight into this problem. I want you to go and have a word with Mother Thames. And what do me and my unique insight say to Mrs. Thames? Find out what the problem is and see if you can find an amicable solution, said Nightingale. And if I can't? Then I want you to remind her that whatever some people may think, the Queen's peace extends to the whole kingdom. Nobody got to drive the jag except Nightingale, which was understandable. If I had a car like that, I wouldn't let anyone else drive it either. However, I did have access to a ten-year-old Ford Escort in electric blue, which had ex-Panda car written all over it. Nightingale shopped at the same used car showroom as Leslie. You can always tell an old cop car, because however hard you scrub, it always smells of old cop. Shoreditch, Whitechapel, Wapping, the old and the new East End were mashed up together by money and intransigence. Mother Thames lived east of the White Tower, in a converted warehouse just short of the Shadwell Basin. It was just the other side of the slipway from the prospect of Whitby, an ancient pub that was a legendary jazz venue back in the day. My dad had sat in there with Johnny Keating, but managed, with his finely tuned ability to sabotage his own career, to miss performing with Lita Rosa. I think they got Ronnie Hughes to replace him. To the main roads, the warehouse showed a blind face of London brick pierced by modern windows. But on the Thames side, the old loading wharves had been converted into a car park. I parked up between an orange Citroen Picasso 
and a fire-brick red Jaguar XF with an Urban Dance FM sticker on the windscreen. As I stepped out, I had the clearest sense of vestigia so far. A sudden smell of pepper and seawater, as quick and as shocking as the scream of a gull. Hardly surprising since the warehouse had once been part of the port of London, the busiest port in the world. A bitterly cold wind was sweeping up the Thames, so I hurried for the entrance lobby. Someone somewhere was playing music with the bass turned up to health and safety violating levels. The melody, assuming there was one, wasn't audible, but I could hear the bass line in my chest. Suddenly, above it, there was a trill of feminine laughter, wicked and gossipy. The neo-Victorian lobby was guarded by a top-of-the-line entry phone. I pressed the number Nightingale had given me and waited. I was about to try the number again when I heard the slap of flip-flops on tile approaching the door from the other side. Then it opened to reveal a young black woman with cat-shaped eyes, wearing a black T-shirt that was many sizes too big for her with the words, We Run Tings, printed on the front. Yeah, she said. Would you want... Uh, I'm Detective Constable Grant, I said. I'm here to see Mrs. Thames. The girl looked me up and down, and having judged me against some theoretical standard, folded her arms across her breasts and glared at me. So? she asked. Nightingale sent me, I said. The girl sighed and turned to yell down the communal hallway. It's some geezer here says he's from the Wizards. Printed on the back of her T-shirt was Ting's Naran Wee. Let him in, called a voice from deep inside the building. It had a soft but distinctive Nigerian accent. You better come in, said the girl, and stood aside. What's your name? I asked. My name's Beverly Brooke, she said, and cocked her head as I walked past. Pleased to meet you, Beverly, I said. It was hot inside the building. Tropical, almost humid, and sweat prickled on my face and back. I saw the front doors in the communal corridor were wide open and the heavy bass beat came floating down the wrought iron staircase that linked the floors. Either this was the most neighborly block of flats in English history, or Mother Thames controlled the whole building. Beverly led me into a ground floor flat and I tried to keep my eyes off the long legs that emerged slender and brown below the hem of the T-shirt. It was even hotter inside the flat proper, and I recognized the smell of palm oil and cassava leaf. I knew exactly the style of home I was in from the walls, painted hint of peach, to the kitchen full of rice and chicken and Morrison's own custard cream biscuits. We stopped at the threshold of the living room. Beverly beckoned me down so she could murmur in my ear. You show some respect now. I breathed in cooked hair and cocoa butter. It was like being 16 again. During the 1990s, when the architect who built this place had been commissioned, he had been told that he was designing luxury apartments for thrusting young professionals. No doubt he envisaged power suits, braces, and people who would furnish their home with the bleak, minimalist style of a Scandinavian detective novel. 
in his worst nightmare, he probably never considered the idea that the owner would use the generous proportions of the living room as an excuse to cram in at least four World of Leather three-piece suites, not to mention a plasma television currently showing football with the muton, and a huge plant in a pot, which I recognised with a start as being a mangrove tree. An actual mangrove tree, whose knobbly need roots spilled over the edges of the pot and had gone questing through the shag pile carpets. I looked up and saw the topmost branches had thrust up through the ceiling. I could see where the white plaster had flaked away to reveal the pine joists. Arrayed on the leather sofa was as fine a collection of middle-aged African women as you'd find in a Pentecostal church, all of whom gave me the same once-over that Beverly had. Seated incongruously among them was a skinny white woman in a pink cashmere twin set and pearls, looking as perfectly at home as if she'd wandered in on her way into town and never left. I noticed that the heat wasn't bothering her. She gave me a friendly nod. But none of this was important, because also in the room was the goddess of the River Thames. She sat throned on the finest of the executive armchairs. Her hair was braided and threaded with black cotton and tipped with gold, so that it stood above her brow like a crown. Her face was round and unlined, her skin as smooth and perfect as a child, her lips full and very dark. She had the same black, cat-shaped eyes as Beverly. Her blouse and wrap skirt were made from the finest gold Austrian lace. The neckline picked out in silver and scarlet, wide enough to display one smooth, plump shoulder and the generous upper slopes of her breasts. One beautifully manicured hand rested on a side table, at the foot of which stood burlap sacks and little wooden crates. As I stepped closer... I could smell salt water in the coffee, diesel and bananas, chocolate and fish guts. I didn't need Nightingale to tell me I was sensing something supernatural, a glamour so strong it was like being washed away with the tide. In her presence, I found nothing strange in the fact that the goddess of the river was Nigerian. So, you have a wizard's boy, said Mama Thames. I thought there was an agreement. I found my voice. I believe it was more of an arrangement. I was fighting the urge to fling myself to my knees before her and put my face in her breasts and go, blubby, blubby, blubby. When she offered me a seat, I was so hard, it was painful to sit down. I caught Beverly snickering behind her hand. So did Mama Thames, who sent the teenager scuttling for the kitchen. This I know for a fact. The reason African women have children is so that there's someone else to do the housework. Would you like some tea? Said Mama Thames. I declined politely. Nightingale had been very specific. Don't eat or drink anything under her roof. Do that, he said, and she'll have her hooks in you. My mum would have taken such a refusal as an insult, but Mama Thames just inclined her head graciously. Perhaps this, too, was all part of the arrangement. Your master, she said. He is well? Yes, ma'am, I said. He does seem to get better as he gets older, does our master Nightingale, she said. Before I could ask what she meant, she had asked after my parents. Your mother is a fuller, yes? She asked. 
from Sierra Leone, I said. And your father no longer plays, I believe. You know my father? No, she said, giving me a knowing smile. Only in the sense that all the musicians of London belong to me, especially the jazz and blues men. It's a river thing. Are you on speaking terms with the Mississippi, then? I asked. My father always swore that jazz, like blues, was born in the muddy waters of the Mississippi. My mother swore that it came from the bottle, like all the devil's best work. I'd been taking the piss a little bit, but it suddenly occurred to me that if there was a Mother Thames, why not a god of the Old Man River, and if so, did they talk? Did they have long phone calls about silting watersheds and the need for flood management in the tidal regions? Or did they email or text or Twitter? With that reality check, I suddenly realised that some of the glamour was wearing off. I think Mama Thames must have sensed it too, because she gave me a shrewd look and nodded. Yes, she said. I see how it is now. How clever of your master to choose you, and they say <laughs> you can't teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> Two weeks of similarly impenetrable remarks from Nightingale meant that I had developed a sophisticated countermeasure to gnomic utterances. I changed the subject. How did you come to be goddess of the Thames? I asked. Are you sure you want to know? she asked, but I could tell that she was flattered by my interest. It's a truism that everybody loves to talk about themselves. Nine times out of ten, confessions arise entirely out of a human being's instinct to tell their life story to an attentive listener, even if it involves how they came to bludgeon their golf partner to death. Mama Thames was no different. In fact, I realized gods had an even greater need to explain themselves. I came to London in 1957, said Mama Thames. But I wasn't a goddess then. I was just some stupid country girl with a name that I've forgotten. Come to train as a nurse. But if I'm honest, I have to say I was not a very good nurse. I never liked to get too close to the sick people. And there were too many Igbo in my class. Because of those stupid patients, I failed all my exams and they threw me out. Mama Thames kissed her teeth at the bare-faced cheek of them. Into the street, just like that. And then my beautiful Robert, who had been courting me for three years, says to me, I can no longer wait for you to make up your mind. I'm going to marry a white, bitch Irish woman. She kissed her teeth again, and it was echoed around the room by all the other women. I was so heartbroken, said Mama Thames, that I went to kill myself. Oh, yes, that's how bad the man broke my heart. So I went to Hungerford Bridge to throw myself into the river. But that is a railway bridge, and the old footbridge that ran alongside, very dirty in those days. All sorts of things used to live on that bridge, tramps and trolls and goblins. It is not the sort of place a decent Nigerian girl wants to throw herself off. Who knows who might be watching? So I went to Waterloo Bridge. But by the time I got there, it was sunset. And everywhere I looked, it was so beautiful that I thought I just cannot bring myself to jump. Then it was dark. So I went home for dinner. The next morning, I got up, 
nice and early and caught a bus to Blackfriars Bridge. But there is that damn statue of Queen Victoria at the north end. And even if she is looking the other way, think how embarrassed you would be if she were to turn around and see you standing on the parapet. The rest of the room shook their heads in agreement. There was no way on earth that I was going to throw myself off Southwark Bridge, said Mama Thames. So after another long, long walk, where did I find myself? London Bridge? Mama Thames reached out and patted me on the knee. This was the old bridge, the one that was sold soon afterwards to that nice American gentleman. Now there was a man who knows how to show a river a good time. Two barrels of Guinness and a crate of rum barbacot. That's what I call an offering. There was a pause while Mama Thames sipped her tea. Beverly entered with a plate of custard creams and placed them within easy reach. I had a biscuit in my hand before I realized what I was doing and put it back. Beverly snorted. In the middle of the old London Bridge was a chapel, a shrine to St. Birinus, and I thought, good Sunday Christian that I was, that this would be the right place to jump off. I stood there, looking west, just as the tide began to turn. London was still a port back then, dying, but like an old man with a long, exciting life, full of stories and memories. And terrified that he was going to be old and frail with no one to look after him because there was no life left in the river, no orisha, no spirit, nothing to care for the old man. I heard the river call me by the name I have forgotten and it said, We see you are in pain. We see you are weeping like a child because of one man. And I said, Oh, river. I have come such a long way, but I have failed as a nurse, and I have failed as a woman, and this is why my man does not love me. And then the river said to me, We can take your pain away. We can make you happy and give you many children and grandchildren. All the world will come to you and lay its gifts at your feet. Well said Mama Thames. This was a tempting offer, so I asked, What must I do? What do you want from me? And the river answered, We want nothing that you are not already willing to give. So, I jumped in the water. Splash! And I sank all the way to the bottom. And let me tell you, there are things down there that you wouldn't believe. Let's just say that it needs to be dredged and let it go at that. She waved her arm languidly towards the river. I walked out of the river, over there on the whopping stair where they used to drown pirates. I've been here ever since, she said. This is the cleanest industrial river in Europe. Do you think that happened by accident? Swinging London, Cool Britannia, the Thames Barrier, do you think all that happened by accident? The dome, I asked. Now the most popular music venue in Europe, she said. The Rhine maidens come to visit me to see how it's done. She gave me a significant look, and I wondered who the hell the Rhine maidens were. Perhaps Father Thames sees things differently, I said. Baba Thames, spat Mama. 
When he was a young man, he stood where I stood on the bridge and made the same promise I did. But he hasn't been below Teddington Lock since the great stink of 1858. He never came back. Not even after Bazal Gate put the sewers in. Not even for the Blitz. Not even when the city was burning. And now he says it's his river. <laughs> Mama Thames pulled herself upright in her chair as if posing for a formal portrait. I'm not greedy, she said. Let him have Henley, Oxford, Staines. I shall have London and the gifts of all the world at my feet. We can't have your people fighting each other, I said. The royal way is very important in police work. It reminds the person you're talking to that behind you stands the mighty institution that is the Metropolitan Police, robed in the full majesty of the law and capable, in manpower terms, of invading a small country. You only hope when you're using that term that the whole edifice is currently facing in the same direction as you are. It's Baba Thames who is trespassing below the lock, said Mama Thames. I am not the one that needs to back off. We'll be the ones to talk to Father Thames, I said. We expect you to keep your people under control. Mama Thames tilted her head to one side and gave me a long, slow look. I tell you what, she said. I'll give you until the Chelsea Flower Show to bring Baba to his senses. After that, we shall take matters into our own hands. Her use of the royal we was a great deal less tentative than mine. The interview was over. We exchanged pleasantries and then Beverly Brooks showed me to the door. As we got to the atrium, she deliberately let her hip graze mine and I felt a sudden hot flush that had nothing to do with central heating. She gave me an arch look as she opened the door for me. Bye-bye, Peter, she said. See you around. When I got back to the folly, I found Nightingale in the reading room on the first floor. This was a scattering of upholstered green leather armchairs, footstools and side tables. Glass-fronted mahogany bookcases lined two walls, but Nightingale admitted to me that in the old days, people had generally come here for a nap after lunch. He was doing the telegraph crossword. He looked up as I sat down opposite. What did you think? She certainly thinks she's the goddess of the Thames, I said. Is she? That's not a terribly useful question, said Nightingale. Molly silently arrived with coffee and a plate of custard creams. I looked at the biscuits and gave her a suspicious glance, but she was as unreadable as ever. In that case, I said, where does their power come from? That's a much better question, said Nightingale. There are several conflicting theories about that, that the power comes from the belief of their followers, from the locality itself, or from a divine source beyond the mortal realm. What did Isaac think? Sir Isaac, said Nightingale, had a bit of a blind spot when it came to divinity. He even questioned whether Jesus Christ was truly divine. Didn't like the idea of the Trinity. Why is that? He had a very tidy mind, said Nightingale. Does power come from the same place as magic, I asked. All of this will be much easier to explain once you've mastered your first spell, he said. I believe you could get a good two hours of practice in before afternoon tea. I slunk off in the direction of the lab.
I dreamed that I was sharing a bed with Leslie May and Beverly Brook, both lithe and naked on either side of me, but it wasn't nearly as erotic as it should have been because I didn't dare embrace one for the fear that I'd mortally offend the other. I had just devised a strategy to get my arms around both at the same time when Beverly sank her teeth into my wrist and I woke with a terrible cramp in my right arm. It was bad enough to make me fall out of bed and thrash around being uselessly stoic for a good two minutes. There's nothing like excruciating pain for waking you up. So once it was clear I wasn't going back to sleep, I left my room and went looking for a snack. The basement of the folly was a warren of rooms left over from when it boasted dozens of staff, but I knew that the back stairs bottomed out into the kitchen. Not wanting to disturb Molly, I padded down the steps as quietly as I could, but... As I reached the basement, I saw the kitchen lights were on. As I got closer, I heard Toby growl, then bark, and then there was a strange rhythmic hissing sound. A good copper knows when not to announce his presence. So I crept to the kitchen door and peered in. Molly, still dressed in her maid's outfit, was perched on the edge of the scarred oak table that dominated one side of the kitchen. Beside her on the table was a beige ceramic mixing bowl, and sitting, some three metres in front of her, was Toby. Since the door was behind her shoulder, Molly didn't see me watching as she dipped her hand into the mixing bowl, lifted out a cube of chopped meat, raw enough to be dripping. Toby barked with excitement as Molly teased him with the meat for a moment before sending it flying towards him with an expert flick of her wrist. Toby did an impressive jump from a sitting position and caught the meat in midair. At the sight of Toby chewing industriously while turning tight little circles, Molly began to laugh. The rhythmic hissing sound I'd heard earlier. Molly picked up another cube of meat and waved it at Toby, who did a little dance of doggy anticipation. This time, Molly faked him out hissing at his confusion, twirling, and then, when she was sure he was watching, popping the bloody piece of meat in her own mouth. Toby barked crossly, but Molly stuck out an unnaturally long prehensile tongue at him. I must have gasped or shifted my weight because Molly leaped off the table and spun to face me. Eyes wide, mouth open to reveal sharp, pointed teeth and blood, bright red against her pale skin, dripping down her chin. Then she clamped her hand over her mouth, and with a look of startled shame ran silently from the kitchen. Toby gave me an irritated growl. It's not my fault, I told him. I just wanted a snack. I don't know what he was complaining about. He got the rest of the bowl of meat. I got a glass of water. Chapter 5. Action at a Distance Apart from the cramp and a definite improvement in the strength of my grip, my efforts to create my own wear light were frustrating. Every other morning, Nightingale would demonstrate the spell, and I'd spend up to four hours a day opening my hand in a meaningful manner. Fortunately, I got a break three weeks into February, when Leslie May and I were due to give evidence against Celia Munro, the perpetrator of the Leicester Square Cinema assault. That morning, we both dutifully turned up in our uniforms, Magistrates like their constables to be in uniform. At the requisite time of ten o'clock, in the firm and certain knowledge that the case would be delayed until at least two. As forward-thinking and ambitious constables, we'd brought our own reading material. 
Leslie had the latest Blackstone's police investigator's manual, and I had Horace Pittman's Legends of the Thames Valley, published in 1897. City of Westminster Magistrates Court is around the back of Victoria Station on the Horsefree Road. It's a bland box of a building built in the 1970s. It was considered to be so lacking in architectural merit that there was talk of listing it so that it could be preserved for posterity as an awful warning. Inside, the waiting areas maintained the unique combination of cramped busyness and barren inhumanity that was the glory of British architecture in the second half of the 20th century. There were two benches outside the court. We sat on one while the accused, Celia Monroe, her lawyer, and a friend she'd brought along for moral support, shared the other with Mr. Ranatunga and Mr. Ranatunga's brother. None of them wanted to be there, and all of them blamed us. Any word from Los Angeles? I asked. Brandon Coopertown was a man on the edge, said Leslie. Apparently all of his American deals had fallen through, and his production company was about to fold. And that house, I asked, about to go the way of all flesh, said Leslie. I looked blank. Mortgage was six months in arrears, she said, and his income this year barely scraped thirty-five thousand. That was a good ten grand more than I was getting as a full constable. My sympathy was limited. It's starting to look like a classic family annihilation, said Leslie. Who'd been reading up on her forensic psychology? Father faces catastrophic loss of status, can't live with the shame, and decides that without him, his wife's and his kids' lives are meaningless. He snaps, tops a fellow media professional, tops his family, and tops himself by making his face fall off. I said, well, "No theory is ever perfect," said Leslie. Particularly since we can't even find a reason for William Skirmish being in the West End that night. Maybe he was on the pull. I said he wasn't on the pull. Said Leslie, and I should know, because William Skirmish's victim timeline had become barely relevant to the case. The job of completing it had been handed to the murder team's most junior member, i.e., Leslie. Since she'd spent such a lot of time and effort reconstructing William Skirmish's last hours, she was perfectly willing and, in fact, overjoyed to share it with me in excruciating detail. She checked out William Skirmish's romantic leanings and found no history of trawling the West End for sex. Serially monogamous, that was our William. All of them guys he'd met through work or mutual friends. She'd also traced every single CCTV that he'd passed that night, and as far as Leslie could tell, he'd walked from his house to Tuffnell Park Station, and caught the tube to Tottenham Court Road. From there, he'd walked straight to Covent Garden via Mercer Street, and. His fatal encounter with Coopertown. No deviation, no hesitation, as if he'd had an appointment. Almost as if something was messing with his head, she said. Right? So I told her about the dissimulo spell and the theory that something had invaded Coopertown's mind, forced him to change his face, kill William Skirmish, and then his family. This led naturally to a description of my visit to Mama Thames, the magic lessons, and Molly, the God knows what she is made. Should you be telling me this? Asked Leslie. I don't see why not. I said, Nightingale's never told me not to. Your boss believes this stuff is real too. He just doesn't like it very much. So something was messing with Coopertown's mind, right? Asked Leslie. Right, I said. And. Whatever that was, continued Leslie, could have been interfering with William Skirmish's mind as well. 
it could have made him come down west just so he could have his head knocked off. I mean, if it can mess with one person's mind, why not another? Why not yours or mine? I remembered the horror of Coopertown's face as he lurched towards me across the balcony, and the smell of blood. Thank you for that thought, Leslie, I said. I shall certainly treasure it forever, probably late at night when I'm trying to sleep. Leslie glanced at where Celia Monroe sat demurely. She had the same kind of sudden mad rage, she said. What if her mind had been possessed too? Her face didn't fall off, I said. Celia Monroe caught us looking at her and flinched. What if Coopertown was the big splash, said Leslie, and she was just an echo? There could have been other incidents going off all over the place, but we just happened to be there when this one blew. We could check the crime reports and see if anything fits, I said, see if there's a cluster. That would be Westminster and Camden, she said. Yeah, that's a lot of crime. Limited to physical assaults and first offences, I said. The computer should do most of the work. What are you going to be doing? she asked. I shall be learning to make light, I said loftily. Two days later, Nightingale called me downstairs just as I left the bathroom. Practice was cancelled, and so, it seemed, was breakfast. Nightingale was wearing what I recognised as his work suit. Light brown, herringbone tweed, double-breasted, leather patches on the elbow. He had his original Burberry trench coat folded over his arm, and he was carrying his silver-topped cane, something I'd never seen him do in daylight before. They're going to Purley, he said, and to my surprise he threw me the keys to the jag. What's in Purley? I asked. I'm not going to tell you, he said. I'd rather you gathered your own impressions. Is this police business or apprentice stuff, I asked. Both, said Nightingale. I climbed behind the wheel of the jag, turned the key in the ignition, and took a moment to savour the sound of the engine. It's important not to rush the good things in life. Whenever you're ready, said Nightingale. She didn't handle as well as I'd expected, but the way the engine responded to my foot on the accelerator made up for any other faults, including the oversteer and the heater that periodically blew hot, stale air into my face. I took us across Lambeth Bridge. Weekday traffic in London is always bad, and we stop-started all the way past the Oval, through Brixton, and on to Streatham. Further beyond, we were into the South London suburbs, hectares of Edwardian two-storey terraced housing interspersed with interchangeable high streets. Occasionally, we passed irregular rectangles of green space, the remnants of ancient villages that had grown together like spots of mould on a petri dish. The A23 morphed into Pearly Way and we passed a pair of tall chimneys crowned with the IKEA logo. Next stop was Pearly. Famous place. Pearly. Know what I mean? A red VW transporter with LFB trimming was waiting for us in the car park at Pearly Station. As we pulled up beside it, a big man got out of the side door and raised his hand in greeting. He was in his forties. He had a broken nose and hair cut down to a brown fuzz. Nightingale introduced him as Frank Caffrey. Frank works out of New Cross Station. He's our fire brigade liaison. Liaison for what, I asked. This said Frank, and handed me a canvas satchel. It was unexpectedly heavy, and I almost dropped it. Something metal clonked inside. Be careful, said Nightingale. I opened the flap and had a look. Inside were two metal cylinders the size of aerosol cans, but much heavier. 
They were white with number 80 WP Gren stenciled around the body. At the top was a spring-release trigger held in place by a large metal pin. I'm not a military buff, but I know a hand grenade when I see one. I looked at Nightingale, who gave me an irritable wave. Put them away, he said. I closed the satchel and settled it gingerly over my shoulder. Nightingale turned back to Frank. Are your people ready? he asked. Two appliances on standby, just in case. Good man, said Nightingale. We should be done in half an hour. We got back into the jag, and Nightingale directed me across the station bridge and down a couple of identical streets until he said, This one here. We found a parking spot around the corner and walked the rest of the way. Grassmere Road ran parallel to the railway and looked utterly normal. A string of detached and semi-detached houses built in the 1920s with mock Tudor facades and bay windows. There was nobody about. The kids were all at school and their parents were at work and we kept the pace casual. At least, as casual as I could manage with a pair of grenades banging against my hip. Anyone watching would have taken us for a pair of feral estate agents out marking their territory. Nightingale made a sudden left turn through the gate of a particular house and headed for the wooden door-sized gate that blocked access to the side passage. Without slowing down, he thrust his right arm, palm forward at the gate, and with a tiny sound, the lock popped out of the wood and clattered onto the pathway beyond. We stepped through the open gate and stopped in the blind spot. Nightingale nodded at the gate, and I propped it closed with a big terracotta flower pot. There was still soil in the flower pot with a shriveled black stalk poking out. I checked similar pots lined up on the sunny side of the path. They were all dead too. Nightingale stooped down, grabbed a handful of soil and crumbled it beneath his nose. I followed his lead, but the soil smelled of nothing, sterile, as if it had been left on a windowsill for too long. They've been here a while, said Nightingale. Who has? I asked. But he didn't answer. The house backed onto the railway track, so we only had to worry about neighbours on two sides. The garden wasn't a jungle, but the lawn looked like it hadn't been mown for months, and sections of once neat flower beds were as dead as the flower pots. The French doors that led into the garden patio were locked and the curtains firmly drawn. We worked our way round to the kitchen. The blinds were down across the windows, and the door was bolted from the inside. I watched closely, expecting Nightingale to do the lock-popping thing again. But instead, he just smashed the window with his cane. He reached through the pane, pulled the bolt, and opened the door. I followed him inside. Apart from the dim light, it was a perfectly normal suburban kitchen. Swedish countertops, gas hob and oven, microwave, faux stoneware jars marked sugar, tea, and coffee. The fridge freezer was switched off. Notes and bills stuck to the doors with magnets. The newest bill was six months old. Next to it, a note read, Grandad. Below that was a schedule that included nursery collection times. There are kids living here, I said. Nightingale looked grim. Not anymore, he said. That was one of the things that alerted us. This isn't going to turn out well, is it? I asked. Not for the family that was living here, he said. We crept into the hallway. Nightingale indicated that I check upstairs. 
I extended my baton and kept it ready as I climbed the stairs. The window over the stairs had sheets of black crayon paper, crudely sellotaped over to block out the sunlight. One of the sheets had a child's drawing of a house, square windows, a pig's tail of smoke from a misshapen chimney, a mummy and daddy stick figures standing proudly off to one side. As I stepped onto the gloomy landing, a word formed in my mind. Two syllables. Starts with V and rhymes with dire. I froze in place. Nightingale said that everything was true, after a fashion, and that had to include vampires, didn't it? I doubted they were anything like they were in the books and on TV, and one thing was for certain. They absolutely weren't going to sparkle in the sunlight. There was a door on my left. I forced myself to go through it. A child's bedroom. A boy young enough still to have Lego and action figures scattered on the floor. The bed was neatly made with no-nonsense blue and purple matching pillowcases and duvet cover. The boy had liked Ben 10 and Chelsea FC enough to put their posters on his walls. There was a smell of dust, but none of the mildew and damp that I would associate with a long-abandoned house. The master bedroom was the same. The bed neatly made up, an air of dry dustiness, but no cobwebs in the corners of the ceiling. The digital alarm clock by the bed had stopped despite being plugged into the mains. When I picked it up, white sand trickled from a bottom seam. I replaced it carefully and made a mental note to check it later. The main room at the back of the house was a nursery. Beatrix Potter wallpaper, a cot, a play pen, a hypoallergenic wooden mobile from Galt's educational toys shivered in the draft from the open door. As with the other rooms, there was no sign of a struggle or even a rapid departure. Everything was neatly squared away, unnatural in a child's bedroom. Equally unnatural was the lack of shower mould in the bathroom or the dusty non-smell of the water in the cistern. The last room on the top floor was what an estate agent would call a half-bedroom, suitable for small children or midgets with agoraphobia. This had been converted into a mini-office with a two-year-old Dell PC and, unsurprisingly, an Ikea filing cabinet and desk lamp. When I touched the computer, I got a flash of dust and ozone, a vestigium that I recognized from the master bedroom. I popped open the side of the case and found the same white sand inside. I rubbed it between my fingers. It was very fine, powdery even, but definitely granular and flecked with gold. I was about to pull the motherboard when Nightingale arrived in the doorway. What the hell are you waiting for? he hissed. Checking the computer, I said. He hesitated, pushed his hair back off his forehead. Leave it, he said. Only one last place to look. I'd have to remember to come back with an evidence bag and grab the whole computer. There was a door in the hallway that led to a set of narrow stairs heading down. The steps were worn, hardwood planks that I guessed had been laid down when the house was built. A bare bulb dangled just inside the door, half-blinding me and making the gloom at the base of the stairs more intense. The basement, I thought. Why am I not surprised? Well, said Nightingale, we're not getting any younger. I was happy to let him go first. I shivered as we went down the narrow stairs. It was cold, like descending into a freezer. But I noticed that when I breathed out, 
my breath didn't mist. I put my hand under my armpit and there was no temperature differential. This wasn't physical cold. This had to be a type of vestigium. Nightingale paused, shifted his weight, and flexed his shoulders like a boxer preparing to fight. Are you feeling this? he asked. Yes, I whispered. What is it? Tactus disvitae, he said. The smell of anti-life. They must be down here. He didn't say what, and I didn't ask. We started down the stairs again. The basement was narrow and well lit, I was surprised to find, by a fluorescent tube that ran half of its length. Someone had mounted shelves all along the wall and optimistically assembled a workbench underneath. More recently, an old mattress had been thrown down on the concrete floor, and on that mattress lay two vampires. They looked like tramps. Old-fashioned tramps. The kind that dressed up in ragged layers of clothes and growled at you from the shadows. The sensation of cold intensified as Nightingale and I got closer. They looked as if they were asleep, but there were no breathing sounds. And none of the fog a sleeping human being would produce in a confined space. Nightingale handed me a framed family photograph, obviously looted from a living room mantelpiece, and transferred his cane to his right hand. I need you to do two things, he said. I need you to confirm their identities and check them for a pulse. Can you do that? What are you going to be doing? I'm going to cover you, he said, in case they wake up. I considered this for a moment. Are they likely to wake up? It's happened before, said Nightingale. How often before, I asked. It gets more likely the longer we're down here, said Nightingale. I crouched down and reached out gingerly to draw back the collar of the closest one's coat. I was careful not to touch the skin. It was the face of a middle-aged man, white with unnaturally smooth cheeks and pallid lips. I checked him against the photograph and... Although the features were the same, he bore no true resemblance to the smiling father in the picture. I shifted around to get a look at the second body. This one was female, and her face matched that of the mother. Mercifully, Nightingale had chosen a photo without the children in it. I reached out to feel for a pulse and hesitated. Nothing lives in those bodies, said Nightingale, not even bacteria. I pressed my fingers against the male's neck. His skin was physically cool, and there was no pulse. The female was the same. I stood up and backed away. Nothing, I said. Back upstairs, said Nightingale. Quickly now. I didn't run, but I wouldn't call what I did up those stairs casual either. Behind me, Nightingale came up backwards, his cane held at the ready. Get the grenades, he said. I took the grenades from the satchel. Nightingale took one and showed me what to do. My hand was shaking a little, and the pin proved harder to pull than I'd expected. I guess that's a safety feature on a grenade. Nightingale pulled the pin on his own grenade and gestured down the basement stairs. On the count of three, he said, make sure it goes all the way to the bottom. He counted, and after three, we threw the grenades down the stairs, and I stupidly stood watching it bounce down to the bottom until Nightingale grabbed me by the arm and dragged me away. We hadn't even reached the front door when I heard a double thump beneath our feet. By the time we were out of the house and in the front garden, white smoke was billowing out of the basement. White phosphorus, said Nightingale. A thin scream began from somewhere inside. Not human, but close enough. 
Did you hear that? I asked Nightingale. No, he said. And neither did you. Concerned neighbours rushed out to see what was happening to their property values, but Nightingale showed them his warrant card. Don't worry, we made sure nobody was inside, he said. Lucky we were passing, really. The first fire engine pulled up less than three minutes later, and we were hustled away from the house. The fire brigade recognised only two kinds of people at a fire, victims and obstacles. If you don't want to be either, it's best to stay back. Frank Caffrey arrived on the scene and exchanged nods with Nightingale before striding over to the leading fireman to get briefed. Nightingale didn't have to explain how it would go down. Once the fire was out, Frank, as fire investigation officer, would examine the scene and declare that it was caused by something plausible and sanitise any evidence to the contrary. No doubt there were equally discreet arrangements for dealing with the remnants of the bodies in the basement, and the whole thing would pass off as just another daytime house fire. Probably an electrical fault. Lucky no one was there at the time. Makes you think about getting a smoke detector, doesn't it? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how we deal with vampires in old London town. It's hard to describe what success felt like. Even before I managed to produce my first spell, I slowly became aware that I was getting closer, like a car engine turning over on a cold morning. I could sense something catching on my thoughts. An hour into my practice, I stopped and took a deep breath and opened my hand. There it was. The size of a golf ball and as brilliant as the morning sun, a globe of light. That's when I found out why Nightingale insisted I keep a sink filled with water nearby while I did the exercise. Unlike his globe of light, mine was yellow and giving off heat, loads of heat. I yelled as my palm burned and stuck my hand in the sink. The globe sputtered and went out. You burned your hand, didn't you? said Nightingale. I hadn't heard him come in. I pulled my hand out of the water and had a look. There was a pinkish patch on my palm, but it didn't look serious. I did it, I said. I couldn't believe it. I'd done real magic. It, it wasn't some stage trick by Nightingale. Do it again, he said. This time, I held my hand directly over the sink, formed the key in my mind, and opened my hand. Nothing happened. Don't think about the pain, said Nightingale. Find the key and do it again. I looked for the key felt the engine turn over, and opened my hand to release the clutch. It burned me again, but it definitely wasn't as hot, and my hand was much closer to the water. Still, I checked my palm. This time it was going to blister for sure. And again, said Nightingale, reduce the heat, keep the light. I was surprised how easy I found it to obey. Key, power, release... More light, less heat. Warmth this time, not heat, and a, a yellow tone like an old 40-watt light bulb. Nightingale didn't have to tell me again. I opened my palm and produced a perfect globe of light. Now hold it, said Nightingale. It, it was like balancing a rake on your palm. The theory's simple, but the practice lasts five seconds, tops. My beautiful glow popped like a soap bubble. Good, said Nightingale. I'm going to give you a word. I want you to say this word every time you do the spell. It's very important that the spell's effect is consistent. Why is that? I'll explain why in a minute, said Nightingale. The word is lux. I did the spell again. Key. Motor. I spoke the word on the release. The globe sustained for longer. It was definitely getting easier. 
I want you to practice this spell, said Nightingale, and just this spell for at least another week. You'll have the urge to experiment, to make it brighter, to move it around. You can move it around? Nightingale sighed. Not for the next week. You practice until the word becomes the spell, and the spell becomes the word. So that to say lux is to make light. Lux, I said. What language is that? Nightingale looked at me in surprise. It's Latin for light, he said. They don't teach Latin in secondary moderns anymore. Not at my school, they didn't. Yeah, not to worry, said Nightingale. I can tutor you in that as well. Lucky me, I thought. Why use Latin, I asked. Why not use English or make up your own words? Lux, the spell you just did, is what we call a form, said Nightingale. Each of these basic forms you learn as a name. Lux, Impello, Sindere, others. Once these become ingrained, you can combine the forms to create complex spells the way you would combine words to create a sentence. Like musical notation, I asked. Nightingale grinned. Exactly like musical notation, he said. So why not use musical notation? Because in the main library there are thousands of books detailing how to do magic, and all of them use the standard Latin forms, said Nightingale. Presumably all this was invented by Sir Isaac, I asked. The original forms are in the Principia des Magicis, said Nightingale, but uh, there have been changes over the years. Who made the changes? People who can't resist fiddling with things, said Nightingale. People like you, Peter. So Newton, like all good 17th century intellectuals, wrote in Latin because that was the international language of science, philosophy, and, I found out later, upmarket pornography. I wondered if there was a translation. Not of the artist magicis, said Nightingale. Wouldn't want the hoi polloi learning magic, would we? Quite, said Nightingale. Don't tell me, I said, in the other books it's not just the forms, everything is written in Latin. Except for the stuff that's in Greek and Arabic, said Nightingale. How long does it take to learn all the forms, I asked. Ten years, said Nightingale, if you work at it. I'd better get on. Practice for two hours, then stop, said Nightingale. Don't do the spell again until at least six hours have passed. I'm not tired, you know, I said. I can keep this up all day. If you overdo it, there are consequences, said Nightingale. I didn't like the sound of all that. What kind of consequences? Strokes, brain hemorrhages, aneurysms. How do you know when you've ever done it? When you have a stroke, a brain hemorrhage or an aneurysm, said Nightingale. I remembered Brandon Coopertown's shrunken cauliflower brain and Dr. Walid saying, This is your brain on magic. Thank you for the safety tip, I said. Two hours, said Nightingale from the doorway. Then we meet in the study for your Latin lesson. I waited until he'd gone before opening my hand and whispering, Lux. This time, the globe gave off a soft white light and no more heat than a sunny day. <laughs> Fuck me, I thought. I could do magic. Chapter 6. The Coach House During the day, if I wasn't in the lab or studying or out, it was my job to listen for the bell and answer the front door when it rang. This happened so infrequently that the first time it occurred, it took me a minute to work out what the noise was. It turned out to be Beverly Brook in an electric blue quilted jacket with the hood up. It took your time, she said. It's freezing out here. I said she could come in, but she looked shifty and said she couldn't. Mum says I'm not to. She says it's inimical to the likes of us. Inimical? There's like 
magic force fields and stuff, said Beverly. Well, that would make sense, I thought. It would certainly explain why Nightingale was so relaxed about security. Why are you here, then? Well, said Beverly, when a mummy river and a daddy river love each other very much, funny. Mum says there's some weird stuff at the UCH you should check out. What kind of weird stuff? She said it was on the news. We don't have a TV, I said. Not even Freeview? No kind of TV at all, I said. Brutal, said Beverly. You coming out or what? I'll go and see what the inspector says, I said. I found Nightingale in the library making notes on what I strongly suspected was tomorrow's Latin homework. I explained about Beverly and he told me to check it out. By the time I got back to the lobby, Beverly had risks coming just inside the door, although she stood as close to the threshold as she could get. Surprisingly, Molly was standing beside her, their heads close together as if exchanging confidences. When they heard me coming, they separated with a suspicious speed. I felt my ears burning. Molly scurried past me and vanished into the depths of the folly. Are we taking the jag? asked Beverly as I put on my coat. Why are you coming with me? I asked. Have to, said Beverly. Mum told me to facilitate. Facilitate what? The woman that called it in is an acolyte, said Beverly. She won't talk to you without me there. Mm, okay, I said. Let's go. Are we taking the jag? Don't be stupid, I said. You see H's walking distance. Aww, said Beverly. I wanted to take the jag. So we took the jag and got caught on the Euston Road, and then spent another twenty minutes looking for a parking space. It took us, I estimated, twice as long to drive as it would have to walk. University College Hospital takes up two whole blocks between Tottenham Court Road and Gower Street. Founded in the 19th century, its main claim to fame was as the teaching hospital for the University College of London and the birthplace of one Peter Grant, apprentice wizard. Since that momentous day in the mid-80s, half the site had been redeveloped into a gleaming blue and white tower that looked as if a bit of Brasilia had crash-landed in the middle of Victorian London. The lobby was a wide, clean space with lots of glass and white paint marred only by the large numbers of sick people shuffling around. Police officers spend a lot of time in A&E, since you're either asking people where they got their knife wounds, dealing with the violently drunk, or being stitched up yourself. It's one of the many reasons coppers marry nurses. That and the fact that nurses understand about unreasonable shift systems. Beverly's acolyte was a nurse, a pale, skinny one with purple hair and an Australian accent. She stared at me suspiciously. Who's this? she asked Beverly. This is a friend, Beverly said, and put her hand on the woman's arm. We tell him everything. The woman relaxed and gave me a smile full of hope. She looked like one of those Pentecostal teenagers from my mum's second from last church. Isn't it wonderful to be a part of something real? she asked. I agreed that being a part of something real was indeed wonderful, but that it would be groovy if she could tell me what she'd seen. I actually used the word groovy, and she didn't even flinch, which was worrying on so many levels. According to her, a cycle courier had been brought in by ambulance following a road traffic accident, and, while he was being treated, he'd kicked the attending doctor in the eye. The doctor had been stunned rather than seriously injured, and the cycle courier had run out of A&E before security could nab him. Why bring it to us? I asked. It was the laughing, said the nurse. I was going back to the treatment bay when I heard this screeching laugh like a minor bird. Then I heard Eric, Dr. Framline, that's the doctor who is injured. I heard him swearing, and then the cycle courier comes charging out of the bay, and there's something wrong with his face. Wrong how? I asked. 
just wrong, she said, displaying precisely the characteristic that makes eyewitnesses such a useful part of any police investigation. He went past so fast, I didn't see much, it just looked wrong. She showed me the treatment bay where it happened, a white and beige cubicle with an examination bed and a curtain for privacy. The vestigium, note that I'm using the singular here, slapped me in the face as soon as I walked in. Violence, laughter, dried sweat, and leather. It was the same as poor William Skirmish when he was lying in the mortuary, only minus the annoying yappy dog. Two months previously, I would have walked into that treatment bay, shivered, and thought, that's weird, and walked right out again. Beverly stuck her head in and demanded to know whether I'd found anything. I need to borrow your phone, I said. What happened to yours? she asked. I blew it up in a magic accident, I said. Don't ask. Beverly pouted and handed over a surprisingly chunky Ericsson. You have to top it up, she said. The casing had latex seals and the buttons were large and protected by a layer of clear plastic. It's designed to go underwater, she said. Don't ask. Can you get your acolyte to find out Dr. Framline's address for me? Beverly shrugged. Sure, she said. And remember, you talk, you pay. While Beverly was distracted with her task, I took her phone outside to Beaumont Place, a quiet, pedestrianised road that ran between the old and new bits of the hospital, and called Nightingale. I described the incident in the vestigium, and he agreed that it was worth stepping up the search for the courier. I want to keep my eye on the doctor, I said. Interesting, said Nightingale. Why? I'm thinking of the sequence of events around Skirmish's murder, I said. Toby bites Coopertown on the nose. That's when it starts. But Coopertown doesn't go postal until later when he runs into skirmish in Covent Garden. You think it was set off by a chance meeting? Mm, that's just it, I said. Leslie says that the murder team haven't found a reason for skirmish to be in Covent Garden that night. He gets a bus down to the West End, meets Coopertown, and gets his head knocked off. No meetings, no friends, nothing. You think both parties were affected? asked Nightingale. You think an outside agency made them meet? Is such a thing possible? Anything's possible, said Nightingale. If your dog was affected along with his master and Coopertown, then it would explain why he was so sensitive to the vestigia. I noticed Toby was my dog now. So it's possible? Yes, said Nightingale. But I could tell he was sceptical. What if the cycle courier is playing Toby's role, and the doctor is taking Coopertown's, I asked. At the very least, it wouldn't hurt to keep an obo on the doctor until the courier's caught. Can you handle that? Asked Nightingale. No problem, I said. Good, said Nightingale, and offered to coordinate the search for the cycle courier. I hung up as Beverly Brooks sauntered over from the hospital, the swing of her hips dragging at my eyes. She grinned when she caught me looking and handed me a slip of paper. Dr. Framline's address. What's next, Guff? She asked. Where can I drop you, I asked. No, 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 said Beverly. My mum says I was to facilitate. You facilitated, I said. You can go home now. I don't want to go home, she said. Mum's got the whole entourage round, Ty, Ephra and Fleet, not to mention all the old ladies. You don't know what it's like. Actually, I knew exactly what it was like, but I wasn't going to tell Beverly that. Come on, I'll be good, she said, giving me the big eyes. I let you borrow my phone. I gave in before she escalated to the trembling lip. But you have to do what I say. Yes, Gov, she said, and saluted. 
You can't do an obo in a vintage Jag, so much to Beverly's disappointment, we drove much to Beverly's disappointment, we drove back to the Folly to swap it for the X Panda. The Folly's garage is out the back of the building and takes up the entire bottom floor of the converted coach house. From the mews, you can see where the original doors, wide and high enough to accept a coach and four, had been bricked in and replaced with a more modest sliding door. The Jag and the X Panda rattled around inside a space big enough for four carriages. Unlike the entrance hall, the coach house didn't seem to bother Beverly at all. Went to the inimical magic force fields, I said. Not in here, she said. Bit of protection on the garage door, and that's it. Nightingale had left the building, but Molly met me in the lobby with a Tesco's carrier bag full of sandwiches, wrapped in greaseproof paper and tied up with string. I didn't ask what was in them, but I doubted it was chicken tikka masala. Back in the coach house, I threw my bag and sandwiches in the back of the X Panda, made sure Beverly had her seatbelts on, and headed off to harass a junior doctor. Dr. Framline lived in a two-story Victorian terrace off the Romford Road in Newham. It was further east than I liked to go, but not a bad neighbourhood. I found a parking space with decent sight lines of the front door and got out. I knew no force on earth was going to keep Beverly in the car, so I let her come with me on the strict understanding that she kept her mouth shut. There was only one doorbell, and the front garden was given over to gravel, the dustbins, and a couple of empty, bright red plant pots. I was thinking either Dr. Framline owned the whole place or he was sharing with friends. I pressed the bell and a cheerful voice said it was on its way. The voice belonged to a plump, round-faced woman of the sort that develops a good personality because the alternative is suicide. I showed her my warrant card. Good afternoon, my name's Peter Grant. I'm from the police, this is my colleague Beverly Brook, who's a river in South London. You can get away with stuff like that with civilians because their brains lock in place on the word police. Actually, I think I may have overdone it because the woman frowned at Beverly and asked, Did you just say she was a river? Which is why you should never show off when on duty. <laughs> it's an office joke, I said. She seems a bit young to be police, said the woman. She's not, I said. She's on work experience. Can I see her identification again, she said. I sighed and handed it over. Beverly sniggered. I can give you the number of my superior if you like, I said. This normally does the trick, since members of the public are generally lazier than they are suspicious. Are you here about what happened at the hospital? asked the woman. Yes, I said, relieved. That's exactly why we're here. Only Eric's gone to town, she said. You just missed him. He went fifteen minutes ago. Of course he has, I thought. No doubt to some spot less than five hundred metres from where Beverly and I started out. Uh, do you know where he is going? Why do you want to know? We think we may have a line on the man who attacked him, I said. We just need to confirm a few details. If we do this quickly, we may be able to make an arrest tonight. That perked her up, and got me not just the name of the gastropub Dr. Framline was heading for, but also his mobile number. Beverly had to trot to keep up with me as we headed back to the car. What's the rush? she asked as we climbed in. I know the pub, I said. It's on the corner of Neal Street and Shelton Street. I pulled out without waiting for Beverly to buckle up. Right across from there is the pedestrian space outside Urban Outfitters. Urban Outfitters, eh? said Beverly. That explains the Dr. Denim shirt. My mum bought me that, I said. <laughs> and you think that's less embarrassing? I gunned the expander. Or at least I came as close to gunning it as you can with a ten-year-old Ford Escort, and went through a set of lights on red. There was a yell behind me. Cycle couriers like to hang out there, I said. It's convenient for the pub and cafes, but also close to most of their clients. Rain began to spatter on the windscreen, and I had to ease up. The streets were getting wet. 
How long will it take Dr. Framline to reach Covent Garden by public transport? Not less than an hour, but he had a head start, and this was London, where the tube was often faster than the car. Call Dr. Framline, I told Beverly. She grumbled, dialed, listened, and said, Voicemail. He's probably underground. I gave her Leslie's number. Remember, she said, you talk, you pay. That's the way it works, I said. Beverly held the phone to my ear so I could keep both hands on the controls. When Leslie picked up, I could hear the incident room at Belgravia in the background. Proper police work. What happened to your phone, she asked. I've been trying to ring you all morning. I broke it doing magic, I said. Which reminds me, I need you to book me out an airwave. Airwave was the all-singing, all-dancing digital radio handset for coppers. Can't you get one from your nick, she asked. You're joking, I said. I don't think Nightingale's got the hang of airwave yet. Or even radios, for that matter. In fact, I think he might be a bit hazy on telephones. She agreed to meet us at Neal Street. Rain was sheeting down as I crawled up the semi-pedestrianised length of Earlham Street and stopped on the corner where we could get a good view of the pub and the cycle courier hangout. I left Beverly in the car and popped across to check inside the pub. It was deserted. Dr. Framline hadn't arrived yet. My hair was soaked through when I got back in the car, but I had a towel in my elbow bag and I used it to squeeze most of the water out. For some reason, Beverly found this hilarious. <laughs> Let me do that, she said. I handed her the towel and she leaned over and started rubbing my head. One of her breasts pushed against my shoulder and I had to resist an urge to put my arm around her waist. She dug her fingers into my scalp. Don't you ever calm this? She asked. I can't be bothered, I said. I just shave it down to stubble every spring. She ran her palm over my head and let it rest lightly on the back of my neck. I found her breath close on my ear. You really got nothing from your dad, did you? Beverly sat back in her own seat and tossed the towel into the back. Your mum must have been disappointed. I bet she thought you'd have big curls. It could have been worse, I said. It could have been a girl. Beverly unconsciously touched her own hair, which was straightened and side-parted into wings that reached to her shoulders. You don't know the half of it, she said, which is why you ain't going to get me out into that. She nodded at the rain-swept streets. If you're supposed to be a goddess... Orisha, said Beverly, we are Orisha, not spirits, not local geniuses, Orisha. Why can't you do something about the weather, I asked. For a start, she said, with exaggerated slowness, you don't mess with the weather, and second, this is North London. This manor belongs to my older sisters. I found a 17th century map of the rivers of London. That would be the fleet and the Tyburn, I asked. You can call her Tyburn if you want to spend the rest of the day dangling from a noose, said Beverly. If you ever meet her, you better make sure you call her Lady Ty. Not that you ever want to meet her. Not that she ever wants to meet you. So you don't get on with them, I asked. The fleet is okay, she said, but nosy. Ty is just stuck up. She lives in Mayfair and goes to posh people's parties and knows people that matter. Mum's favourite? Only because she fixes stuff for the politicians, said Beverly. Has tea on the terrace at the Palace of Westminster. <laughs> I get to sit in a car with Nightingale's errand boy. If I remember, you're the one who didn't want to go home, I said. I spotted Leslie's car pulling up behind us. She flashed her lights and got out. I quickly leaned back to open the passenger door for her. Rain hit me in the face hard enough to make me splutter. And Leslie practically threw herself onto the back seat. I think it's going to flood, she said, and seized my towel, using it to dry her face and hair. She jerked her head at Beverly. Who's this? she asked. Beverly, this is PC Leslie May. I turned to Leslie. 
This is Beverly Brook, River Spirit, and winner of the London Regional All Comers Continuous Talking Championship five years running. Beverly punched me in the arm. Leslie gave her an encouraging smile. Her mother is the Thames, you know. Really? said Leslie. Who's your dad then? Mm, that's complicated, said Beverly. Mum said she found me floating down the brook by the Kingston Vale dual carriageway. In a basket? asked Leslie. Nope. Just floating, said Beverly. She was spontaneously created by the midichlorians, I said. Both women gave me blank looks. Never mind. Has your man arrived yet? asked Leslie. Nobody's arrived since we got here, I said. Do you know what he looks like? said Leslie. I realised that I didn't have the faintest idea what Dr. Framline looked like. I'd been expecting to interview him at home before I'd followed him. I have a description, I said. Leslie gave me a pitying look and pulled out an A4 hard copy of the photo from Dr. Framline's driving license. He'd be a decent copper, she told Beverly, if he could just keep his mind on the details. She handed me something that looked like a chunky mutant offspring of a Nokia and a walkie-talkie. An airwave handset. I stuffed it inside the pocket of my jacket. The handset is a bit heavier than a mobile phone and was going to make me lopsided. Is that him? asked Beverly. We peered out into the rain and saw a couple approaching from the Covent Garden end of Neal Street. The man's face matched the photograph apart from the bruising around his left eye and the railway track of adhesive strips holding the cut on his cheek together. He held an umbrella over himself and his companion, a stocky woman in a lurid orange waterproof. They were both smiling and seemed happy. We watched in silence as they reached the gastropub and, with a pause to shake out his umbrella, went inside. Remind me why you're here again? asked Leslie. Have you found the cycle courier yet? I asked. No, said Leslie. I don't think my governor likes your governor treating him as an errand boy. Tell him welcome to the club, I said. You tell him, said Leslie. So what's in the sandwiches? asked Beverly. I opened the Tesco's bag and unwrapped the packets to find crusty white bread filled with roast beef and mustard pickle garnished with horseradish. Very nice. But once, my packed lunch had been fried calf's brain, so I tended to approach Molly's sandwiches with caution. Leslie, who eats without fear and thinks eels and jelly are a delicacy, dived in, but Beverly hesitated. If I eat these, you're not going to expect an obligation, are you? asked Beverly. Don't worry about it, I said. I have an air freshener in the bag. No, I'm serious, said Beverly. There's a geezer at my mum's flats who turned up to repossess some furniture in 1997. One cup of tea and a biscuit later, and he's never left. I used to call him Uncle Bailiff. He does odd jobs around the place, fixes stuff, and keeps the place clean, and my mother will never let him go. Beverly jabbed me in the chest with her finger. So I want to know what your intentions are with this sandwich. I assure you my intentions are honourable, I said. But part of me was thinking about how close I came to eating that custard cream back at Mama Thames's flat. Swear it on your power, said Beverly. I don't have any power, I said. Good point. All right, swear it on your mum's life. No. I said, this is childish. Fine, said Beverly. I'll get my own food. She got out of the car and stomped away, leaving the door open. I noticed that she'd waited for the rain to ease up before throwing a fit. Is that true? asked Leslie. Which bit? I asked. Spells, food, obligation, wizards, the bailiff, said Leslie. For God's sake, Peter, that's false imprisonment at the very least. Some of it's true, I said. I don't know how much. I think becoming a wizard is about discovering what's real and what isn't. Is her mum really the goddess of the Thames? She thinks she is, 
Well, I've met her, and I'm beginning to think she might be, I said. She's got real power, so I'm going to treat her daughter as the real thing until I find out different. Leslie leaned over the seat back and looked me in the eyes. Can you do magic? She asked softly. Well, I can do one spell, I said. Show me. I can't, I said. If I do it now, I'll blow the airwave sets, the stereo, and possibly the ignition system. So I busted my phone. I had it in my pocket when I was doing my practice. Leslie tilted her head to the side and gave me a cool look. I was about to protest when Beverly banged on my window. I rolled it down. I just thought you ought to know that it stopped raining, she said, and there's a cycle courier walking down the street. Me and Leslie piled out of the car, which shows how inexperienced we really were at basic surveillance, remembered that we were trying to be unobtrusive, and pretended to be having a casual chat with each other. In our defence, we just spent two years in uniform, and being obtrusive is what a uniform constable is all about. Beverly must have had good eyes, because the courier was at the Shaftesbury Avenue end of Neal Street, and was approaching at a slow, deliberate pace. He was pushing his bike, which was suspicious, and I saw that the back wheel was bent out of shape. I felt a deep sense of unease, but I couldn't tell if that was me or something external. In the near distance, a dog started barking. Behind us, a mother told off her child who wanted to be carried. I could hear rain draining into a gutter somewhere, and I found myself straining to hear I'm not sure what. Then I heard it. A thin, strangled, high-pitched giggle that seemed to float in from far away. The cycle courier looked normal enough, dressed in painfully tight yellow and black lycra, a messenger bag with a radio attached to its shoulder strap, and a street helmet in white and blue. He had a narrow face and a mouth that was a thin line under a sharp nose. But his eyes were worryingly blank. I didn't like the way he was walking. The twisted back wheel was scraping the forks, and the man's head seemed to bob unnaturally on his neck in time with every revolution. I decided it would be a bad idea to let him get any closer. Bastard! There was a shout behind me and a rattling crash. I turned and saw nothing until Leslie pointed to the glass double doors of Urban Outfitters. A man was being slammed violently against the inside of the doors. He was jerked out of sight and then smashed against the doors again, hard enough to pop one of the hinges and make a gap large enough for the man to escape. He looked like a tourist or foreign student, well-dressed in the European style, dirty blonde hair cut the respectable side of too long. A blue Swiss Air complimentary knapsack still hooked over one shoulder. He shook his head as if bewildered, and flinched back as his attacker smacked open the doors and strode towards him. This was a short, plump man with thin and brown hair and round, well-dressed in the European style, dirty blonde hair cut the respectable side of too long. A blue Swiss Air complimentary knapsack still hooked over one shoulder. He shook his head as if bewildered, and flinched back as his attacker smacked open the doors and strode towards him. This was a short, plump man with thin and brown hair and round, wire-framed glasses. He was wearing a white shirt with a manager's tag clipped to the pocket. He was sweating, and his shining face was red with rage. I fucking had it, he screamed. I tried to be polite, but no, you've got to treat me like some fucking slave. Oi, shouted Leslie, police. She advanced on them, warrant card in her left hand, her right hand resting on the handle of her extendable baton. What seems to be the problem? He attacked me, said the young man, definitely an accent. German, I thought. 
The enraged shop manager hesitated and turned to look at Leslie, his eyes blinking behind his specs. He was talking on the phone, said the manager. The violence seemed to have drained out of him. While he was at the tilt, it's not even like he got a call. He dialed it himself while he was paying. I'm expected to have a mutually beneficial and courteous interaction with him. And the fucker ignores me and makes a phone call. Leslie stepped between the two men and gently edged the manager backwards. Why don't we go inside, she said, and you can tell me all about it. It really was a delight to watch her work. I mean, why, said the manager. What is so important he couldn't wait? Beverly smacked me on the arm. Peter, she said, over there. I turned just in time to see Dr. Framline charge up the street, brandishing a stick, half as tall as he was. Behind him came his date from the gastro pub, yelling his name in confusion. I ran as fast as I could, passing the woman quickly, but there was no way I could get to Dr. Framline before he reached his target. The courier didn't even put an arm up to defend himself when Dr. Framline clubbed him hard on the shoulder with the stick. I saw the man's right arm jerk brokenly and his hand lose its grip on the bike, which began to topple sideways. The more you take, yelled the doctor, raising his stick again, the better it is for you. I hit him low, getting my shoulder into the sweet spot just above his hips so that he went sideways and down and broke my fall instead of the other way around. I heard the bike hit the street and then the stick skittering across the pavement. I tried to pin Dr. Framline, but he seemed amazingly strong and jammed an elbow into my chest, hard enough to leave me gasping for breath. I made a grab for his legs and got a knee in the face that made me swear. Police! I shouted. Stop fighting! Amazingly, he did. Thank you, I said. It seemed only polite. I tried to get up, but somebody fetched me such a blow that I was face down on the pavement again before it even registered I'd been hit. In a street fight, no matter how hurt you are, the pavement is not your friend. So I rolled over and tried to get back up again. As I did, I saw the cycle courier grab the outside stick off the ground and swing at Dr. Framline. The doctor flinched out of the way, but the stick caught him on the upper part of his arm, and he slipped over and went down, gasping in pain. A wave of emotion washed over me. Elation, excitement, and an undertone of violence. Like that of the home crowd at a football match when their team gets a chance at the goal. I saw the dissimulo as it happened that time. The courier's chin seemed to bulge. I heard the distinct cracking of bone and teeth as it jutted forward into a sharp point. The lips twisted into a snarl as the nose stretched until it was almost as long. It wasn't a real face. It was a caricature, man-in-the-moon face that no human could have in real life. The mouth opened and I could see inside to the red ruin of his jaw. That's the way to do it! He shrieked and lifted his stick. Leslie's baton hit him in the back of the head. He staggered. Leslie hit him again, and with a gurgling sigh, he fell forward in front of me. I crawled over and rolled him on his back, but it was too late. His face slumped like wet paper mache. I saw the skin tearing around his nose and chin, and then a great dripping flap peeled open and lolled over his forehead. I tried to make myself do something, but nothing in my first aid training had prepared me for someone's face flopping open like a starfish.
I slid my palm under the flap of skin, flinching at the warm wetness, and tried to fold it back over the face. I had some vague idea that I should at least try and stop the bleeding. Let me go! yelled Dr. Framline. I looked over and saw that Leslie already had him in handcuffs. Let me go! he said. I can help him! Leslie hesitated. Leslie, I said, and she started uncuffing the doctor. Too late. The courier suddenly went rigid. His back arched and a tide of blood welled up from his neck and forced itself through the rips in his skin and the gaps between my fingers. Dr. Framline scrambled over and jammed his finger into the courier's neck. He shifted their position looking for a pulse, but I could see in his expression that there was none. Finally, he shook his head and told me to let go. The courier's face flopped open again. Somebody was screaming, and I had to check it wasn't me. It could have been me. I certainly wanted to scream. But I remembered that right then and there, Leslie and I were the only coppers on the scene. And the public doesn't like it when the police start screaming. It contributes to an impression of things not being conducive to public calm. I got to my feet and found that we'd attracted a crowd of onlookers. Ladies and gentlemen, I said, police business, I need you to stand back. The crowd stood back. Being covered in blood can have that effect on people. We preserved the scene until backup arrived. But two-thirds of the crowd had their phones out and were taking videos and stills of me, Leslie, and the mutilated remains of the psycho courier. The images had already hit the internet before the ambulance arrived and the paramedic had covered the poor sob with a sheet. I spotted Beverly hanging around near the back of the crowd. And when she saw that, she caught my eye gave me a little wave, turned and walked away. Me and Leslie found a place under the shop awning and waited for the forensic tent, the swabs, and the replacement bunny suit. We can't keep doing this, said Leslie. I'm running out of clothes. We laughed, sort of. It's not that it gets easier the second time. It's just that by then, you know you're still going to wake up the next morning, the same person who went to sleep. A DS from the murder team arrived and took charge. She was a squat, angry-faced, middle-aged woman with lank brown hair who looked like she fought Rottweilers for a hobby. This was the legendary Detective Sergeant Miriam Stephanopoulos, Seawall's right-hand woman and terrifying lesbian. The only joke ever made at her expense goes, Do you know what happened to the last police officer who made a joke about DS Stephanopoulos? No, what happened to him? Nobody else knows either. I said it was the only joke, not a good one. She seemed to have a soft spot for Leslie, though. So we got processed much faster this time, but as soon as we were done, we were bundled into an unmarked car and driven to Belgravia. Nightingale and Seawall debriefed us in an anonymous conference room at which nobody took notes. But at least we were offered tea. Seawall glared at Leslie. He wasn't happy. Leslie glared at me. She wasn't happy that Seawall wasn't happy. Nightingale wasn't anything except distracted. He only seemed interested when I reported my sense impressions just prior to the attack. After the briefing, we trooped over to the Westminster mortuary where, surprisingly, both Seawall and Stephanopoulos attended the autopsy. Leslie and I made a point of standing behind them in the hope they wouldn't notice us. The psycho courier lay on the table with his face splayed open in a way that was becoming horribly familiar. Dr. Walid was giving his conclusion that somehow... Person or persons unknown had managed to trick the victim into changing his face with magic and then set him to attacking random strangers. 
Tia Stephanopoulos gave Seawall a sharp look at the word magic, but her boss gave a small shake of the head that said, Later, not here. His name was Derek Shampwell, said Dr. Walid. Aged 23, Australian citizen, had been in London for three years, no criminal record. Hair analysis shows intermittent marijuana use over the last two years. Do we know why he was singled out? I'll see one. No, said Nightingale, although all the cases seem to start with a sense of grievance. Coopertown was bitten by someone's pet. Shampwell was struck by a motor vehicle while riding. See what glance at Stephanopoulos. Hit and run on the strand, sir, in a CCTV blind spot. The blind spot? I'll see one. On the strand? Thousand to one chance, said Stephanopoulos. May, barked Seawall without turning round. You think they're related cases? Including the incident I witnessed in the cinema, and the one that took place just prior to Shantwell's death, I've identified fifteen cases where the perpetrators have shown uncharacteristic levels of aggression, said Leslie. All people with clean records, no psychiatric history, and all within half a mile of Cambridge Circus. How many do we know were actually... Seawall paused. Possessed. Just the ones whose faces fell off, said Nightingale. Just so we're clear, said Seawall, the commissioner wants this kept quiet. So PC May liaises with PC Grant for the low-level stuff. But anything significant, anything at all, you talk to me. Do you have a problem with this, Thomas? Not at all, Alexander, said Nightingale. It all seems eminently sensible. His parents are flying in tomorrow, said Dr. Walid. Is it all right if I saw his face back together? Seawall glared at the body. Fuck, he said. Nightingale was silent on the drive back to the folly, but at the foot of the stairs he turned to me and told me to get a good night's sleep. I asked him what he was going to do, and he said he'd work on some research in the library and see if he couldn't narrow down what was doing the killing. I asked if I could help. Train harder, he said. Learn faster. As I went upstairs, I met Molly gliding down. She paused to give me an inquiring look. How should I know, I said. You know him better than I do. You don't tell your governor that you need a broadband connection, cable for preference, because you want to watch football. You tell him that you need the internet so you can access Holmes directly instead of having constantly to rely on Leslie May. The football coverage, movies on demand and multiplayer console games are all merely serendipitous extras. Would this involve physically running a cable into the folly? Asked Nightingale when I tackled him during practice in the lab. That's why they call it cable, I said. Left hand, said Nightingale, and I dutifully produced a well light with my left hand. Sustain it, said Nightingale. We can't have anything physically entering the building. I'd got to the point where I could talk while sustaining a wear-light, although it was a strain to make it look as casual as I did. Why not? There's a series of protections woven around the building, said Nightingale. They were last set up after the new phone lines were put in in 1941. If we introduce a new physical connection with the outside, it would create a weak spot. I stopped trying to be casual and concentrated on maintaining the wear-light. It was a relief when Nightingale told me to stop. Good, he said. I think you're almost ready to move on to the next form. I dropped the wear light and caught my breath. Nightingale wandered over to the adjoining bench, where I dismantled my mobile phone and set up the microscope I'd found in a mahogany case in one of the storage cupboards. He touched the brass and lacquer tube. Do you know what this is? he asked. 
An original Charles Perry number no. five microscope, I said. I looked it up on the internet. Made in 1932. Nightingale nodded and bent down to examine the insides of my phone. You think magic did this? He asked. I know it was magic, I said. I just don't know how or why. Nightingale shifted uncomfortably. Peter, he said, you're not the first apprentice with、uh, an inquiring mind, but I don't want this getting in the way of your duties. Yes, sir, I said. I'll keep it to my free time. You're about to suggest the coach house, said Nightingale. Sir, for this cable connection, said Nightingale. The heavy defences tended to disturb the horses, so they skirt the coach house. I'm sure this cable connection of yours will be very useful. Yes, sir. For all manner of entertainments, continued Nightingale. Sir, now, said Nightingale. The next form, impello. I couldn't tell whether the coach house had originally been built with a first floor to house footmen or whatever, which had then been knocked through in the 1920s, or whether the floor had been added by sticking a new ceiling on the garage when they bricked up the main gate. At some point, someone had bolted a rather beautiful wrought iron spiral staircase to the courtyard wall. When I'd first ventured up, I was surprised to find that a good third of the sloping roof on the south-facing side had been glazed. The glass was dirty on the outside, and some of the panes were cracked, but it let in enough daylight to reveal a jumble of shapes shrouded by dust sheets. Unlike those in the rest of the folly, these sheets were furry with dust. I didn't think Molly had ever cleaned in there. If the chaise long Chinese screen, mismatched side tables, and collection of ceramic fruit bowls that I found under the sheets weren't enough of a clue, I also found an easel and a box full of squirrel hair paintbrushes gone rigid with disuse. Somebody had used the rooms as a studio, judging from the empty beer bottles neatly lined up against the south wall. Probably apprentices like me, or a wizard with a serious alcohol problem. Stacked in the corner and carefully wrapped in brown paper and string were a series of canvases painted in oils. These included a number of still lives, a rather amateurish portrait of a young woman whose discomfort was palpable, despite the sloppy execution. The next was much more professional, an Edwardian gentleman reclining in the same wickerwork chair I'd found under a dust sheet earlier. The man was holding a silver-topped cane. And for a moment, I thought the man might be Nightingale, but the man was older, and his eyes were an intense blue. Nightingale Senior, perhaps. The next, probably by the same painter, was a nude, with a subject that so shocked me I took it to the skylight to get a better look. I hadn't made a mistake. There was Molly, reclining pale and naked on the chaise longue. Staring out of the canvas with heavy-lidded eyes, one hand dipping into a bowl of cherries placed on the table by her side. Well, at least I hope they were cherries. The painting was in the impressionist style, so the brushstrokes were bold, making it hard to tell. They were definitely small and red, the same colour as Molly's lips. I carefully rewrapped the paintings and put them back where I'd found them. I did a cursory check of the room for damp, dry rot, and whatever it is that makes wooden beams crumbly and dangerous. I found that there was still a shuttered loading door at the courtyard end of the room, and mounted above it a hoisted beam, presumably to serve a hayloft for the coach horses. As I leaned out to check it was still solid, I saw Molly's pale face in one of the upper windows. I didn't know what I found stranger that somebody had persuaded her to get her kit off, or that she hadn't changed in appearance in the last seventy years.
She withdrew without apparently seeing me. I turned and looked around the room. This, I thought, will do nicely. At one time or other, most of my mum's relatives had cleaned offices for a living. For a certain generation of African immigrants, cleaning offices became part of the culture, like male circumcision and supporting Arsenal. My mum had done a stint herself and had often taken me with her to save on babysitting. When an African mum takes her son to work, she expects her son to work. So I quickly learned how to handle a broom and a window cloth. So the next day, after practice, I returned to the coach house with a packet of marigold gloves and my Uncle Tito's pneumatic vacuum cleaner. Let me tell you, 1,000 watts of suckage makes a big difference when cleaning a room. The only thing I had to worry about was causing a rift in the space-time fabric of the universe. I found the window cleaners online, and a pair of bickering Romanians scrubbed up the skylight while I rigged up a pulley to the hoisting beam just in time for the TV to be delivered, along with the fridge. I had to wait a week for the cable to be hooked up, so I caught up on my practice and started narrowing down the location of Father Thames. Finding him will be a good exercise for you, Nightingale had said. Give you a good grounding in the folklore of the Thames Valley. Ask for a clue, and he told me to remember that Father Thames had traditionally been a peripatetic spirit, which, according to Google, meant walking or travelling about, itinerant. So not really a lot of help. I had to admit that it was expanding my knowledge of the folklore of the Thames Valley, most of which was contradictory but would no doubt be helpful at the next pub quiz I took part in. To inaugurate my re-entry into the 21st century, I ordered some pizza and invited Leslie round to see my etchings. I had a long soak in the claw-footed porcelain tub that dominated the communal bathroom on my floor and swore, not for the first time, that I was definitely going to install a shower. I'm not a peacock, but on occasion I like to dress to impress, although, like most coppers, I don't wear much in the way of bling. The rule being, never wear something round your neck that you wouldn't want to be strangled with. I laid in some becks because I know Leslie preferred bottled beer and settled in to watch sports TV while I waited for her to turn up. Among the many other modern innovations that I'd introduced to the coach house was an entry phone installed on the garage's side door so that when Leslie arrived, all I had to do was buzz her in. I opened the door and met her at the top of the spiral staircase. She'd brought company. I brought Beverly, she said. Of course you did, I said. I offered them beer. I want you to make it clear that nothing I eat or drink here puts me under obligation, said Beverly, and no mucking me about this time. Fine, I said. Eat, drink, no obligations, scout's honour. On your power, said Beverly. I swear on my power, I said. Beverly grabbed a beer, hopped onto the sofa, found the remote and started channel surfing. Can I on demand a movie, she asked. There followed a three-way argument over what we were going to watch, which I lost at the start, and Leslie won in the end, by the simple expedient of grabbing the remote and switching to one of the free movie channels. Beverly was just complaining that none of the pizzas had pepperoni, when the door opened a fraction, and a pale face peered in. It was Molly. She stared at us, and we stared back. Would you like to come in? I asked. Molly slipped inside and drifted over to the sofa where she sat next to Beverly. I realised that I'd never been this close to her before. Her skin was very pale and perfect in the same way that Beverly's was. She refused a beer, but tentatively accepted a piece of pizza. When she ate, she turned her face away and held her hand so that it obscured her mouth.
When are you going to sort out Father Thames? Asked Beverly. Mum's getting impatient and the Richmond posse is getting restless. Richmond posse, said Leslie and snorted. We've got to find him first, I said. How hard can it be? Asked Beverly. He's got to be close to the river. Hire a boat, go upstream, stop when you get there. How would we know when we got there? I'd know. Then why don't you come with us? No way, said Beverly. You're not getting me up past Teddy and Lock. I'm strictly tired, I am. Suddenly Molly's head whipped round to face the door, and a moment later somebody knocked. Beverly looked at me. I shrugged. I wasn't expecting anyone. I hit mute on the remote and got up to answer. It was Inspector Nightingale, dressed in a blue polo shirt and blazer, which I recognised as being the closest thing he ever got to casual dress. I stared at him stupidly for a moment, then invited him in. I just wanted to see what you'd done with the place, he said. Molly shot to her feet as soon as Nightingale came into the room. Leslie got up because he was a senior officer, and Beverly stood either from some vestigial politeness or in anticipation of a quick getaway. I introduced Beverly, who he'd met only briefly when she was ten. Would you like a beer, sir? I asked. Thank you, he said. Call me Thomas, please. Which was just not going to happen. I handed him a bottle and indicated the chaise longue. He sat carefully and upright at one end. I sat at the other end while Beverly flopped into the middle of the sofa. Leslie sat slightly to attention and poor Molly bobbed a couple of times before perching right on the edge. She kept her eyes resolutely downcast. That's a very large television, said Nightingale. It's a plasma TV, I said. Nightingale nodded sagely while out of his sight Beverly rolled her eyes. Is there something wrong with the sound? he asked. Uh, no, I said. I have it on mute. I found the remote and we got ten seconds of beat the rest before I got the volume under control. That's very clear, said Nightingale. It's like having your own cinema. We sat in silence for a moment, everyone no doubt appreciating the theatre quality surround sound. I offered Nightingale a slice of pizza, but he explained that he'd already eaten. He asked after Beverly's mother and was told she was fine. He finished his beer and stood up. I really must be on my way, he said. Thank you for the beer. We all stood up and I walked him to the door. When he left, I heard Leslie sigh and flop back onto the sofa. I almost shouted when Molly suddenly slid past me in a rustle of fabric and slipped out the door. Awkward, said Beverly. You don't think she and Nightingale, asked Leslie. Ill, said Beverly. That's just wrong. I thought you and her were friends, I asked. Yeah, but she's like a creature of the night, said Beverly. And he's old. He's not that old, said Leslie. <laughs> yes, he is, said Beverly. But however many hints I dropped that evening, she wouldn't say any more. Chapter 7 The Puppet Fair It began when I started a practice session without taking my phone out of my jacket. I even noticed a little flare and intensity when I formed the wear light, but I'd only been reliably casting for two days, so it didn't register as significant. It was only later, when I tried to call Leslie and found my phone was busted, that I opened up the case and saw the same trickle of sand I'd noticed at the vampire house. I took it down to the lab and prized out the microprocessor. As it came loose, the same fine sand streamed out of its plastic casing. The gold pins were intact, as were the contacts, but the silicon bit of the chip had disintegrated. 
The cupboards in the lab were full of the scent of sandalwood, and the most amazing range of antique equipment, including the Charles Perry microscope, all put away with such precision and tidiness that I knew no student had been involved. Under the microscope, I found the powder to be mostly silicon with a few impurities, which I suspected were germanium or gallium arsenide. The chip that handled RF conversion was superficially intact, but had suffered microscopic pitting across its entire surface. The patterns reminded me of Mr. Coopertown's brain. This was my phone on magic, I thought. Obviously, I couldn't do any magic and carry a mobile phone, or stand near a computer, or an iPod, or most of the useful technology invented since I was born. No wonder Nightingale drove a 1967 Jag. The question was, how close did the magic have to be? I was formulating some experiments to find out when Nightingale distracted me with my next form. We sat down on opposite sides of the lab bench, and Nightingale placed an object between us. It was a small apple. Impello, he said, and the apple rose into the air. It hung there, rotating slowly while I checked for wires, rods, and anything else I could think of. I poked it with my finger, but it felt like it was embedded in something solid. Seen enough? I nodded. Nightingale brought out a basket of apples, a wicker basket with a handle and a checked napkin, no less. He placed the second apple in front of me, and I didn't need him to explain the next step. He levitated the apple, I listened for the former, concentrated on my own apple, and said, Impello. I wasn't really surprised when nothing happened. It gets easier, said Nightingale. It's just that it gets easier slowly. I looked at the basket. Why do we have so many apples? They have a tendency to explode, said Nightingale. The next morning I went out and bought three sets of eye protectors and a heavy-duty lab apron. Nightingale hadn't been kidding about the exploding fruit, and I'd spent the afternoon smelling of apple juice and the evening picking pips out of my clothing. I asked Nightingale why we didn't train with something more durable like ball bearings, but he said magic required the mastery of fine control right from the start. Young men are always tempted to use brute force, Nightingale said. It's like learning to shoot a rifle. Because it's inherently dangerous, you teach safety, accuracy, and speed in that order. We went through a lot of apples in that first session. I was getting them in the air, but sooner or later, splat. There was a brief phase when it was fun, and then it got boring. After a week of practice, I could levitate an apple without exploding it nine times out of ten. I wasn't a happy little wizard, though. What worried me was where was the power coming from? I never was very good at electricity, so I didn't know how much power it took to make a wear light. But levitating one small apple against the Earth's gravity, that was essentially the standard definition of one newton of force. And it should be using one theoretical joule of energy every second. The laws of thermodynamics are pretty strict about this sort of thing. And they say that you never get something for nothing, which meant that the joule was coming from somewhere... But from where? From my brain? So it's like ESP, said Leslie, during one of her periodic visits to the coach house. Officially, she was there to liaise with me on the case, but really, she was there for the widescreen TV, takeaways, and the unresolved sexual tension. Besides, apart from a couple of unconfirmed cases around the same time as the Neal Street attack, nothing had come to our attention. Like that guy on that show who could move things around, she said. 
It doesn't feel like I'm moving things around with my mind, I said. It's like I'm making shapes with my mind, which affects something else, which makes stuff happen at the other end. Do you know what a theremin is? Uh, it's, that, it's that weirdo sci-fi musical instrument with loops, she said, right? Pretty much, I said. The point is, it's the only musical instrument you don't physically touch. You make shapes with your hands and you get a sound. The shapes are completely abstract, so you have to learn to associate a particular shape with a particular note and tone before you can get the thing to make a tune. What does Nightingale say? He says that if I stop letting myself get distracted, I might spend less time covered in bits of apple. At the end of March, the clocks go forward one hour to mark the start of British summertime. I woke up late to find the folly feeling weirdly empty. The chairs in the breakfast room still tucked beneath the tables, and the buffet counter unlaid. I found Nightingale reading the previous day's telegraph in one of the overstuffed armchairs that lined the first-floor balcony. It's the change in the clocks, he said. Twice a year, she takes a day off. Where does she go? Nightingale pointed upstairs towards the attic. I believe she stays in her room. Are we going on a road trip? I asked. Nightingale was wearing his sports jacket over a cream-coloured iron sweater. His driving gloves and the keys to the jag were lying on a nearby occasional table. That depends, he said. Do you think you know where the old man of the Thames is today? Trewsbury Mead, I said. He'd have arrived there round about spring equinox, which was last week, and he'll stay until all fool's day. Your reasoning? asked Nightingale. It's the source of his river, I said. Where else is he going to go in the spring? Nightingale smiled. I know a nice little transport cafe off the M4. We can have breakfast there. Trewsbury Mead. Early one afternoon under a powder blue sky. According to the Ordnance Survey, this is where the Thames first rises, 130 straight-line kilometres west of London. Just to the north is the site either of an Iron Age hill fort or a Roman encampment, the exact nature of which is awaiting an episode of Time Team. Apparently, there's a soggy field, a stone to mark the spot, and a chance, after a particularly wet winter, that you might see some water. You approach down a minor road that turns to gravel once you're past the private houses it was built to serve. The line of the river is marked by a dense stand of trees, and the source of the Thames is beyond that. In the field beyond was the court of the old man of the river. We could hear it before we saw it. The rumble of the diesel generators, steelwork clanking, the bass beat of music thumping, tannoys barking, girls screaming, glimpses of neon over the tree line, and the whole round-the-corner thrill of a travelling funfair. I had a sudden bank holiday memory of holding my father's hand in one fist and clutching a precious handful of pound coins in the other. Never enough, and quickly gone. We left the jag by the side of the road and we walked the rest of the way. Beyond the line of the trees I could see the tops of the big wheel and that ride where they fling you into the air on the end of a rope, which I don't really see the point of. The track crossed the stream bed on a modern culvert, which had recently been scored by the passage of heavy trucks, and for a moment we were in the shade of the trees. The first line of the park caravans began as soon as we were back in the sunlight. Most of them were old-fashioned with humpback roofs and mean little doors and windows. 
A few were modern with sloped fronts and go-faster stripes. I even caught sight through the thickets of caller gas bottles, deck chairs, guy ropes and sleeping rottweilers, of the horseshoe roof of a wooden gypsy caravan, something I thought was only for tourists. Although the caravan seemed to be parked randomly, I was struck by the notion that there was a pattern, a deep structure that nagged at the edge of perception. There was definitely a perimeter and nothing elusive about the heavy-set man who guarded it from the doorway of his caravan. The man had thick black hair greased into a quiff and a set of long sideburns that had last been fashionable when my dad was doing regular sessions with Ted Heath in the late 1950s. He also had a totally illegal 12-bore shotgun propped up against the side of his caravan. Afternoon, said Nightingale, and kept walking past. The man nodded. Afternoon, said the man. Good weather we're having, said Nightingale. Looks to be fair, said the man, in an accent that was either Welsh or Irish. I couldn't tell, but definitely Celtic. I felt a prickle on the back of my neck. A London copper doesn't like to intrude upon a traveller camp with anything less than a van full of bodies and riot gear. It's considered disrespectful otherwise. The residential caravans formed a semicircle around the fair proper. There, the big beasts of the fairground world roared and clanked and blared out I Feel Good by James Brown. Every copper knows that the funfairs of Great Britain are run by the showmen, a collection of interwoven families so clannish they officially constitute a separate ethnic group of their own. Their family names are painted on the generator trucks and blazoned across the tops of hoardings. I counted at least six different names on six different rides, and half a dozen more as we walked through the fair. It seemed that each family had brought one ride to the spring fair at Trewsbury Mead. Skinny young girls ran past, trailing laughter and streamers of red hair. Their older sisters paraded in white hot pants, bikini tops and high-heeled boots, checking out the older boys through Max Factor lashes and clouds of cigarette smoke. The boys tried to hide their awkwardness by playing butch or walking the moving rides with studied indifference. Their mums worked the booths, painted with the rough murals of last decade's film stars, and festooned with banners and health and safety warnings. Nobody seemed to be paying for the rides or the candy floss, which probably explained why the kids were so happy. The fair proper formed another semicircle, and at its centre was a rough-hewn wooden corral, like those you see in the westerns. And in the centre of that was the source of the mighty River Thames, which looked to me like a small pond with ducks on it. And, standing at the fence, was the old man of the river himself. There was once a statue of Father Thames at the Mead, now transported to the more reliably wet stretch of the river at Lechlade, which showed a muscular old man with a William Blake beard reclining on his plinth, with a shovel on his shoulder, crates and bundles arranged at his feet, the fruits of industry and trade. Even I can spot a bit of empire spin when I see it, so I didn't really expect him to look like that, but I think I was still hoping for something grander than the man at the fence. He was short, with a pinched face, dominated by a beaky nose and a heavy brow. He looked old, in his seventies at least, but there was a sinewy vigour in the way he moved, and his eyes were grey and bright. He wore an old-fashioned, double-breasted suit, in dusty black, 
the jacket unbuttoned to show off a red velvet waistcoat, a brass fob watch, and a folded pocket handkerchief the bright yellow of a spring daffodil. A battered homburg was jammed on his head, wisps of white hair escaping from underneath, and a cigarette dangled from his lip. He stood leaning on the fence, one foot on the lowest rail, talking out of the side of his mouth to a crony, one of several frighteningly spry old men who shared the fence with him, gesturing at the pond or taking a long pull on his cigarette. He glanced up as we approached, frowning at the sight of Nightingale before turning his attention to me. I felt the force of his personality drag at me. Beer and skittles, it promised. The smell of horse manure and walking home from the pub by moonlight. A warm fireside and uncomplicated women. It was a good thing I'd had practice with Mama Thames and had mentally prepared on the walk up because otherwise I would have marched right up and offered the contents of my wallet. He winked at me and turned his full attention to Nightingale. He called out a greeting in a language which could have been Skelter or Welsh, or even pre-Roman Gaelic for all I knew. Nightingale answered in the same language, and I wondered whether I was going to have to learn that one too. The cronies shuffled along to make a space at the fence. Only wide enough for one, I noticed. Nightingale joined Father Thames, and they shook hands. With his height and good suit, Nightingale should have looked like the Lord of the Manor, mixing with the commoners but there was no deference in the way Father Thames was sizing him up. Father Thames was doing most of the talking, emphasizing his words with little twirls and flicks of his fingers. Nightingale leaned on the fence, deliberately minimizing the height difference, and nodding and chuckling, I could tell, at all the right moments. I was considering whether to edge forward so that I could understand what they were saying more clearly when one of the younger men at the fence caught my eye. He was taller and thicker set than Father Thames, but had the same long, sinewy arms and narrow face. You don't want to be bothering with that, he said. It'll be a good half hour before they get past the pleasantries. He reached out a callous hand to shake mine. Oxley, he said. Peter Grant, I said. Come and meet the wife, he said. The wife was a pretty woman with a rounded face and startling black eyes. She met us on the threshold of a modest 1960s caravan that was parked in its own little space, to the left of the funfair. This is my wife, Isis, said Oxley, and to her, this is Peter, the new apprentice. She took my hand. Her skin was warm and with the same unreal perfection that I'd noticed on Beverly and Molly. Delighted, she said. Her accent was pure Jane Austen. We sat on folding chairs around a card table with a cracked linoleum top, decorated with a single daffodil arranged in a slender vase of fluted glass. Would you like some tea? Isis asked, and when I hesitated said, I, Anna Maria de Berg Coppinger, Isis, solemnly swear on the life of my husband, which got a chuckle from Oxley, and the future prospects of the Oxford rowing team, that nothing you partake of in my house will place you under any obligation. She crossed her heart and gave me a little girl smile. Thank you, I said. Tea would be nice. I can see you're wondering how we met, said Oxley. I could see he wanted to tell the story. I presume she fell into the river, I said. You would presume wrong, sir, said Oxley. Back in the day, I had a great fondness for theatre. 
and would often smarten myself up and row up to Westminster for an evening's entertainment. Quite the peacock I was back then, and attracted, I like to think, many an admiring gaze. What with him traversing the cattle market at the time, said Isis, returning with tea. The cups and teapot were modern porcelain, a very clean design with a stylish platinum strip around the lip, not chipped at all, I noticed. I suspected I was getting the VIP treatment and I wondered why. I first set eyes on my Isis at the old royal on Drury Lane, this being the new one that burned down not long after. I was in the guards and she was in a box with her dear friend Anne. I was smitten. But alas, she already had her fancy man. He paused long enough to pour the tea. Although he suffered a terrible disappointment, I can tell you. Hush, my love, said Isis. The young man doesn't want to hear about that. I picked up my teacup. The brew was very pale. I recognized the aroma of Earl Grey. I hesitated with the cup at my lips. But trust has to start somewhere, so I took a resolute sip. It was a very fine cup of tea indeed. But I am like the river, said Oxley. I may run, but I'm always there. Except during droughts, said Isis, and offered me a slice of Battenberg cake. I'm always lurking, under the surface, said Oxley. I was even then. Her friend had a very nice house at Strawberry Hill. Beautiful place, and back in those days, not surrounded by Mark Tudor semis. If you've seen the place, you'll know it's built like a castle, and my Isis was a princess held captive in its tallest tower. Having a long weekend at a friend's house, actually, said Isis. My chance came when they held a great masquerade at the castle, said Oxley. Dressed in my finest, my features cleverly disguised with a swan mask, I slipped in through the tradesman's entrance and soon found myself mingling with the fine people inside. I figured that I was already in trouble for the tea, so I might as well have the cake. It was shop-bought and very sweet. It was a grand ball, said Oxley. Lords and ladies and gentlemen, all dressed in Josephine gowns or tight breeches and velvet waistcoats, and every one of them thinking wicked thoughts while safe behind their mask. And most wicked was my Isis, for all that she was wearing the mask of the Queen of Egypt. I was Isis, said Isis, as well you know. So I boldly stepped up and marked her card for every dance, said Oxley. Which was a cheek and an effrontery, said Isis. I saved you from the left feet of many a swain, said Oxley. She put her hand on his cheek which I cannot deny. The thing you have to remember about a masquerade is that at the end of the night, the masks have to come off, said Oxley, at least in polite company. But I had been thinking, always a worrying development, said Isis. Why did the masquerade have to end, said Oxley. And as the son follows the father, I let action follow my thought, and seized my darling Isis, threw her over my shoulder, and was away across the fields towards Chertsey. Oxley, said Isis, the poor boy is an officer of the law. You can't be telling him you kidnapped me. He'd be on a bound to arrest you. She looked at me. It was entirely voluntary, I can assure you, she said. I was twice married, and a mother 
and I'd always known my own mind. It is certain that she proved to be an experienced woman, he said, and much to my embarrassment winked at me. You wouldn't think he was once a man of the cloth, said Isis. I was a terrible monk, he said, but that was a different life. He rapped the table. Now that we fed and watered and bored you senseless, why don't we talk some business? What is it that the big lady wants? You understand that I'm strictly the go-between in this, I said. We actually did a course on conflict resolution at Hendon, and the trick is always to stress your neutrality while allowing both parties to think you're secretly on their side. There were role-playing exercises and everything. It was one of the few things I was better at than Leslie. Mama Thames feels that you may be looking to move downstream of Teddington Lock. It's all one river, said Oxley, and he's the old man of the river. She claims he abandoned the tideway in 1858, I said. More precisely, during the Great Stink, note the capitals, when the Thames became so thick with sewage that London was overwhelmed with a stench so horrible the Parliament considered relocating to Oxford. Nobody stayed in London that summer who could move away, said Oxley. It wasn't fit for man or beast. She says he never came back, I said. Is that true? That is true, said Oxley. And, in truth, the old man has never loved the city, not since it killed his sons. Which sons were these? Oh, you know who they are, said Oxley. There was Ty and Fleet and Ephra, all drowned in a flood of muck and filth, and finally put out of their misery by that clever bastard Basil Get. Him that made the sewers. I met him, you know. Very grand man with the finest set of chops this side of William Gladstone. Knocked him on his arse for being the murdering bastard that he was. You think he killed the rivers? No, said Oxley, but he was their undertaker. I've got to hand it to the daughters of the big lady, for they certainly must be hardier than my brothers. If he doesn't want the city, why is he pushing downstream? I asked. Some of us still have a hankering for the bright lights, said Oxley and smiled at his wife. I dare say it would be nice to attend the theatre again, she said. Oxley refilled my cup. A crackling voice on a tannoy somewhere behind me yelled, let's get this party started. James Brown was still feeling nice. Sugar and spice now. And you want to fight Mama Thames's daughters for the privilege? You think there are two fears over us? Asked Oxley. I don't think you want it badly enough, I said. Besides, I'm sure some arrangements could be made. An excursion by coach, perhaps, said Oxley. Will we need passports? Despite what you think you know, most people don't want to fight, especially when evenly matched. A mob will tear an individual to pieces, and a man with a gun and a noble cause is happy to kill ever so many women and children. But risking a fair fight, not so easy. That's why you see those pissed young men doing the dance of the don't hold me back, while desperately hoping someone likes them enough to hold them back. Everyone is always so pleased to see the police arrive, because we have to save them whether we like them or not. Oxley wasn't a pissed young man, but I could see he was just as keen to find someone to hold him back. Or maybe his father. Your father, I said. What does he really want? What any father wants, said Oxley, the respect of his children.
I nearly said that not all fathers were worthy of respect, but I managed to keep my gob shut. And anyway, not everyone had a dad like mine. It would be nice if everyone could just chill for a bit, I said. Keep everything relaxed while the inspector and I sorted something out. Oxy looked at me over his teacup. It is spring, he said. Plenty of distractions upstream of Richmond. Lambing season, I said, and what not. Not what I expected, said Oxley. What were you expecting? I was expecting Nightingale to shoot someone more like himself, said Oxley. Upper class? Solid, said Isis, preempting her husband. Workmanlike. Whereas you, said Oxley, are a conning man. Much more like the wizards we used to know, said Isis. Is that a good thing? I asked. Oxley and Isis laughed. I don't know, said Oxley, but it'll be interesting to find out. This audiobook has been broken into multiple parts to make the download faster. You have reached the end of a part, but not the end of the complete audiobook. So please check your library for the next part of this audiobook. Audible hopes you've enjoyed this program. This is Audible. Rivers of London, written by Ben Aronovich. It was strangely hard to leave the fair. My legs felt heavy, as if I was wading out of a swimming pool. It wasn't until we were back in the jag and the funfair sounds had started to fade that I felt I had escaped. What is that? I asked Nightingale as we climbed in the car. Sedusere,、uh, he said. The compulsion, or, as the Scots say, the glamour. According to Bartholomew, many supernatural creatures do it as a form of self-defense. When do I learn how to do it? I asked. In about ten years, he said, if you pick up the pace a bit. As we headed back through Sirencester for the M4, I told Nightingale about my meeting with Oxley. He's the old man's conciliary, isn't he? I asked. If you mean conciliarius, his advisor, said Nightingale, then yes. Probably the second most important man at the camp. You knew he'd talk to me, didn't you? Nightingale paused to check traffic before pulling out onto the main road. It's his job to press for an advantage, he said. You had the Battenberg cake, didn't you? Should I have refused? No, said Nightingale. He wouldn't try to trap you while you're under my protection. But you can't always take common sense for granted when dealing with these people. It makes no sense for the old man suddenly to be pushing downstream. Now that you've met them both, what do you think? They both have genuine power, I said, but it feels different. It, hers is definitely from the sea, from the port and all that. His is all from the earth and the weather and leprechauns and crystals, for all I know. That would explain why the borders at Teddington Lock, he said. Teddington is the highest point the tide reaches. The river below that point is called the Tideway. It's also the part of the Thames administered directly by the Port of London. I doubted that was a coincidence. Am I right? I asked. I believe you are, he said. I think there may always have been a split between the Tideway and the Freshwater River. Perhaps that's why it was so easy for Father Thames to abandon the city. Oxley was hinting that the old man doesn't really want anything to do with the city, I said, that he just wanted some respect. Perhaps he would be content with the ceremony, said Nightingale, and an oath of fealty, perhaps. Which is what? 
A feudal oath, said Nightingale. A vassal pledges his loyalty and service to his liege lord, and the lord pledges his protection. It's how medieval societies were organized. Medieval is what it would get if you tried to make Mama Thames swear loyalty and service to anyone, I said, let alone Father Thames. Are you sure, said Nightingale, it would be purely symbolic. Symbolic just makes it worse, I said. She'd see it as a loss of face. She sees herself as the mistress of the greatest city on earth, and she's not going to kowtow to anyone, particularly not some yokel in a caravan. It's a pity we can't marry them off, said Nightingale. We both laughed out loud at that and bypassed Swindon. Once we were on the M4, I asked Nightingale what he and the old man had talked about. My contribution to the conversation was cursory at best, said Nightingale. A great deal of it was technical, groundwater overdrafts, aquifer delay cycles and aggregate catchment area coefficients. Apparently all these will affect how much water goes down the river this summer. If I were to go back 200 years and have that same conversation, I said, what would the old man have talked about then? What flowers are blooming, said Nightingale, what kind of winter we'd had and the flight of birds on a spring morning. Would it have been the same old man? I don't know, said Nightingale. It was the same old man in 1914, I can tell you that for certain. How do you know? Nightingale hesitated. Then he said, I'm not quite as young as I look. My phone rang. I really wanted to ignore it, but the tune was That's Not My Name, which meant it was Leslie. When I answered, she wanted to know where the hell we were. I told her we were just going through Reading. There's been another one, she said. How bad? Really bad, she said. I put the spinner on the roof as Nightingale put his foot down, and we topped 120 miles an hour back into London with the setting sun behind us. There were three appliances parked up in Charing Cross Road, and the traffic was backing up as far as Parliament Square and the Euston Road. We arrived at St. Martin's Court to the smell of smoke and the chatter and squawk of emergency radios. Leslie met us at the tape line and handed us bunny suits. I could see while we were changing that half of Jay Sheiky's frontage had been burned out, and that there were three forensic evidence tents set up in the alley. Three bodies, at least. How many inside? asked Nightingale. None, said Leslie. They all went out the back, emergency doors, minor injuries only. Something to be thankful for, said Nightingale. You sure this is our case? Leslie nodded and led us over to the first tent. Inside, we found that Dr. Walid had got there before us and was crouched beside the body of a man dressed in the distinctive saffron robes of a Hare Krishna devotee. The body lay on its back where he'd fallen, legs straight, arms stretched out either side as if he'd participated in one of those trust-building exercises where you let yourself fall backwards. Only no one had been there to catch him. His face was the same bloody ruin as Cooperstown's and the cycle couriers had been. That answered that question. That's not the worst of it, she said, and beckoned us over to the second tent. This one had two bodies. The first was a dark-skinned man in a black frock coat, his hair stuck up in clumps and stiff with blood. He'd been hit hard enough to crack open his skull and expose a section of his brain. The second body was another devotee of Krishna. A random good Samaritan had tried to help by putting him in the recovery position, but with his face split open, the gesture had been futile. I was aware of a thudding in my ears and a shortness of breath. Blood, presumably from the blow struck to the other man, 
had spattered the devotee's robes and made a bloody tie-dye pattern on the orange cloth. The interior of the forensic tent was stifling, and I started sweating inside my bunny suit. Nightingale asked a question, but I didn't really hear Leslie's answer. I stopped outside the tent, gagged once, swallowed it, and stumbled to the tape line where, to my own amazement, I managed to keep my Battenberg cake down. I wiped my mouth on the cold plastic sleeve of the bunny suit and leaned against the wall. Opposite me was a poster for the Noel Coward Theatre, where they were showing a farce called Down With Knickers. Two victims with their faces half off meant that the possession had affected two individuals at the same time. There was one more tent left. I asked myself how much worse that could be. Stupid question. The third body was seated with its legs crossed, but like a child, not a yogi, for all that his hands were resting on his knees, palm upwards. His robes were drenched in blood, and ribbons of red ropey stuff covered his shoulders and upper arms. His head was completely gone, leaving a ragged stump of a neck. There was a flash of white buried amid the torn muscle. I assumed it was his spine. Seawall had been waiting for us in the tent. He grunted when Leslie led us in. Somebody's just taking the piss now. It's escalating, I said. Nightingale gave me a sharp look but said nothing. But what's escalating? asked Leslie. And why can't you stop it? Because, constable, said Nightingale coldly. We don't know what it is. There are plenty of witnesses and suspects and people who were helping the police with their inquiries. We paired off to conduct the interviews as fast as possible. I worked with Seawall while Nightingale paired with Leslie. That way, there'd be someone in the room who could spot a vestigium when it slapped them in the face. Sergeant Stephanopoulos handled the collecting of evidence and collating the CCTV coverage. It was a bit of a privilege to watch Seawall work. He wasn't nearly so intimidating with the suspects as he was with other policemen. His interrogation technique was gentle, never chummy, always formal, but he never raised his voice. I took notes. The sequence of events as we reconstructed them were depressingly familiar, but on a larger scale than we'd seen it before. It had been a mild spring Sunday afternoon, and St. Martin's Court had been moderately crowded. The close itself is a pedestrianised alleyway that has access to three separate stage doors, the back entrance to Brown's and the famous J. Sheiky's Oyster Bar. It's where the theatre staff go for a coffee and a crafty fag between performances. J. Sheiky's is a thespian landmark, which isn't surprising if you sell food late at night within walking distance of the most famous theatres in the West End. Sheikis also employs uniformed doormen in top hats and black frock coats, and that's where the trouble started that afternoon. At 2.45, about the same time I was sitting down for tea with Oxley and Isis, six members of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness entered the close from the Charing Cross Road end. This was a common route for the Bakhtas, the aspirant devotees to the god, as they traversed from Leicester Square to Covent Garden. They were being led by Michael Smith, his identity later confirmed through fingerprint evidence, a reformed crack addict, alcoholic, car thief and suspected rapist who had lived an unblemished life since joining the movement nine months previously. ISKCON, as the International Society for Krishna Consciousness likes to be known, is aware that there is a fine line between drawing attention to oneself and provoking active hostility from passers-by. 
The intention is that through dancing and chanting in public, potential converts may be attracted to the movement and 